This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Wound of the World, Book Three of the Cycle of Galand, written by Edward W. Robertson, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds. Chapter One The half-ruined rear wall of the reborn shrine held itself up as best it could. A thousand colonners kneeled in the hard sunlight, gazes turned down to the ground. Hundreds of Malish soldiers lay prone on the flagstones, blood staining the geometry of the grout. And Dante stood alone. The keeper had declared him a god. The avatar of Aron arrived, as prophesied, to fight back the Malish and free the Colin Basin from centuries of torment. As the colonners kneeled before him, he could feel the yearning roiling off them like stink off a dog. They needed him, not just for his skill, but for what he represented, the hope that he might finally break their cycle of warfare, rebellion, and slavery. Dante knew two things. First, that he was no avatar, and second, that the keeper had played him like a reed flute. Jaw clenched so tight he thought his teeth would crease, he turned his gaze on the keeper. She remained on her knees, but gazed back at him from beneath her white brows, daring him to undo the moment she had created. He wanted to throw it back in her face spit on the coloner's prophecy, and walk away. A few years ago, he would have done just that. But he had led the city of Narashtivik through war. He knew what a moment like this meant. The morale of a people galvanized to their cause was more valuable than the finest steel. He closed his eyes. People of Colin, for ages, your future hasn't been your own. Instead, it's been at the mercy of Malish warmongers. Today, that changes forever. He opened his eyes. The crowd had lifted their heads, and their eyes shined like lanterns reflected in glass windows. They came to your land with soldiers, priests, demons. We've thrown them out, but they will come back just as they always do, unless you unite today unless you dedicate your every act to keeping the enemy at bay. Will you do this? Will you fight back? Will you claim your land for good? Are you really him? Hesitantly, a young woman raised her hand. Are you really Aron? The crowd seemed to hold its breath. Dante clenched his fists. I am just as you see. He drew the nether to him, in thin lines, letting it swirl around him like the black streaks of a Norrin ink painter lost in manic creation. And I've had enough. The woman made a choking sound. The others beside her burst into tears. Others thrust up their fists and shouted, at first, their words were a babble, but they soon resolved into a single, repeated word. Dante, 
Dante, Dante. He raised his fist. The chant doubled in volume. He meant to turn and go, but he stood transfixed, riding their emotion like a boat on the swells. What if Aron had brought him here? Was it that crazy of an idea? The prophecy was an almost perfect match. He was from Malin, the reborn shrine had been destroyed and, again, technically, rebuilt again, completing its cycle. He'd driven not just an army from Colin, but also destroyed an enormous demon. Yes, the prophecy also said that he'd arrive as an incarnation of Aron. But what if that was figurative? Wasn't his power with the Nether more godlike than mortal? He scanned the crowd, testing out a smile. A man was holding up a young child. Dante's eyes locked on the boys. He was blonder than Blaze, with the pale and piercingly blue eyes common to coloners. Unlike the rapt faces around him, who were awash with eager and unquestioning devotion, the boy regarded Dante with a calm stare, chin pushed up, mouth slightly puckered the clear expression of doubt. Dante laughed dryly. Physically, the boy looked nothing like him, but the emotion on the kid's face was exactly how Dante had so often felt when adults had tried to explain the world to him. He was no god. He'd come from the same humble place the boy had. To try to convince himself otherwise was to walk down the same path Gladick was on. I can help lift you toward your freedom, Dante said, but only you can reach up and take it. He turned his back on the crowd and walked from the square. People murmured questions to each other. Before their uncertainty could fall into fear, the keeper spoke out, her croaking voice booming through the square. Dante didn't bother to listen. He picked his way through the rubble of the shrine, joined by Blaze, who was as dirty as Dante was bloody. Where are you off to, Captain God? Blaze stepped over a severed arm. Got an afternoon miracle to attend? I'm going to find Naren. When were you planning to tell me about the Keeper's plan to add you to the Selaced? Dante's face flushed with anger. You think I knew about that? She pulled that off on her own? It was a stunt. She used me to fulfill the colonist's prophecy. In the wake of this, she'll be able to bring the entire basin to her banner. That's a masterstroke of cunning. You'll have to remember that one for the next time you're trying to manipulate someone into war. Blaze tilted his head back. If you didn't know about this, then why did you look so happy about it? Dante strode through a thin puddle of blood. Want to know the real reason I'm getting out of here? Because if I have to listen to one more of the Keeper's lies, I'll kill her myself. He tracked down a servant from the reborn shrine and got directions to where Neron was being treated. Dante was too exhausted to run, so as he walked toward the blacksmiths where they had Neron, he got a good look at the state of the city. Smoke rose on all sides. Some was from the city burning in the wake of the battle, but other plumes were from cook fires to feed prisoners and refugees starved during the Malish occupation.
The smell of herbed mutton and baking bread mingled with the stink of burning whitewash. The streets were strewn with garbage and debris, most of it so dusty and dingy that it must have been the product of the occupation rather than the day's battle. All of the corpses, however, were from that morning, an equal mix of coloners and malice. He looked down on the malice with the shallow pity of a commander regarding the enemy's dead grunts. He found that he felt little more than that for the dead coloners, because the keeper had alienated him, or because he'd seen such scenes so often he was beginning to treat them as part of the landscape. At the blacksmith's, a pair of colonies' soldiers stood out front, their spear-like wheels planted in the dirt beside them. Recognizing Dante and Blaze, the troopers brought them inside. Naren lay on a straw pallet. He appeared to be asleep, but at the sound of footsteps, he popped open a bloodshot eye. You're looking pretty good, Dante said, considering that the last time I saw you and you were being buried under an avalanche of rubble. Naren looked him up and down. And you look as though you just finished butchering a herd of cows. They say you destroyed an andrak as tall as a steeple. He had help, Blaze said. Anyway, don't tell me you've never had to destroy a steeple before. They're not as strong as they look, mostly because they don't fight back. Where is Gladick? Dante sighed. Gladick used an illusion to make his assistant look like himself. While we chased after the assistant, Gladick slipped into the plains. He could have been disguised as anyone. He's escaped. Again. Embers of anger flared in Naren's eyes, but they soon faded. Worn out, he leaned back on his pallet. Perhaps there is no avenging, Captain Twill. Better to go on with our lives than to throw them away by running after a man who can't be killed. He is a man, and that means he's as mortal as the rest of us. Besides, at this point, it isn't just Twill that needs avenging. He slaughtered thousands of innocent coloners. The only thing that's been saving him is the Andrak. Now that we know how to disperse them, Gladick's walking out of here in a dead man's boots. Naren reopened his eyes, turning them on Blaze. Do you agree with this assessment? Oh, sure, Blaze said. If there's one thing you can always count on Dante to get right, it's killing people. Dante kneeled beside the pallet. He'll have to head back to Bressel to report his failure here. We'll find him, Naren, and when we do, not only will I annihilate his body, but I'll erase the trace of his soul. With his body on the brink of quitting on him, he spent the rest of the day asleep in the third floor of an empty manor. He didn't think Gladick would send any assassins for him, demonic or otherwise, but he set undead rats to keep watch on the doors and windows. He dreamed of battling the great Andrak again. This time, as he tried to draw its nether to him, it only grew bigger, its mouth widening, the silver light inside it glaring so brightly it burned out his eyes. He awoke to darkness and singing. He walked out on the front porch. 
blaze was already there. The people were running through the streets waving burning bundles of wheat stalks, which they appeared to be trying to flick against the buttocks of their friends. Dante frowned. Are they trying to set each other on fire? This is a celebration, right? Looks more like a rebellion against the tyranny of pants. Blaze passed him a cup of the local beer. Dante took a hefty swallow. Is there anything weirder than foreign traditions? Yes, but I've just handed you a cup of the solution to any strangeness. Blaze tipped back his own mug. The keeper wants to see us. Before we do that, I consider it my moral duty to make sure you don't want to kill her. Mention of her name brought Dante's anger thudding into him like a punch. I'll try to restrain myself. The faster we finish up here, the sooner we can get the hell away. He expected the keeper to be lording it up in the ruins of her shrine, but Blaze led him to the carved arches of the immense underground well they'd used to swim in and out of the city. There, the shrine's surviving monks tended to the wounded and the sick, the latter of which were being carted in from every corner of the city. The gaunt faces and sharp collarbones told the story of the treatment they'd received under Malish captivity. The keeper met them, nodding stiffly, though that was more a function of her extreme old age than any disrespect. You have rested. That is good. There is much work to be done. Dante laughed humorlessly. You have no idea. I've been away from my city for months. I'll stay long enough to help heal your people. After that, I'm going to find Gladick, then return home. You intend to leave? Unless you've managed to relocate Narastevic onto the next butte, I have to leave. But you are the chosen one, prophesied to free the Colin Basin from the shackles of our mutual enemy. Are you sure we read the same prophecy? You're supposed to be freed by a lawn. You've seen me bleed way too much to believe I'm a god. Are you sure you weren't sent by him? Yes! Dante threw up his hands. I came here of my own accord. Do you know what noble intention brought me here? It certainly wasn't to liberate the poor people of the Colin Basin. It was to execute the son of a bitch who killed Mr. Neron's captain. Perhaps that was the step needed to lead you to your true cause. When the gods' minds turn, the world turns with them. I'm walking away, Keeper. If Aron wants me to stay, he can ask me himself. The old woman lifted her head. The roominess of her eyes made it hard to see what lurked behind them. For a man of the gods, you don't have much faith. Yet you put much stock in politics and strife. In that case, don't stay because of a prophecy. Stay because if you go, Colin will fall. Blaze coughed. Right now I expect he'd count that as a positive. Is that so? 
You lied to me, Dante said. Used me as a prop. And now you expect to wear me like a puppet, and for me to smile while your hand's up my ass. So she's heard the rumors then, Lay said. The keeper rasped with laughter. How many times have you done the same? I have heard the stories of the Chainbreaker's war, Galand. You used everyone in reach in service of yourself. We fought that war to free the Norrin, and it was sheer coincidence that Narashtivik was freed as well. I won't argue what we both know to be true, but I will tell you this. If you don't help us, Malin will return, and for our defiance, we will be destroyed. Dante lifted an eyebrow. Is that a promise? Perhaps I should put it in language you understand. Malin has no love for Narashtivik. There are rumors they intend to repay Samaran's invasion in kind. But they won't dare to make such a move if there is a strong, independent colon on their doorstep. Especially if our land is indebted to yours, and is happy to threaten their flank if they dispatch an army to the north. So your little scheme helps us both. How considerate of you. The best plans turn those who are indifferent into happy allies. If this was all so reasonable, why didn't you ask me first? I need my people to believe that this time things will be different, that we will finally be free. If I had asked your permission to invoke the prophecy, and you had denied me— their resolve would have faltered as soon as the Malish returned. She met his glare without flinching. I took the route that would make sure to forge them into steel strong enough to turn aside the coming blow. Would you have done any different? Dante rubbed his eyes, wishing he'd had a second beer before agreeing to see the keeper. I need to speak with Blaze. Without waiting for her permission, he stalked away from the well. Stars twinkled overhead, dazzlingly clear in the cool desert night. Blaze strolled along beside him, giving a smile and a nod to everyone he passed. Dante stopped in the shadow of one of the rune-carved stone posts. The smell of fresh water wafted from the well. What do you think? I think if you're bothering to ask my opinion, then you've already decided to change your mind about going home. What she's saying makes sense. Especially the idea of establishing Colin as a buffer between us and Malin. Yet you don't want to accept it, because you're so mad at her that you're tempted to set fire to Colin yourself. Not only that, but even if I were convinced it was in our interests to help, we've already been here for weeks— it feels like every time we're ready to leave, some new emergency draws us back in. Where does it end? Blaze shrugged. When you're out playing a game of thunders, when does that end? When you run out of coins, or everyone else does. 
Pretend for a moment you're not an utter degenerate, and in a much further leap of imagination that you have a wife. When you're out gambling, how do you avoid running into trouble with her? By setting a limit on how much I can afford to lose, Dante said, or on what time I need to be home by. So here you are, playing thunders with Colin and Malin. Back home, your wife, that would be Narashtovic, is starting to get worried. Soon her worry will become annoyance. How long can you afford to stay out before she uses the window to introduce your belongings to the street? It's just like gambling, isn't it? You lose ten chucks, and in trying to get them back you chase them with ten more. When those run dry, you throw out ten more. Soon enough, you've lost everything. Unless you set a limit. Even after reaching this conclusion, his spite was such that he was still tempted to walk away into the darkness, never to set foot in the Colin Basin again. He might have done so, if not for the hundreds of sick and injured people crowding around the well. Had the keeper chosen to meet in this location because she was tending to the casualties? Or because she knew that, seeing the citizens like this, Dante couldn't help but imagine how much worse it would be if Malin struck back. He'd built Narashtovic to be strong. It could last a little longer in his absence. He walked back to the keeper, hand resting on the hilt of his sword. You have decided, she said. It's autumn already, he said. Malin won't have time to mount more than one attack before winter ends the campaign season. We'll help until the first lasting snow. After that, Collins on its own. Chapter 2 After the keeper's manipulation, agreeing to continue aiding her tasted as bitter as a fresh-plucked Galador tea leaf. But the dose of comfort that came with making a decision was even more bracing than the effects of the Lakeland's leaves. Consolidating the Colin Basin's resistance against Malin wasn't only strategically wise, it was morally sound. If Dante could set aside his anger, in a few years he would look back on this decision with pride. I am grateful for your assistance, the keeper said. Yet by the time the lasting snows come to Colin, the Dundons will be locked beneath a blizzard. You won't be able to cross into Gask until spring. It would be safer to remain here. Dante rolled his eyes. Don't even try it. I'm not suggesting you spend the extra time waging war on the Malish. As you said, after the snows, the campaigning season will be over. We've crossed through the Wodens, Blaze said. Compared to that, getting over the Dundons is about as hard as hopping over a turd in the street. It was no more than a thought. The keeper bowed at the waist, pointing the crown of her grey head at Dante. 
If we succeed in plying the basin from Allen's claws, these people will never forget you. He scowled. She was getting too good at reading him. We just handed the Malish their own asses, along with a fork and a knife and a tin of pepper. Why are you so sure they'll send a second attack? They can't allow us to defy them. It would signal weakness to their other holdings. Worse, it would embolden their enemies. But mostly, they will return because we are Aron worshippers. Our victory defiles the body of their empire. When a wound festers, if you fail to treat it, it will claim the rest of the body as well. They might not be able to hit back right away. Especially if I can kill Gladick, they might have to wait until spring to organize their forces. Then that gives my people six months to prepare. Is it too late to make demands for our help? Blaise said. I'm going to require a steady supply of meat pies and something to wash them down with. In fact, make that three somethings. Dante turned to take in the darkened city. That's a good place to get started. To win a war, you have to secure three resources. Your land, your resources, and your allies. We need scouts in the field and troops ready to respond. The keeper lowered herself to a bench, massaging her knees. Field command is the duty of the despot and Despot Jod is dead. Then we need a replacement. Cord would make a good choice. We've already proven we can work with her. Despots aren't crowned like Malish kings. They are elected by the people. Then fake the election, if it will make you feel better. But remember that you declared me to be a god. As Aron's avatar, I declare that Cord will be my sword. The keeper examined him for signs of mockery, then made a tight line of her mouth. So be it. She went to speak to a messenger who hastened off through the night. Dante's stomach rumbled. To distract himself and improve his rapidly deteriorating mood, he joined the monks in tending to the casualties, sending the nether to mend the wounds of the suffering. He'd set five people to resting easily by the time the messenger returned with cord. Her blonde braid was a mess. Her eyelids were as puffy as kneaded dough, and she was covered in any number of scratches and bandages. Even so, she walked up to them with the same tireless energy she'd displayed ever since Blaze had dueled her on their arrival at Colin. When Dante explained they were staying to help stabilize the basin, she laughed and clapped her rough hands together. He couldn't help smiling back at her. But we aren't here to rule you. Colin needs its own leaders. We'd like you to become the new despot. Cord crinkled her forehead. The despot? I can't do that. We won't be here for more than a few months. Someone has to be ready to take the reins. You're one of the best soldiers in Colin. The others will respect you. I know you're up to the challenge. The keeper agrees with this. 
The old woman nodded. I do. Then I will lead the other soldiers. But I can't be despot. I can't run a kingdom any more than I can drink the well dry. To pretend otherwise is to disgrace myself, to let down my people. Then you'll join the proud tradition of every other leader since time began, Blay said, present company excluded, of course. It doesn't have to be permanent, Dante said. Right now the marshal's side is all that matters. You won't have to bother with policy. Once the war is over, you can step down and be proud of what you've done. Cord brayed with laughter. I think you mistake yourself for me. If you need me, I'll command our army. But I won't command our republic. Blaze swigged another beer. Dante hadn't even seen him get it. He was starting to suspect Blaze's true talents lay in the hidden art of brewermancy. Who cares about tradition? Blaze said. Just invoke the God Clause again. Cord can command the military while someone else handles politics. I nominate the Keeper. That can't be. Seated on the bench, the Keeper tugged her robe over her bony shins. I've spent decades in the shrine. I don't know the ways of our politics. Besides, there are things I must be able to do as the Keeper that I could not do as our leader. You know who knows even less about colonies politics? Me and Dante, the ex-Malishmen who've spent the last half of our lives freezing to death in Gask. So how about you tell us who's a good choice for administrator? Cord nodded once. Ked came with me. He will know. I will get him. She cupped her hands to her mouth. Ked! Ked! The man detached from a knot of soldiers and jogged over to them. Dante had first met Ked while saving the man's life from a mortal wound at the hand of Malish soldiers. This had turned out to be such a horrific insult that Ked had challenged him to a duel on the spot. Still, the man greeted them with a smile, apparently having put all enmity behind him. Ked! Cord motioned to the dark city. Great things are afoot. These people have named me commander of the military. Ked's eyebrows swung up his forehead. He took a knee. Congratulations, despot. Don't be a fool. If I were named despot, my first act would be to imprison those who thought I would be any good at it, as they are clearly a menace to right-thinking people everywhere. We need an administrator, the keeper said. Someone competent and respected enough to maintain control during the coming troubles. Ked folded his arms, nodding vaguely. I would have suggested Yora, but they executed her. What about Twain? Cord shook her head. Fell in battle, but his son would do just as well, yes? Well, yes, except that they dragged him off to Bressel to be tried for heresy. They ran through several other names, all of which had either died or gone missing. Cord set her fists on her hips. Greg, I saw him just today. That's not such a good idea. When the Malish were here, he showed them to our weapon caches. He aided the invaders. 
But why? There's only two reasons to do a thing like that, Dante said. The Malish offered to make him rich or make his people dead. Ked bobbed his head. Either way, he's out. The people won't trust him. They lapsed into a second silence. Blaze made a thoughtful noise. What about Boggs? Boggs Twill, Dante said. Captain Twill's brother. He didn't exactly strike me as a born politician. Which is probably why the coloners would go for him. Think about it. No one would ever question his loyalty. Not after what the malice did to Twill. Brother of a fallen hero. From a successful merchant family. Hard to imagine someone who could instantly command that much respect. And he already has a relationship with the Parthians, doesn't he? That ought to make it a little easier to get them aboard the victory wagon. This is a very cunning piece of politics, Dante said. Are you sure you thought of it? I haven't even finished. He's also got Twill's plans to extend the irrigation canals across the basin and into Path. If he does that, trade will explode. Say no more. I'm ready to declare the colony's golden age. And all we have to do first is thwart the giant empire that's controlled this place since the days when the gods were still learning to wipe themselves. After getting the enthusiastic agreement of Cord, Ked, and the Keeper, they dispatched a messenger to the Twill residence outside of Dog's Paw. Knowing it would be four days until Boggs, or his refusal, returned to the city, Dante sat down with Cord and Blaze to hash out the initial military strategy. The first order of business was to establish a scout network along the border, along with sweeps of the interior, to ensure that no Malish forces were hiding out in the vast, empty spaces between the settlements. Lookouts would be established along the King's Road from Malin and across the hills fronting the western border, with instructions to light a signal fire at the first sign of invasion. Next came the summoning of recruits from the basin's six major towns. Bound by their code of the wasp to support each other in times of war, their troops would provide a critical supplement to the city's battered army. The defense strategy itself was rather straightforward. Hole up in Colin. There was only a single road up to the top of the plateau, making it eminently defensible. Starting tomorrow, Dante would open most of a tunnel down to the plains. If the city was in danger of being overrun, he could complete the tunnel with a few minutes' work, providing the coloners with an escape route. Unless Malin's next force was small enough to meet in the open field, they would have to abandon the outlying towns. The small senates weren't going to be happy about that. The best Dante could do was suggest they make plans to withdraw their families, livestock, and valuables to the foothills of the eastern mountains, or into the deserts of Path, with a free-roaming regiment comprised of recruits from the six towns assigned to kill any Malish scouts who came too close. A couple of hours before dawn, Dante found himself falling asleep at the table. He excused himself to go to bed. Blaze did the same, walking with them toward the manor that was becoming their makeshift command station. Still think this is a good idea, Blaze said. I think I'd like to be sitting on the roof of the citadel watching the bay in the company of a large beverage. There's nothing keeping us here, you know. This isn't our land. These aren't our people. 
If you wanted, you could kill a few crows, reanimate them, tie their feet to a harness, and fly us back to Narastovic. You want to walk away? Careful. You're starting to sound like the old you. Blaze shrugged. Never hurts to remind yourself about your options. Dante detoured around an overturned wagon. I think we can do this. But if things turn south, we need a plan to get out of here. I'll get some packs of provisions and map out a route, one that doesn't involve the road into Malin. Dante slept heavily, waking to a lake of aches and pains that had swamped his body overnight. He was tempted to sweep them away with a brush of nether, but he didn't like the idea of pretending he wasn't susceptible to pain and exhaustion. That felt like a good way to breed delusions in himself. When an entire city was singing his praises to the sky, the last thing he needed was more grist for his ego. The keeper called on him while he was in the middle of a breakfast of toast and honey. The malice emptied the granaries. Her face was stony, her voice harder yet. There isn't enough left to feed the city for more than a few days. Dante swore. What can we expect from the six towns, the farmlands? Most of the crops were burned or pillaged. Gladick didn't come to occupy, he came to exterminate. Send riders out anyway. Bring back anything the towns can spare. In the meantime, get somebody to show me to one of the fields. Potatoes would be best. She gave him a curious look, then left the manor. Feeling a slight twinge of guilt, Dante wolfed down the rest of his food. The keeper returned with a dusty youngster dressed in the plain baggy clothing of Colony's farmers. Under other circumstances, the farmer likely would have appeared of man's age. But as he stared wordlessly at Dante, blinking repeatedly, he came off as about twelve years old. Dante scowled, catching on. The man believed he was looking at a divine being. Remember your business. The young man nodded once, by instinct, then again, understanding. He led Dante to the plaza at the top of the road, up the side of the butte. The day before, it had been the site of a pitched battle of ethermancers, infantry, and demons. Today, the bodies and much of the debris had been hauled off, but blood stained the paving sets, the color turning rusty as it aged. They headed down the switchbacks. Life had returned to the town at the bottom of the plateau. Soldiers sat beneath awnings, sharpening their blades, casting occasional glances at the lookouts posted on the road up the side of the butte. The farmer took a dirt trail out of town, then stopped, looking mortified. We don't got horses. Should I get some, Lord? By the time you find them and bring them back here and we ride out, will we have gotten there sooner than if we'd simply walked? Panic flashed in the boy's eyes. It's less than a mile, but I thought that I'm too delicate to use my own legs. The boy nodded hard and took up a brisk walk. Dante glared at the back of his head. Counterintuitively, 
It was much harder to get simple things done when the people serving you were terrified of being smote. It was a beautiful morning, though, making it difficult to stay mad. Some warmth in the air, though not unpleasantly so, with the sunlight so plentiful and yellow, it felt like you could scoop it up with a knife and spread it on toast. Birds twittered from the sagebrush. Ten minutes later, the boy brought him to a field next to a small branch of the canal system. The grey soil was so churned up, it looked ready to sow, but dying plants lay everywhere, most yanked up by the roots, others trampled. Seeing them, the boy's eyes curdled with a hollow sickness. Here they are. His voice wasn't much more than a whisper. Or what's left of them? Dante closed his eyes and reached into the soil. Most of the potatoes had been dug up and stolen by the malish pillagers, but others remained, along with the broken tendrils of their roots. He got out his favorite knife, the handle made of antler carved by a norin of unsurpassed skill, and cut the back of his left arm. Nether shot from beneath the flattened leaves. Black moats swirled around his blood with unusual agitation. Stirred up by all the deaths the day before? Or had the presence of the Andrak given them a kick? He plunged the shadows into the disturbed earth. The technique was still new to him, but it took little effort to convince the Nether to soak into the remaining tubers and roots. Unseen, they sprouted and expanded. Within moments, small green shoots broke the surface. Ah! The boy stumbled back, tripping over his own heels to land in a plume of dust. He swiveled his head between the plants and Dante. It's you that did that. We have a problem. Your people are about to starve. It's a little selfish of them wanting to eat food and everything, but I thought I would solve their problem by making some. He drew more and more shadows to him, channeling them into the ground and harvesting the field into an abundance of potatoes. By the time his strength flagged, the ground was carpeted with low green leaves, foretelling enough plants to feed thousands. Dante closed the flow of Nether. Get some workers out here. Tell them to leave one-tenth of the plants unharvested, and be ready to pick new ones every morning. The next day, in addition to potatoes, he grew a patch of wheat, which was the colonists' main staple. This grew tall and green, stalks wavering in the unsteady wind. This is quite a trick, making them bigger like that, Blaze said from beside him. If you could do the same for the male anatomy, you'd be the richest man in the world. Dante frowned. Could the technique be used on animals as well as plants? The Candaeans hadn't seemed to know how to apply it to beasts or people, but the fact a harvester could grow a seed into a sapling and a sapling into a tree, raised the question of whether you could do something similar with flesh. Sometime, he would have to try. Dante let go of the nether. The city lost nearly all of its stores and most of its crops. If I do this every day, and the towns have some to spare, that gets us closer. But to get through the winter, we'll rely on hunters bringing in deer, 
fishermen working in the canals and the river, and foragers scooping up anything else that can be chewed by human teeth. None of these activities being things we can do in the middle of a malish siege. Not unless we start building mile-long fishing poles. So what's the solution? Start eating each other? May I nominate we start with the old and the weak? We'll have to hope we can buy grain from Path, or fish from the Strip. The Strip? The coast south of Averoy. Several small cities, all of them independent. They'll sell to us. He grimaced up at the Butte. Although we might have to ask for a loan. The granaries weren't the only thing the Malish looted. He trudged uphill. As he entered the plaza at the top of the road, a girl of about fifteen years ran up to him, tugging a younger boy along behind her. He was smiling, but the girl looked like she was staring down from the edge of a cliff she knew she had to jump. Mr. Galland, your lordship, she made a curtsy. Deciding it would be rude to walk around her, he came to a stop. Can I help you? Well, that's the thing. My brother Earl, he's slow. In the head. I was hoping that maybe you could fix him. He was hurt during the fighting? No, sir. Born like this. She dropped Earl's hand, cheeks reddening. My parents used to take care of him, but we lost them. I can't do my work and look after him. Dante grunted. Why would you think I can change him? I heard about the miracle, sir. The miracle? You regrew the crops the soldiers destroyed. I thought if you could do that, you could help my brother, too. His heart sagged in his chest. He wished he'd followed his instinct to walk past her. If he was born like this, there's probably nothing I can do. But I'll try. She smiled, a fragile thing, and stepped to the side. Earl was still grinning, meeting Dante's eyes before dropping his gaze to Dante's shoulder. Dante moved his mind into the shadows, following them to the matter within the boy's skull. He'd examined plenty of brains, attached to both the living and the dead, and though he believed they were the seat of consciousness, perhaps where the trace resided, or the ether that comprised the soul, he had learned no more about them than any other organ. If it were diseased or hurt, he could mend its damage, grow new blood vessels throughout it, drive away the sickness. But as he moved through Earl's tissue, he saw nothing out of place. At first he was disappointed, but he quickly grew irritated at his lack of ability to solve the puzzle, pulling himself closer and closer to the nether until each fold of brain filled his vision. He finished his search. He tried again, forcing himself to go slow. At the end, he withdrew, head aching. I'm sorry, he said. I don't see anything wrong. The girl lowered her face, voice as soft as washed linens. Thank you for trying. She took Earl's hand and walked away. Blaze swore under his breath, then called after the girl. What's your name? She glanced over her shoulder. Nika. 
Well, Nika, the first thing to learn about gods like my friend here is they don't often listen to you. Even when they do, they usually can't do anything for you. Her eyes darted to Dante. I... Fortunately, Blaze continued, not every problem requires a miracle to solve it. Is your brother otherwise intact? Capable of physical labor? And strong, too. He never gets tired. Good news, because those idiots from Malin seem to think that buildings are for smashing down rather than for living in. There's rubble everywhere, and all of it needs to be picked up from where it is and set down somewhere else. He led the siblings away. Dante went to meet with Cord and the keeper to discuss the food situation. As they went over options for rations, including dire scenarios where there was only enough for soldiers and their vital support, he pictured Earl smiling at the sky as he was marched off into the wasteland. If a siege came, would they have the heart, or lack of it, to do what was necessary to survive? Four days after the messenger had left Colin, he returned with Boggs Twill. Boggs had the face of a man who spent most of his time outdoors in the low desert. That day, he looked even ruddier than usual. Dante hoped the news of his sister's death hadn't sent him on a drinking binge. Dante and the keeper laid out the situation. Boggs listened, face craggily unreadable. Administrator of the Colin Basin. He made a noise that might have been a laugh. Not very fair, is it? I did nothing to earn this. Then you'll fit right in with the malish nobility, Blaze said. There's got to be somebody with more experience. You have more than you think, Dante said. You've run your family's trade for years. Sing to the basin won't be so much different. Boggs rubbed his stubbled neck then shook his head. Maybe so, or maybe not. Either way, I ain't earned this. Someone else deserves it more. In a just world, power is handed to those who've earned it, and only when they're ready to wield it. Do you think this is a just world? If it was, would my sister be dead? Dante met his stare. Nothing prepares you for leadership of a people. None of us are ready. All you can do is trust yourself to learn your role as you go, to accept that you might not be the perfect choice, but you are the best choice. Right, Blaze said, and to understand that if you can't take on the responsibility, someone worse will. How about Gladick? He dead yet? Dante grimaced. He fled the city, but that's because he knew we'd learned how to kill him. As soon as Colin is secured, we're going after him. In other words, Blaze said, the sooner you help us get this place sorted out, the sooner we'll be able to present you Gladick's head as a drinking goblet. Bog swore. You two should have been barristers. Hand over the damn crown and tell me what you need me to do. Their first move was to dispatch official letters to Parth and to the towns of the strip of Alebolgia. 
It was likely the other realms had already heard of the Malish occupation, or would soon, so Colin's newly forged Council of Five decided to make mention of that in their request for trade. Revealing that information might weaken their bargaining position, but if it looked like they were trying to hide the fact they were in conflict with Malin, it might scare off their potential partners altogether. Once the letters were drafted, Dante leaned back in his chair. How much can we reasonably expect them to sell us? Paths always got more wheat and mutton than they need, Bog said, and the strips got as much fish as you can stomach. Between them, they could have us covered. But how much can we afford? Not enough. Until recent events, Malin's given us more freedom than normal. But they ain't stupid. They've been taxing us into the ground to make sure we can't take advantage of that freedom. What little coin we had left went into keeping our soldiers trained. A glum silence fell over the table. The keeper shifted her robes. What if Narashtovic were to loan us the funds? Dante bristled. Funding his lands was his most hated duty. He'd always been able to save more than Narashtovic spent, but the surplus could be wiped out by a single famine or conflict. No matter how reasonable the expense, whenever an advisor or council member brought him a bill, all he could think about was how much further it put them from financial freedom. Not possible, he said. The council's already unhappy with how long I've been away. If I tried to convince them to invest in a foreign war, their first order of business would be to build a new tower and then lock me up in it. She nodded, but she didn't look convinced. Then we will have to hope our neighbors are both reasonable and merciful. When they finished, Dante returned to his private chambers and got out his loon. He'd let Ollivander know about the outcome of the battle, but the last time they'd spoken, Dante had been operating under the assumption that he and Blaze would be leaving Colin within days. He clipped the bone earring to his ear and pulsed the connection. Dante. Ollivander's baritone voice was halfway out of breath. Around him, hoofbeats thundered. Is this vital? Decide for yourself. We think Mellon's going to make another attack on Colin. We're going to stay here and stop it. Ollivander sighed heavily. He called out to his men, excusing himself. The hoofbeats diminished. Can I ask why? Because we don't want to see everyone in the basin put to the sword. The world's a big place. At some point, someone or other is always being put to the sword. What business is it of ours if it's Colin's turn? Colin's on the brink of independence. If they fall, Malin's going to set their sights on us, both as punishment for intervening and to get us back for the war that Summerand made on them years ago. You might remember that one, since you were on her council. But if Colin breaks loose, Malin won't dare come for us with Colin right there on their flank. So you want to battle them in Colin, so we don't have to battle them in Narashtovic. That's an interesting idea. But it's built on the assumption that we have to fight them at all. This is the end of it, Dante said. Once the snows come, we're heading home. Ollivander sighed. 
I wish I could believe you. But every time you make a promise to return, the next time I hear from you, someone else needs saving. What are you? My wife? I give you my word. We'll be back in Narashtivik before the new year. The next few days were spent rebuilding. In the mornings, Dante used most of his power to grow crops, which were quickly harvested and brought up to the city. Whatever nether he had left, he used to raise ramparts or dig ditches for the defences Cord was building around the town at the base of the butte. One morning, on his way out to the fields, a messenger ran him down. The keeper had news. Dante climbed back up the road and found her waiting beneath an awning in the plaza. There is trouble at Kalim, she said. Senator Alda refuses to commit his town to the war. So what? Why don't the other senators overrule him? Some won't commit until he does. He owns much of the land around the nearby canals. The senators fear that if they oppose him, he'll raise their rents to intolerable levels. Get me a guide on a horse, Dante said. I'll sort him out. Within an hour, he and Blaze were riding out from Colin in the company of a young woman named Salia, a warrior recommended by Cord. Salia said nothing that wasn't directly related to the way forward. They rode north, trailing dust behind them, the air thick with the scent of sage. Low hills and small buttes interrupted the dry plains. It took a day and a half to reach Kaleen. Along the way, Dante grew a crop of grapes from a wild vine he found, which Salia marked on a map she kept. Kaleen was arranged much like Colin, though scaled down in every way, a pint-sized plateau with a village at its base and a town at its top. When they ascended, a canal sparkled in the sunlight. Green fields lined both banks. Presumably, these belonged to Senator Alder. Most of the buildings on the butte were simple wattle and daub structures with thatched roofs and hides stretched over the doors. Wood was always at a premium in the basin, but a few were elegant things of fired clay bricks. Salia took them to one of the largest of these. Inside, she waited in the foyer, while Dante and Blaze were brought upstairs to a room with a large window overlooking the desert below. Half an hour later, an older man entered through a side door, giving a glimpse of a cluttered study. The man's silver hair was slicked back from his forehead, a salt-and-pepper goatee bracketing his mouth. A paunch was visible beneath a blue silk shirt. Silver rings clicked on his knuckles. You must be Galand. He gave Dante a faint nod, then turned his attention to Blaze. And he is? My advisor, Dante said. We've worked together for a decade. He will remain outside. Dante raised an eyebrow, but Blaze only shrugged. You will regret this once you've seen what I've done to your kitchen. He left, closing the door behind him. Senator Alder strolled toward the window and gazed out at his holdings. Is your arrival supposed to frighten me? That depends, Dante said.
Have you done something to fear for? That depends. Should a man be afraid to stand up for the well-being of his home? The Code of the Wasp insists you join the fight. I'll assume you heard what the Malish did to Colin. Alder didn't turn from the window. It sounded like the typical treatment of occupied lands by a hostile army. Typical. I've been through several wars. I've never seen someone try to eradicate the population by feeding them to demons. Demons, swords, starvation. When the outcome's the same, what does the method matter? Why won't you commit to supporting Colin? Alder met his eyes, arching a brow. That's just it, isn't it? Whenever troubles come to the basin, it's Colin that needs aid. So he sends soldiers, food, coin. It's as much of a tax on the six towns as all the levies of the Malish. If Colin needs aid, I imagine it's because they've taken the brunt of the damage. Would you rather Malin besieged Kaleen? Yet they never do. Always they strike the city of Colin. Why? I could only speculate. All I know to be true is that the towns give and Colin takes. Dante's left cheek twitched. What do you want? You're here because you believe the Malish will return. When they do, I want Kaleen protected. You just said that they only go after Colin. There are times when they assault a second target as well. Besides, after their loss, they might rethink their strategy. Malin won't deplete their forces on the towns. They'll come straight for Colin. Once it falls, they'll regroup and pick you off one by one. Alder laughed airily. If you can scry on King Charles's mind, then we have nothing to fear. The Basin's army will be deployed wherever we can stop the enemy. If that means making a stand at Killeen, then we'll make a stand at Killeen. And if it means protecting Colin, you'll be happy to sacrifice us. I want a garrison. Two thousand men. That's far more than you'll contribute. If every town made that demand, then you could deny us. But they didn't think of it. I did. Thus I get the rewards. He turned back to the window. Speaking of such, I hear rumors that the canals are to be expanded. Not for crops, but for commerce. I will require a share. Ten percent seems reasonable. We're discussing the ruin of the Colin Basin, Senator. This isn't the time for negotiation. On the contrary, this is the only time Colin is vulnerable to the needs of Kaleen. That means now is the only time you listen. Here is my counteroffer, Dante said. Assist the war effort like the Code of the Wasp insists, and before I leave Colin, I'll spend five days making improvements to Kaleen, new canals, fortifications, whatever you want. 
or learn the price of betrayal. The senator examined him for a long moment, then broke into a smile. No. With ten percent of the new trade revenues, I can buy all the canals and fortifications I please. Can he? Dante said. All right. You have a deal. I presume you'll want a contract guaranteeing your share. Oh, indeed. My study is this way. He opened the door he'd come in through. The room beyond held a desk the size of a door. It supported a number of quills, parchment pages, trimming knives, and documents. You will be involved in the expansion of the canals, yes? May I ask what Narashtivik's cut will be? One senator. Dante plunged a knife of nether into the man's heart. Chapter 3 As soon as Rorschach freed her kids from the Citadel's dungeons, she headed for Herrick's. The walk through the city felt like it took half a day. Every time she passed a guardsman dressed in black and silver, she expected the cry to go out. She drew a few looks, but none more suspicious than would be extended to the average young woman leading a school of six children behind her. Herrick's yard was quiet. So was his house. Rosha's heart went cold. When Gates had kidnapped the kids, it would have made sense to kill the parents. None of them were anyone special. None would be missed. Leaving them alive would only make it easier to tie him to the crime. She told the kids to wait outside, then searched the house. Herrick was tied up under the bed, blindfolded, gagged. Was a wonder he hadn't suffocated. I'm sorry, he said once she'd cut him loose. Tears brightened his eyes. I was working in the yard, splitting wood. Didn't even hear them come up on me. Next thing I knew, I was under the bed, and Fed was screaming with all his lungs. This wasn't your fault. She jerked her head toward the front room. Fed's outside, along with five others like him. I'd keep them at my house, but it's going to be too dangerous. I'll take them, except I don't know how it'll be any safer here. It won't be. You're going to take them into the woods. The only people who'll know where you are will be me and my runner. Not that she had any idea who that runner would be. After what Gates had done, she didn't know who she could trust. Not with something this important. No matter. If she had to, she'd do it herself. Tell me where, Herrick said. I won't let you down. The eight of them struck out for the woods. The pine forests were lousy with abandoned cabins and shacks. Most were two ruins to serve as a shelter, and some were occupied by vagabonds, but Herrick spent plenty of time coming out to hunt or cut wood. He led them to a house big enough to fit them all. You'll follow Herrick's orders, Rosha told the children. I'll let your parents know you're okay, and I'll be back as soon as it's safe. That much was a lie. She'd be back soon enough, but she wasn't sure that it would ever be safe again.
Once she was back in the city, she called Anya into her office and explained how Gates had sold them out. He betrayed the entire order. The wonder and loathing in Anya's voice was the most emotion Rasha had ever heard from her. I hope you made his death a slow one. Faster than he deserved, Rasha said. But I had to make sure his schemes couldn't do us any more damage. What are we going to do about this? Call another meeting with the little knives. Gates might be dead, but that doesn't mean the Citadel's done with us. She sent a messenger to Vess. The letter was enough of a tease that Vess demanded to talk that same night. As before, they met in the garden courtyard of the Temple of Urt. This time, rather than Gates, Rasha took girls with her. Vess eyed the heavy-set bouncer. Where's your other man? The smirky one. Gates is dead, Rasha said. He was working with the Black Star. Traitor under your own roof? Nothing hurts worse. You kill him yourself? Rasha nodded. And tracked down the Black Star. A woman named C. She works for the sealed citadel. All the sons of all the bitches. The citadel? Rasha explained. As with Anya, she left out all the parts involving her own abilities in the shadows, sticking to Gates and his betrayal. We'll have to work together, Rasha concluded. Neither of us can fight the citadel alone. Vess rocked with laughter. Oh, God's damned Gaskin Empire couldn't fight the Citadel. We can't declare war on them. Why not? Same reason the fleas don't declare war on the dog. We bite much harder than fleas, Rasha said. If we do this right, they'll never know it's us. Vess tipped back her head and stared at the branches hanging above them in the courtyard. Fall was coming and the first of the leaves had started to turn. No, she decided, ain't doing. Fighting soldiers is one thing, but the Citadel, they got sorcerers. Long as they got the monopoly on magic, they got the monopoly on victory too. I suppose you're right. Then we'll have to back off. After one last heist. The woman frowned. Of what? You've heard of the cycle of Aron? I heard of rain, too. Ignorant me even heard of dirt and fish and wind. There's a copy in every temple in the city, Rasha said. But rumor has it that when Galand came to Narashtavik, he brought the original copy with him. Think it'll fetch a pretty good price, huh? Think bigger. Rumor has it, when someone with the talent reads the original copy, it unlocks the nether within you. Vess thrust out her jaw and beetled her brow. You believe it? I don't believe it, Rasha said. I know it. You want to put an end to their monopoly? This is how you mean to take revenge, ain't it? And you don't care if it takes ten years. 
As long as they can wield Thanetha and we can't, we'll always be vulnerable to them. Rosha stared into Vess's eyes. This is about more than revenge. It's about survival. The stout woman thought a moment, then chuckled slowly. I would ask what they'd do to us when they learned we was playing with shadows, but they already tried to kill us all, eh? What we got to lose? Let's steal ourselves a book. He left Colin behind him like the hive that it was. For hours, he was incapable of sustaining a thought for more than a few seconds at a time. Walking in the guise of a common soldier, trudging through dust and sagebrush and yellow grass that flung its unwanted seeds at his trousers like a mother delivering her tenth child to the steps of a monastery, he grew worried about his mind's lack of command. He had donned the look of a common man. Had he donned the wits of a common man as well? With sunset coming, and no report of pursuit from the scouts, Gladick dropped his disguise. Instantly, he felt better. Of course, much remained wrong. Disaster had unfolded in Colin, one that ran as deep as any of the fears he harbored in the midnight hours. Not only had he lost the city, and the entire basin with it, but he'd lost the only tool he had to recapture these places. The Andrak. It felt impossible. It was impossible. This had to be a fever dream. A test laid upon him by Tame. Yes, he was lost in the throes of a vision, one of utter disaster. If his faith faltered, it would prove that he was not worthy to lead tame spanners across Colin. Yet the ground beneath his feet felt real. The night smelled of the desert. The men around him looked weary, their gear clunking in the most mundane rhythms. His defeat was real. His duties rabbled before him like a legion of devils. There seemed no way past them. His failure ran so deep it was possible the king might see fit to execute him. The thought gave him a horrible thrill. To have done with it. Yet to end one's life, even to wish for death, was a crime against Tame's law. With a shudder, he imagined a boot. Then he pictured the boot stamping the thought of suicide to a bloody smear. He had many tasks, but his first was to ensure his survival. Horstad, he said to the stocky young man who moved to attend him, prepare to take a letter. My name is Liam Alden, said the man. His eyes shifted. Horstad never return from the city. Gladick jolted with discombobulation. Had he known that? Does it matter who records the words I speak? Fetch parchment man. Liam's eyes widened. He retrieved writing implements from his saddlebags, including a board to back the parchment. 
Gladick cleared his throat and began a missive to the Eldor. By the time he concluded his speech, he couldn't remember more than a fraction of what he'd said. It was as if Gladick's memories belonged to someone else. Panic seared through his veins. And then he remembered that he was a lord, and simply ordered Liam to repeat what he'd just transcribed. Gladick feared his words would be babbling madness, but they sounded like every other report of a sudden defeat. Surprise, dismay, anger at one's foe, but mostly the conviction that one had only lost the day due to a stroke of poor fate, one that could be overturned by a second effort. For there would be a second attack. Wouldn't there? Hadn't everyone in the palace doubted his ability to take Colin in the first place? His initial success had been nothing short of a miracle, undeniable proof that he bore the will of the gods with him. Yet what could it mean that he had now lost the basin? Did that mean he had lost Tame's favor as well? They marched on into the darkness. As the night deepened, the soldiers diverted from the road to make camp in the cover to be found between two hills. Gladick's mind and body were exhausted, but after an hour in his bedroll, even the common victory of sleep still eluded him. His teeth had been clenched for so long, his jaw was stiff. He removed himself from his tent, ignoring the glances of the sentries as he walked into the brisk desert night. Thousands of stars shined down from above. The air was so thick he felt sure he could hear a whisper from ten miles away. There were crickets, yes, and the furtive rustling of mice and the green grass that had sprouted here and there since the rains. He breathed the cold air through his nose. Sage, dew, dust. If the desert was a temple, then these scents were its incense. The constellations were the murals of its ceiling. Gladick had no love for the voluptuous lushness of the woods, nor the inconstancy of the sea. The severity of the high mountains carried an austere appeal, but their size and height seemed to embody a form of immodesty. The desert, however, claimed to be no more than it was. And while it could be every bit as harsh as the mountains, those who devoted themselves to its ways could find revelations beyond mortal knowing. He walked for some time. With each ridge he crested, he grew angrier that the coloners, blessed with this landscape, had allowed themselves to grow so twisted and foul. He had thought he'd found the answer to their profanity, yet his efforts had evaporated like all water that fell on the desert. So many others had found visions in lands such as this. He knew many in Bressel itself who claimed to have heard the voice of Tame, or the other lesser gods. Gladick suspected they were lying. He himself had never heard a clear word from those above, 
but the idea these people were telling the truth gnawed him to the bone. At last, surrounded by nothing, miles from the next living soul, he stopped in a field and tipped back his head to the stars. Father Tame, he whispered. A breeze hissed through the thorns of the tumbleweeds. I am your servant, your dog, your hand and your blade. I beg you, put me to use. For a moment, he felt as though a hand was reaching down from the sky, as if to touch his face. He closed his eyes. Then, for feelings were traitors. The sensation passed, as did they all. He opened his eyes, lowered his head. He wept. His tears fell to the greedy dust, absorbed without a trace. So even this was taken from him. Why had the gods let this happen? How could it be just? Was it proof that they weren't. He looked up again. The stars twinkled on, but there was nothing else there. What if there were no gods? The same thrill shot through his spine that he'd felt on thinking about an end to his life. He gazed on the idea with a raptness that was, ironically, almost holy. Yet just as it had been before, that thrill was a sign of wrongness, a physical pleasure meant to distract his mind from identifying the lies before it. He backed away from the godless thought, as if it was a sucking vortex. There were plain truths. The gods were real, and Tame was just. Therefore, if Gladick had won Colin because of his own righteousness, his own virtue, his loss of the basin could only be due to the fact that he had stepped off from the path. Tell me what I have done wrong. He thrust his fists to the side. Help me, father. Help me return to your light. His voice died in the desert. The stars gave no answer. Was he beyond all use? Nothing more than the dried husk of a fruit that had no sweetness left to it? Shakily, he drew his dagger and placed its blade against his neck. If he was of no more use to this world, then let him join the gods. The knife parted his skin. He gasped at the pain. His eyes stung with tears, then cleared. And so did his mind. Tame couldn't give him the answer. To do so would be to strip mortals of all agency. If the gods merely handed you what you needed to correct your errors, then the journey back to the path was over, before it began. He dug his fingers 
into the dust. He had lost himself. In order to be filled with holiness, one first had to make oneself a worthy container. Feeling like a child, he cried again, this time in joy, for he knew what he must do. There were greater horrors in the world than what he had seen in the Colin Basin. He would stand against them. He would defeat them. He would save a people who had been damned for centuries. And he would become pure. Chapter 4 Senator Alder gawked at him. The older man staggered back from the desk, arms bowed from his sides. Blood pumped from the hole Dante had cut into his heart. The senator blinked once, then twice, then collapsed on the floor. Dante moved into the nether within his body, confirming he was dead. He turned to the desk, grabbed one of the ink-stained knives used to trim quills and cut coins of sealing wax from larger cylinders, and jammed the blade into the hole in the senator's chest. Blood washed over the knife. Dante rifled through the pages on the desk until he found one bearing the senator's signature. The handwriting matched. He seated himself, took up a quill, and unstoppered a bottle of ink. Years of scholarship had left him with keen penmanship. Additionally, in his early years in Narashtavik, he'd often been assigned the duty of copying manuscripts. In a sign of respect, he'd done his best to match the handwriting of the original author. Within a few minutes, he had a passable imitation of the senator's hand. He composed a note, matching its rhythms to the man's speech and the writing to the letters on the desk. He signed the man's name, stepped into the brightly lit viewing room, and checked himself for blood. He didn't see so much as a drop, but summoned the nether to him to ensure he hadn't missed any. It floated around him in disinterest. There were a few blots of ink on his right hand, however, which he wiped clean on his cloak. After a moment of thought, he entered the study and dabbed ink on the senator's hand. This done, he flung open the outside door of the viewing room. Help! The senator's hurt! Doors creaked open. Voices and footsteps rang through the stone corridors. Dante returned to the study and kneeled over Alder's body, drawing a wash of shadows to him and rendering them starkly visible. As three servants piled into the room, he poured the nether over the man's chest, making it writhe and flow. A man in a blue vest made a choking noise, circling around the body. What has happened? Dante didn't answer. Instead, he grimaced, summoning a second flock of shadows to join the first. The blood oozing from the wound came to a stop, but Alda remained as motionless as a fallen log. Dante crouched next to the senator, putting his hand on the man's chest. He summoned a third wave of shadows that soon disappeared. It's no use. Dante moved away, then sat heavily in a chair 
cradling his sweaty face in his now bloody palms. I'm sorry. Sire, the servant's voice was shaky. Can you tell us what happened here? We were discussing the war. After a while, he excused himself to his study and closed the door. He was in here for close to ten minutes when I heard a thud. When I called the senator's name, he didn't answer. I found him like this. I thought I could revive him. The servants exchanged looks. One jogged from the room. The man in the blue vest made a search of the room, soon finding the letter. He read it, whispering the words out loud to himself. Sire, he said, have you read this? Dante swung up his head, frowning. Read what? The letter was steeped in regret. The senator, as it turned out, had been bought off by Gladick, the very man waging war on the basin. Dante's visit implied the coloners had discovered his treasonous pledge. Aldo's suspicions had been confirmed when Dante made mention of their interrogations of malish prisoners of war. Senator Alda had only seen one way out. Do you really think they believed it? Dante shrugged. They let us leave, didn't they? Blaze snorted. Because they bought the story, or because they feared that if they tried to hold you captive, you'd turn them into toads, and then turn their families into flies and make them eat the flies? They don't know what to think, so they let us walk away. Over time, they'll convince themselves he was a traitor, and that I try to undo his death. That's the only way they'll be able to absolve themselves of their guilt. Blaze considered the dusty horizon. I think I'd feel better about humanity if it was because of the toads. A day and a half later, they were back in Colin. Dante washed off the dust, ate a hot meal, then met with the keeper. He laid out what he'd done, making no attempt to lie, minimize, or rationalize his actions. Her jaw quivered with anger. You were sent to convince the senator of his duty, not to murder him. I wasn't sent, Dante said. I went. My job was to unite the basin. Now that he can't extort the other senators into withholding their votes, they'll pledge for war. He was an elected leader. There were other ways. I know exactly who he was. The other senators wouldn't support us because Alda owned the farmland around the canals. I could have promised them that I'd dredge them canals of their own. That would have allowed them to vote for war, cementing their allegiance to Colin. Then why did you kill him? He was trying to extort you while you're in the middle of a war for your survival. He was a snake keeper. Did Colleen deserve to be ruled by a man like that? The keeper spoke through gritted teeth. No, he abused his power. He served himself rather than his people. Then I did you a favor. They'll suspect it was you. Big deal. He was the type of person who would sell himself out to Gladick. 
When we win the war against Malin, and your people are delirious with freedom, you'll see how fast they forget their petty old grudges. Dante believed his words, but he left the briefing feeling uneasy. To himself, he'd admit that he'd brought a barrel of anger into his dealings with Alder. Was that anger providing clarity of action, or a reckless lack of regard for morals? Had he killed the senator to strengthen the basin, or to punish the keeper? The evening of the same day, a rider arrived from Killeen. The senate had met. They would honor the code of the wasp. The towns were united. The scows confirmed the defeated Malish army had crossed the border into their own land. Dante tried to send undead moths and rabbits to confirm their return to Bressel, but much as the looms had broken when they'd been brought too far away from each other, there were limits to how far his spies could roam. At twenty miles, their vision and hearing grew spotty. At forty, his connection to them was lost. To ensure they weren't in danger of an immediate sneak attack, he spent two days on the border, moths flapping this way and that. He didn't spy any massed Malish soldiers, but he did get a feel for the hills, plains, and dotty pine forests between the two lands. The King's Road was the simplest path across the space, but an army could take any number of routes. There wasn't much favorable terrain for colonists to make a strong stand on either. Seeing it from above, Dante better understood why the basin had had such a hard time defending itself. There were no armies, but he did find a walled fort a few miles across the border. Hidden in Londren Forest, it was practically big enough to be a castle. Presumably, it stood as the first line of defense against colonies' attacks, but at the moment it was staffed by no more than a few score soldiers. They weren't a threat to anything beyond the local highwaymen. Needing eyes in Bressel, Neron used the loon to order his crew in the city to make a regular circuit of the pubs, ears sharp for news. At Colin, soldiers from the six towns arrived in droves, training and maneuvering on the plains below the butte. Hunting parties brought back deer and rabbits. Dante grew a new crop each day. They managed to set aside a fraction of the food, but if it came to a siege, they wouldn't last more than a week. Other than growing food and consulting with Cord, Boggs, and the Keeper, Dante found himself with a good deal of free time. He spent some of it exploring the caverns where Gladick had been sacrificing colonists to his demons. Dante found little of physical interest, but it did provide him with plenty of traces. The stains of death left deep inside the nether. To see them, he first had to get Blaze to walk into the shadows and illuminate them with the light of Dante's torchstone. For whatever reason, exposing them to ether from inside the nether world made them visible in the physical world. If normal nether flitted around like songbirds, the tracers set about like stones. But they were drawn madly to blood. Dante spent hours watching them move. If you combined enough of them together, for Dante had taken as few as six, they would become a tiny andrak, a demon thirsty for human blood. 
What did that imply about the traces? Their nature and origin. Did everyone have a little bit of demon in them? Is that why, when you gathered people into a mob or a tribe, where all those little bits came together, they were capable of pushing each other into horrendous acts? Or was he confusing cause and effect? What if committing an evil act caused the body to produce a drop of tainted nether? It seemed possible to test the theory by killing a few evil men and comparing the size and density of their traces to those left by good-hearted people. The outcome of such a test would answer many questions about human nature. Yet the test itself would be evil, depending on murder as it did. Dante had to content himself with writing down his theories and observations, along with his questions. If he couldn't answer them in his lifetime, perhaps later generations could build on his writings to reach answers of their own. He was in the caverns, meditating on these matters, when he was summoned to the butte to meet with the Hand, the nickname Boggs had bestowed on the five-person governing council of Colin. Their meeting that day was held on the balcony of the shrine, where Cord had received her warrior training. It was another pleasant, sunny day, but Boggs looked ready to punch someone. Our invoice are back. Dante grabbed a seat next to Blaze. Both of them. Don't take it for a good omen. Path and the Strip are both spinning the same story. Can't help us. Blaze blinked. Neither one has any extra food. Was there a series of plagues that everyone forgot to tell us about? They know this is about Malin, Bog said. They also know that whenever they've helped us in the past, we've gone on to lose the war, and Malin's gone on to make them pay. The keeper rubbed her bony knuckles. They are wise to fear. During the third scour... When it looked as though we would finally break our chains, Path sent spearmen to our aid. After Colin fell, Malish pillagers marched through fifty miles of Parthian towns before they'd had their fill. Dante leaned his elbows on the table. I presume our envoys spoke to their official leadership. What about the black market? Our people looked into that, not worth the cost in coin or in political capital. We try to run an end-around on their decrees by stuffing the purses of their criminal element, and they're apt to shun us completely, or even join the other side. Making an enemy is worse than starving to death. That pits us against Malish swords, Parthian spears, and Elebulgian bows. We wouldn't live long enough to starve. Blaze swore. Why don't we relocate Colin to the middle of path? Then they'd have to feed us and protect us. Is there anyone else we can go to? Dante said. Boggs pulled a face. It's Malin to the west, mountains to the east, and arseholes to the south. That leaves the north. Cord motioned across the plains. What about Narastovic? Dante made a series of calculations. Wagons wouldn't make it, 
Both the Riverway and the Holos Pass are in Malice territory. What about boats? You want to send boats around the continent during the winter storms? I thought the idea was to get food to Colin, not the bottom of the sea. Blaze got to his feet, pacing around the balcony. We can't ship it in from afar. We can't buy it from a near. We can't grow enough on our own. What else do we do? Send everyone out to dig for beetles? Beseech the gods for a rain of bread? We could send Naren back to the plagued islands. If we could convince a few harvesters to come help us, it could be enough. There's an idea. Assuming that the Kendaeans are willing to send their sorceress to a distant land for no reason, and that Naren's crew is willing to pretend the seas aren't full of winter typhoons. Dante shook his head. Is that really the best we've got? We could always go back to Malin for help. Maybe they'll be sporting about it. Blaze drew back his head. Wait, why don't we do that? Well, first of all, because they'll kill us. That fort you saw in London Forest. You said it's huge, but there's hardly anyone there. Suppose they've kept it stocked. I don't know, Dante said, but I know how to find out. Two days later, the Hand and a small contingent of soldiers and scouts came to a stop in the eastern fringes of the Londren. Technically, they were within Colin's borders, but Dante doubted if Malin recognized those any longer. It was already dusk, which suited Dante's purposes. A colonies soldier lit a lantern to make a camp by, drawing several oversized moths to whirl around the flame. Dante killed two of them with pins of nether, then thought about bats and killed all four. A pulse of shadows reanimated them to his command. He sent them flapping up through the canopy, headed west across the forest. Along the way, one of them winked out, eaten by a bat or an owl. The other three made it to the fort. Torches and lanterns burned within it, illuminating the sentries on the walls. The yard within was quiet. There, three wooden buildings were elevated on low stilts to discourage the entry of rats, mice, and other vermin. Granaries. They were windowless, but the door frames were warped enough for the moths to slip through the cracks. They're stuffed, Dante said to the camp. I'm looking at several tons of barley and wheat. He withdrew the moths and made a circuit of the fort, relaying its fortifications, troops, and civilian count to cord and bogs. Getting a good look from above, he sketched out a map. A garrison of forty men, the keeper croaked. I am no tactician, but I'd think we could overrun them with what we've brought here. Dante made a quick count of their troops. We could, but we don't have the wagons to get the grain out. Should we summon them? Dante lifted his eyebrows at Cord. Your call, General. Speaking of wagons, Blaze said, let's not put them before the horse. Do we know for sure that Malin is going to make a second attack? 
The only thing we know for sure is that we won the last battle and Malin hates to lose. But it's possible the war's already over and we just don't know it yet. It's possible. And it's also possible that King Charles himself will bake us an apology cake to make up for his silly little invasion. Let me put it another way. He gave Dante a slap in the face. There, I've slapped you. What's your natural response? Dante glared. To punch you back. Twice. Exactly. Alan might be back either way, but that's no more than a guess. But if we ride into their border fort, slaughter everyone there and rob all their stuff, we can guarantee their army will be here before the snows are. You have a point. The keeper stood from her seat on a bench. If we don't do this, and they come for us, we will starve. Malin hasn't earned the benefit of the doubt. We know their history too well for that. We must secure our survival, even if that means guaranteeing war. Cord, Dante said, you need to think long and hard about whether this is a risk you're willing to take. There's nothing to think about. Cord drew her sword, pointing it toward the darkening sky. Malin has stolen from us for centuries. Taking this from them won't begin to repay their debt, but it will show our honor far and wide. To who? To those who doubt us, to the gods themselves. Since when did honor need an audience? She'd acquitted herself so well during the fighting that Dante had nearly forgotten about her colony's mores, most of which involved dancing in showers of malish blood. It doesn't have to be a fight, Dante said. I could open a tunnel under the walls and up through the granaries. Right, Blaze said. Then all we have to do is pray their frontline soldiers are too stupid to miss the enormous caravan waiting to be loaded up outside. It can be a long tunnel. With a few days, I could make it a mile long. Meaning we have to haul tons of grain out through a mile of cramped tunnel. How many years do you suppose that would take? I suppose you've got a better idea. Of course I do, Blaze said. All we need is a little help from Gladick and the King of Malon. They were close enough to Bressel that Dante could smell its river and sewers. A little unnerving to be so near to the center of the enemy's power, but they were currently in a completely unremarkable patch of forest two miles outside the city, and he didn't intend to get any closer. A swarm of gray moths and blue butterflies winged toward the city. Some headed for the spires of the king's keep, Others flitted toward the Cheney, the great rectangular tower where Dante and Blaise had been imprisoned a few months earlier, or toward Gladick's personal temple, where they'd encountered their first Andrak. The moths entered through open shutters and landed on the walls. Wary for priests, who could detect the nether linking him to his spies, Dante sent the dead insects further into the keep, prison, and temple. By following the best-dressed servants on their errands, he soon found the king's chambers. 
A butterfly scooted inside in the wake of a man with a serving tray. While the king took his meal, the butterfly hastened to the study. It landed on the desk and took a good look around. Got it, Dante said. Handwriting and the seal. He made a careful sketch of the seal, which included a hawk, the symbol of King Charles's Sarlinian family, soaring over a stylized image of waves, plains, and mountains, which represented the vastness of Malin. Naren started to carve the sketch into the end of a stumpy rod of wood. He claimed to have become an expert whittler to pass the time during long voyages. Dante turned his eye to the handwriting. He would have preferred to have it right in front of him, but he imagined his view would be clear enough to suffice. He took down a sample of letters and words. Fastidious though he was, by the time he finished, he still hadn't seen hide nor hair of Gladick. Aware that it could take days to find the priest, if he was in Bressel at all, Dante turned back with the others, striking eastward through the forest. On the off chance of spotting Gladick, he left his insects behind, but he knew his connection to them would fall apart before they reached the Londren. We really need some proper spies, he muttered to Blaze. I'll lose these in a day or two. Besides, bugs can't ask questions or take things. Sounds like what you really need is some undead raccoons. Blaze glanced behind them. Suppose Malin has spies in Narashtivik. That's a troubling thought. Because the answer's yes, isn't it? The next day, they entered Londren Forest, rendezvousing with a colony's caravan half a day's ride from the fort. Seeing the caravan was a jolt to the heart. All of the teamsters and soldiers were dressed in the blue of the Malish military. In fact, their uniforms had been taken from the dead in Colin. Cord lifted her arm. Were you successful? Blaze brushed dust from his shoulder. I'd hope so. If we have failed, we're being so nonchalant about it that I don't like our chances going forward. I hoped you wouldn't be, so we would have no choice but to battle them. Still, I see the wisdom in this. She grinned savagely. Besides, the Malish think they're so smart. Tricking them will taste sweet in its own way. They joined the caravan and made way for the fort, stopping at sunset to eat and kill a few hours. A half hour before they were ready to move on, Dante climbed inside an empty wagon. He sat in front of a reasonably clear mirror and blew on his torch stone, lighting the interior with a pale glow. He made a small cut on his arm, called the nether to his hands, then directed it to his face. He used the shadows to carve new features over his own, long and cadaverous, the skin pale, the eyes deep-set coals. He whitened his hair and extended his height several inches. Last, he donned a long gray robe. He emerged from the wagon and turned in a circle for Blaze. What do you think? Blaze laughed out loud. But I hope I die before I ever look that old. It's the spitting image. 
Unless his mother's manning the wall, this just might work. Dante smiled and gathered the others to him, including the Teamsters, they numbered over thirty. Remember your jobs. Speak as little as possible. A man raised his hands. What if the soldiers ask us questions? Pretend you hold them in the deepest contempt, Blaze said. Hang on. They're malish. You won't even have to pretend. They struck out along the rutted road toward the ford. The autumn night grew chilly, thick with the scent of dew. Leaves were falling everywhere, mulching under the wagon wheels and crackling underfoot. Dante was glad they hadn't tried to sneak up. They took a northern fork of the road. An hour later, lights flickered ahead, outlining the ten-foot stone walls of the fort. When they drew within two hundred yards, silhouettes appeared over the gates, watching them progress. Dante motioned the caravan to a stop twenty feet from the banded wooden doors. Hello! A guard leaned over the top wall. He gave the wagons a long look, then peered down at Dante. Bit late for a visit, isn't it? My name is Auden Gladick, Dante said in his best imitation of his foe, dredging up a proper Brazilian accent. I come by order of the king. King Charles? Dante stared up at him in disgust. Too aggrieved to speak, he removed a letter from his robes. It was sealed with blue wax, stamped with the king's hawk. The guard frowned and lowered a wicker basket on a string. Dante set the letter inside. The guard drew it upward, thumbed open the wax, and read, haltingly, tracing his finger along the words. Done, he leaned over the top of the wall. You need all of it. An allowance will be made for your men, Dante said. Nine-tenths will leave with us. The guard scrunched his mouth to the side. Oh, I don't have the brains for this, Orden. Pardon me while I fetch Spalder Nichols, yeah? Dante stood stiffly, doing his best to appear affronted. Three minutes later, the gates creaked open, revealing a middle-aged man in a grey robe. The orange trim marked him as a spalder. Strange to see a man of such rank out in the wilds. Either he was being punished for something, or the fort was more important than its meagre garrison implied. Orden Gladick. Nichols bowed, bending one knee. Forgive my surprise. I thought you were to be on your way to Tanara Tain by now. Who tells you that? Oh, I can't remember. Surely you know how well whispers travel within the cloisters. I was recalled. To requisition grain from my outpost? Nichols smiled archly. You seem overqualified for the task. Orden. Then a man of reason would infer the matter's importance, and help me to achieve it. Of course, Lord. The priest stepped aside, gesturing sweepingly. As the carts rattled into the bailey, Nichols remained at Dante's arm. 
May we speak in private, Lord? Dante made a dismissive gesture. Now is not the time. It will take a great deal of time to fill your wagons, Auden. I believe the matter will be to your interest. It involves the rebels. Dante glanced at Blaze, who was lingering near the gates disguised in soldier's garb. Blaze gave him the smallest of nods, watching from the corner of his eye as Dante crossed the bailey with Nichols. They entered a plain stone building that appeared to serve as the fort's temple. Stray leaves gathered in the corners. Nichols brought him upstairs to a cozy room with a lit fireplace, two shelves of books, and a great deal of maps. Nichols offered him a seat, then tea. Galadies, Dante said. I wasn't aware there was another kind. Dante said nothing. He'd forgotten that before Galador had spit from Gask, tea had been unknown in Malin. You said you had news from the basin. The Spalder nodded, rubbing his jaw. His chin was as smooth as the tabletop. Tidy. Kept himself in order. Which meant that the unswept leaves downstairs implied his men disliked him. The Colin Basin, Nichols said, as if savoring the flavor of the words. They call it the riddle that cannot be solved. You believe otherwise, don't you? A riddle cannot be a riddle unless it has an answer. At Grayson Fort, we are happy to take in travelers and refugees. It's a way to carry goodwill, but it's also a way to gather news. What I hear from such people makes me believe you've found the solution to the colony's riddle. It's like when a blight takes a field, isn't it? The only way to save the field and the others around it is to burn it. Dante let a moment pass. If a house is built on a rotten foundation, it is doomed to collapse. The second campaign, they brought you back to lead it, didn't they? Second campaign? Nichols smirked. The king's already called in new levies. The training grounds are filled from dawn to dusk. Our lord saw how close you came, and he believes you can be the one to finally prize the arrow from Malon's side. You said you had news. Though it was beyond obvious they had the room to themselves, the Spalder glanced left and right, as if afraid of being overheard. He leaned closer. He opened his mouth to speak, then clicked it shut. A tendril of ether slipped from his hand, to probe the nether surrounding Dante. The nether rippled, set a swirl, opening holes in his disguise. Nichols jerked backward. Who are you? Shadows filled the room. Chapter 5 Nether swarmed to Dante's hands. His fury came with it. 
Before he knew what he was doing, he thrust a blade of shadows straight for the man's heart. Nichols yelled out, voice echoing from the brick walls. Adeptly, he shaped the ether he'd used to probe Dante's disguise into a shining shield. The two forces met with a flash of light and then a counter-flash of darkness. White sparks twinkled to the floor. Galand, Nichols sneered. You couldn't kill Gladick, and you won't kill... Dante fired another bolt at the man's heart. As before, the Spaldor blocked it, but Dante had already followed it up with another strike. This one was as thin as a knitting needle, and it was aimed at Nichols' forehead. The priest was still smirking as he collapsed to the stone floor. His limbs jerked like some awful dance, and then he went still, pooling like spilled oil. A fist beat against the door. Spalder, is everything all right? Indeed. I need to come in, sir. One moment. Heart thundering, Dante drew Nichols's features across his own, using a polished silver bowl for his mirror. He thrust a hand at two of the candelabras, snuffing the flames and reducing the room to a soft glow. He flung a blanket over the body. He moved to the door and flung it open. Outside, a novice in dark grey robes straightened his spine. Excuse my interruption, Spalder. I heard a shout. The Orden and I discuss grave matters. Leave me be before you give me reason to shout more. The man bowed and left. Dante eased the door's bolt closed. Silently, he cursed himself up and down. He should never have spent so much time in the company of the priest. He'd let his greed for intelligence overshadow his caution. Worst of all, he hadn't even gotten any news. All he'd gotten was another body. The thought made him smile, but the smile made him pause. What if he'd exposed himself on purpose? Knowing that if he was discovered... It would give him a way to unleash his anger toward the keeper at the malice instead. Self-recrimination could wait. They were currently inside an enemy fort. If he was found with the body, his people might be hurt. Even if they won the fight, it would all but guarantee the continuation of the war. He pulled the blanket from over the spalder. He wanted to get Blaze, who could found a university dedicated to the various methods of disposing dead bodies, but he didn't want to leave the body alone. Anyway, he had an idea. The man was dead, but his tissue wasn't. Dante knitted shut the hole in his forehead, found a cloth, and wetted it with water from a ewer. He wiped the blood from Nichols's brow and hair, then tossed the rag into the fireplace picked up Nichols, and set him in a chair. There weren't any moths in the room, but a thorough search turned up a gathering of black beetles, hidden in the kindling next to the fireplace. He killed one, then sent it outside to trundle toward the granaries. There, his men were shoveling gobs of grain into chutes angled into the wagon beds. 
It was going to be a while. He sat across from Nichols and sighed. That will teach you to gossip. It was the middle of the night by the time they finished loading the wagons. Disguised as Gladick again, Dante rose. So did Nichols. Dante opened the door for him, leading the way downstairs and outside the silent temple. Along with the wagons, they'd brought a carriage appropriate for a man of Gladick's stature. Dante walked to it and opened its door. Stiff-legged, Nichols's body followed after him. Somehow it made it up the running boards and flung itself inside the carriage. Uh, pardon me, my lord, the guard who'd greeted them said, startling Dante. It's the Spalder. Going somewhere? Spalder Nichols will be accompanying me back to the capital. Dante swung into the vehicle, closed the door, then popped it open a handspan. Who is his supporting priest? Why, that would be Horace, sir. Dante stepped out, dropping his voice to a murmur. Is Horace a better man than the Spalder? The guard's mouth quirked. Everyone is, sir. Then for the benefit of the border, I might also take the Spalder with me to Tanar Atene. Good night, soldier. The wagons rolled out, lumbering heavily. Once they were out of sight of Grayson Fort, Blaze jogged over to the carriage and jumped inside. He froze, staring at the Spalder, then gave Dante a dark look. Another body? This was the only way. To what, draw as much attention as possible? He found out I was an imposter, Dante said. I had no choice. Well, I suppose it's easier than negotiating with them. What are you going to do with the body? I had intended to bury it. You should at least have a little fun with it. Point it dead east and tell it to start walking. A year later, if it walks out of the west, you'll prove the world really is round. Dante didn't know what was stranger. That Blaze knew the works of the geometrician Arcade or that he didn't seem to be bothered by the reanimated corpse. Such things had always made him skittish, if not outright disgusted. Normally, he would have been happy to see Blaze shrug it off, but he couldn't shake the feeling that the only reason Blaze wasn't rattled by it was because he'd seen so much madness over the last few months. They needed to get home before all the adventure and warring left them permanently unhinged. Anyway, Blaze continued, their grain was more than happy to become our grain. You'll never guess what else we found. The world's greatest variety of mouse droppings. A barrel full of shorden. Dante's eyebrows shot up. Did you take it? The extremely potent enemy weapon? Drat! I knew I was forgetting something. That should make the flight a little easier for us. He considered the dead man. Though I'm starting to wonder if there's going to be a second campaign at all. He nodded to the corpse. He seemed to think Gladick was off to somewhere called Tanara Tane. Tanara Tane? 
Why would he go there? You know about this place. I know it's a wretched southern swamp full of unspeakable horrors, so maybe it's his birthplace. Long ways from here, though. If he's down there, there's no way he's leading another attack this year. The thought should have been comforting. Instead, it only reminded Dante how wide and unknowable the world was, and how easy it was for people to hide themselves in its fringes. They arrived in Colin three days later. The grain was sorted and stored. If Dante continued harvesting potatoes and wheat from nothing, Boggs and Cord thought they'd wind up with enough to see them through the winter. He used a few chardon to speed the growth of the fields. The reborn shrine had been destroyed by the gigantic demon, but its subterranean lairs had largely survived, along with its archives. Dante asked the keeper to look into Tanara Tain. She seemed happy to have a project. Now that she'd roped Dante into sticking around, most of the business of the war had been turned over to the commanders and logisticians, leaving her with little to do. She returned the following afternoon with an armload of books and maps. Tanara Tain lies hundreds of miles to the south. The swamplands are very difficult to navigate without a guide, and little is known about them. However, three hundred years ago, Malin did a great deal of trade with the area. That is when the kneeling came to Bressel. Dante examined one of her maps, careful not to further damage its tattered edges. What are Malin's relations with them like today? Negligible. Tanaratain has been closed to outsiders for many decades. And why would Gladick be allowed in? She gave him a flat look. I will saddle my horse to ride south and ask. Maybe he's hiding from us, waiting for us to leave here. Or maybe King Charles booted him out for his failure, and this is his exile. I don't suppose you know anyone from the area. I have spent the last ninety years beneath the reborn shrine. I don't know anyone from anywhere. I don't like this. He stood, chair scraping. Keep digging. This could be more important than we realize. Through the loon, Neron's men reported that Malish troops were drilling outside the capital. Infantry and cavalry, along with a handful of priests. In Brussels pubs, soldiers complained about being sent off to eat dust and die away from home, with the holidays so close. No official announcements had been made, but there was no mistaking the direction the wind was blowing. The city of Colin threw a festival to celebrate the advance of fall, bowling pumpkins into wooden buckets and drinking cider until they were warned against going too near the edges of the butte. In Narastovic, the first snows would soon arrive, but Dante had a feeling winter would be in no hurry to come to the desert. The morning after the holiday, as he came in from growing what felt like his eight-thousandth crop of potatoes, Blaze intercepted him. You're needed on the war balcony. 
Blaze tapped his temple. I had an idea. The other three members of the hand were already there. Boggs looked like he'd enjoyed too much cider the night before. For that matter, so did the keeper. Here it is, Blaze said. You know that fancy road the king built? We're going to destroy it. Dante glanced between the others. Right. With no road to advance on, they'll have no choice but to stop at the border. As long as we steel ourselves against their curses, we'll be sitting pretty. Roads aren't built to get the soldiers to do something besides whore and gamble. They make your army faster. This is a tricky leap of logic, so listen closely. But if we destroy the things that makes armies faster, then we make Malon's army slower. Even with the road gone, the basin is mostly open desert. Unless we train the tumbleweeds to throw rods in their axles, it won't slow them down by more than a few days. That gives us a few extra days to prepare, or to harass their every move, or throttle each other by the neck and ask why in the hell we thought we could stand against Malon. Their supply lines will pay a tax, too. Cord spat the word tax like it was as bitter as lemon pith. If they leave their wagons behind, we can raid them. It does open up some tactics, Dante said. But if you destroy the roads, you'll shut down trade. You two might not always be at war. Trade is the worry of a free people. If our children don't have to spend their days fighting, they'll have plenty of time to rebuild the roads. It's their land, Blaze said. If they want us to wreck it, who are we to refuse a good smashing? Boggs slid a large parchment map along the table, tapping a spot to their southwest. They got a second road near the coast. Ain't much used except by smugglers and pilgrims. But they might try to get sneaky. We'll take care of that too, Dante said. We'll need fast horses. I get the feeling Mellon could march at any time. On hearing the plan, Neren requested to come along with them. All three were provided with a pair of Asties, the mottled, endurance-bred horses favoured by messengers and scouts. They rode hard down the pavement, getting some final use out of it. Dante didn't bother to tear up any of the road that day, opting instead to raise a patch of potatoes beside it. The next day of hard riding, however, they entered lightly wooded hills. Without a road, wagons would be lucky to advance faster than a mile per hour. They stopped in the shade and dismounted. Dante gazed down the road. It's funny. I've spent years building these to Narashtavik. Great, Blaze said. Then you've earned the right to destroy one. They're more valuable than anyone imagines. Like rivers made of stone, bearing commerce, knowledge, and news. It almost feels wrong to destroy it, like burning a book. Naren gave the passage a severe look. If your enemy can use a book to attack you, then you're right to burn it. That sounds reasonable, Dante said, but that's the same rationale the Malish used to burn the cycle of Aron.
Blaze tapped his fingernails against the pommel of the sword on his left hip. I've conducted a thorough examination, and it turns out this road doesn't have any family. We can kill it without worrying about anyone coming after us. Dante sliced open the back of his arm. Nether zipped to him from the undersides of leaves and stones. He poured it into the earth like black rain. The road's cobbles sunk into the surface, splitting apart at the seams as the soil fell away from beneath them. He let some sections of the earth collapse while raising others several feet, making it impossible for anything with wheels to advance. He followed the road westward, splitting, burying, and lifting it as he went. After a while, he realized that with the terrain so disrupted, he didn't have to demolish every last inch of road. So long as at least half of the ground was torn up, it would still be faster to cut a trail through the woods than to try to negotiate the craters and steps. He'd brought several shorden with him deploying them to augment his strength as they continued onward. Each mile brought them closer to Malin. Blaze and Neron watched the woods, but saw no sign of the enemy. Another day took them to the border. Dante waited for nightfall before continuing into enemy lands, the road melting away with each step. Two hours before dawn, with his control of the nether growing clumsy, they turned around and led their horses back into Colin. With the King's Road thoroughly smashed, they turned south, making for the smuggler's trail alongside the ocean. According to Boggs, it wasn't cobbled, but by filling in a few narrow spots, or collapsing a cliff or two, it might be possible to render it completely unusable. As they neared the sea, the air grew denser, cooler in the day and warmer at night. The forest petered out. A few old farmhouses sat in the scrubby land, boards gone grey with age, roofs rotted out. But Dante didn't see any sign of current inhabitation. They travelled along the western edge of a shallow valley that varied from a few hundred feet across to as much as a mile. Running roughly north-south, Portions of it were so straight it looked as though it had been made by a plough dragged by a sky-sized ox. The grass and shrubs in the valley were greener and thicker than on the higher ground to either side. Once upon a time, Dante would have simply looked at it as a valley, and left it at that. Knowing what he did, however, he thought it had once been the bed of a river— one that had been rerouted or destroyed when his ancestors lifted the mountain range to the east. Cresting a ridge, the sea glittered to the south. Dante stopped to take in the sight. Birds drifted over the distant waves. Here and there, a white sail stood out from the blue-green sea. As the valley neared the waters, it grew shallower and shallower the floor lifting until the valley disappeared altogether. Dante's mouth dropped with laughter. We're wasting our time. We can do more than slow the malice down. 
We can stop them from entering Colin altogether. Dante traced his finger along the map, sweeping it over many miles of hills and scrubland. Across from him, Boggs, Cord, and the Keeper watched his every move. This is your border, Dante said, although since there aren't any rivers, mountains, or oceans to form a natural barrier, said border might as well be here, here, or here. He tapped to either side of the meandering line. And that is Colin's main problem. The border's too wide to defend. He stuck a pebble on the border. If you stuck a fort somewhere, Malin would just march around it. The city of Colin is the only truly defensible spot in the entire country. But when you retreat to your city, that leaves your towns and farmlands wide open. Malin can pillage whatever they want. Even if you eventually drive them out, you'll have to spend years rebuilding. And just as you're ready to start growing again, here comes another invasion. This process has kept the basin in chains for centuries. That is an accurate summary, the keeper said. But it isn't news. We are coloners. To us, this isn't history. It is our lives. It doesn't have to be. I can close off your lands. How? It's as you said. Our only defense is in this city. I'll give you three guesses, Blaze said. It rhymes with leather, and it's so dark that the night itself looks at it and says, Damn, you're awfully dark. She crinkled her brow. You mean to use the nether to alter the land? You have the power to change so much by yourself. Dante nodded. With enough time, yes. I don't have to change much. By raising the high places and lowering the low ones, I can form bottlenecks that could be defended by a hundred soldiers. In the right locations, two or three forts could make your lands impregnable. I wish to believe this, but I've been disappointed so many times before. Cord narrowed her eyes at Dante. What will this cost us? When a god offers to make your wishes real, she never does it for free. Dante muttered something unpleasant. Don't tell me you're buying into the Keeper's propaganda. If you're still not convinced of my mortality, you're welcome to inspect my chamber pot. But here you are telling us you can reshape the land we live on. If you have the power of a god, then what more do you need to be counted as one? Worshippers, Blaze said. Right now his follower count sits at one, and that's only if you include himself. Setting aside the god issue, Dante said, making an effort to keep his voice level, the cost is that this can't be undone. Parts of your land will be changed drastically, rendered completely unusable. As long as you remain hostile toward each other, Malin will be able to intercept every caravan you try to sneak into their land. Even if relations repair enough to resume official trade, you'll have to expend resources to protect your routes. Otherwise, bandits will eat your merchants for breakfast. Additionally, fortifications can always be used against the people who built them. 
If Malin ever took the border from you, they'd command the region until you took it back. He stopped to think. Blaze motioned eastward. Don't forget the part where forests become deserts, rivers reroute themselves to your neighbors, and cats start sleeping with mice. The keeper drew back her head. Are you planning to raise entire mountains? It would take me years to do that, Dante said, but even though the changes I'll be making will be relatively small, there's no telling what impact they'll have. We already live in a god's damn desert, Bog said. Unless you're planning to take away our dirt and make us try to grow wheat from rock, I don't see what we have to lose. Take a minute to think about this. Not just as it stands now, but how it will impact your grandchildren and their grandchildren after that. We're talking about forever. The three coloners exchanged meaningful looks. The keeper was the first to speak. It may be that there is a time when the cost of freedom is too dear to pay, but that time is not now. Free us, Dante. That is what you are here to do. He had known that would be their decision. They were so starving for independence, they'd lob their firstborns into the volcanoes of the plagued islands, if that's what it took to win it. His question had been little more than a formality, a way to spare his own conscience, in case things turned out for the worse. Then again, it was their lives, their land, and their fate. If they decided to take the risk, who was he to tell them he knew better? I'm not sure what's more appropriate here, Dante said. Very well, or so be it. The keeper smiled in pure satisfaction. How soon will you begin? They rode back into the desert, accompanied by a small contingent of guides and scouts. Dante sent moths, dragonflies, and wasps soaring over the contours of the land, following its heights and depressions, discovering the precise course his work would take. The Green Mountains, a small range far east of the Malish city of Wetton, would mark the northern end of the border. The ocean would mark it to the south. That left close to 150 miles to cover. At first, it felt like he'd accepted an insurmountable task. Even excavating a 150-mile-long ditch could take months. But as he learned the land, he found his prediction was true, and that it would take far fewer modifications than one would guess. Bolstered by the Shorden they'd liberated from Grayson Fort, he thought he could finish the job in as little as two weeks. He returned to Colin to present his plan to the hand. They examined his maps with two parts wonder and one part horror, seeming, at last, to understand how much things were about to change. Boggs tapped the southern range of the proposed border. Could run into trouble there. That's joint territory. Dante frowned at the map. I was just there. It's not that big. 
The land ain't big, you fool. I mean the people who live there. Exactly how big are we talking? Blaze said. Big enough to stamp you underfoot, or just tall enough that the tailor's annoyed at how long it takes to make their trousers? Taller than any man you've ever seen. Strong enough to tear you in half. More monster than human. You've seen them yourself? Boggs nodded. Only from a distance. Keep to themselves, which is fine by me. They come and go as they please, though, so watch out. Blaze scratched the corner of his jaw. Nomads? Other than big, what do they look like? Stouter than cows. Bog spread his hand wide and made a pulling motion down over his face. Beards from here to eternity, and ears so small you'll wonder where they went. Dante and Blaze looked at each other. At the same time, they said, Norrin. You know him. Not the ones here, Dante said, but we know many of them up north. If there's a clan where I need to work, I don't think we'll have any problem getting them to relocate. Boggs got a quizzical look. You mean to deal with them? I was only telling you about them so you wouldn't get clubbed and eaten. They rode out once again, taking the swift Legodastes. As soon as they'd convinced the Norrin to move, Dante would strike north, altering the land as he went. Unless Malin marched in a matter of days, he'd seal off the basin before they could breach it. Boggs had claimed the Norrin were often seen around the shallow seaside valley, which they used to hem in herds of deer and antelope. As Dante, Blaze, and Neron neared it, they slowed, moving from ridge to ridge to take in the surroundings. Tall grass carpeted the valley floor, yellowed from the long summer, though some were starting to regain its green with the autumn rains. A few thorny trees stood in small clusters like gossiping soldiers. Well, better get down there, Blaze said. Neron looked puzzled. We have a much better vantage here along the rim. Which means that we'll never see them at all. The captain blinked at this. Since they will see us first, you believe they'll try to stay hidden? Blaze moved his horse toward a game trail down the gentle slope of the valley. Norrin tend to stay away from humans. They have a cultural aversion to being murdered and enslaved. How do you know so much about them? Because Dante and I are official clan members. I won a swimming contest, you see, and also we freed their entire people. The expression on Neron's face said two things. First, that he still didn't understand, and second, that coming to understand would be more trouble than it was worth. Instead, he turned his attention to the wind-tossed prairie. Grasshoppers leaped around them, fat and green. Crickets chirped like they'd forgotten how to do anything else. To left and right, chaotic skeins of spiderwebs matted the grass. Dante pointed to one messy cluster of threads. Notice that? Blaze nodded. And no spiderwebs across the trail. 
Either they've been through here in the last couple of hours, or we're about to find out how extraordinarily tall deer taste. The path forked repeatedly. Each time they took whichever branch was clear of webs, grass rustled. Dante stopped, listening to the winds. If we find them, Neron said, are you sure they'll be willing to speak to us? It wouldn't surprise me if they want nothing to do with us. Dante dismounted to take a look around on foot, tying his horse to the branch of a thorn tree. But they need to hear what we have to say. Blaze dismounted as well. We're practically family. When we explain that... A bow twanged. Something rammed Dante in the shoulder, knocking him to the ground. As he struggled to stand, the bow thrummed again, the arrow coming straight for his throat. Chapter 6 In Rorschach's experience, there were three kinds of people in the world. The first kind, and by far the most common, was those who liked to have done something. In the order of the alley, that was the type who pulled a job, then were happy to spend the next six weeks sitting in pubs, laughing with their friends, and drinking away the evenings. Most of these weren't so interested in thieving for thieving's sake, but rather because of all the downtime that came with it. If these people stumbled into a big enough sack of silver, they'd never pull another job again. The second kind of person was those who preferred to think about doing something, the planners and the plotters, the dreamers and the schemers. For them, the kick came from the preparation, casing the joint, drawing up the maps, placing an inside man or bribing somebody who was already there, assigning the right people to the right roles, anticipating contingencies and making backup plans to deal with them. If you ever wanted to pull a job bigger than picking pockets, you needed people like these. Good ones were worth their actual weight in silver. Most, though, they didn't live up to their potential. They'd get so wrapped up in the thinking that they delayed the doing, and sometimes never got around to it at all. For some, following through on it was boring, since they'd already completed the act in their mind. Then there was the third type, those who wanted to do the doing, who only felt alive when they were inside the darkened house, listening for sentries, lifting the jewels from the dresser. Rasha was the third type. As she sat down with Vest to work out how to steal the original cycle of Aron, it became clear that Vess was a schemer. Stop, Rasha said in the middle of a long proposal about tunneling into the citadel from outside. Don't worry about getting in or out. I've got that covered. Vess gave her a skeptical look. You sound sure. That's a bad thing. Everyone I know who was sure they could crack the citadel wound up swinging from the hangman's tree. I can do this. Besides, there's no point planning to get inside before we know exactly where the book is. Don't worry about that, Vess mimicked. I got it covered. You know where to keep it. 
I know that, like I know the colour of Galan's underwear. But I got someone inside. Roshar gave an impressed grunt. How'd you pull that off? I thought the entire staff was a bunch of fanatics. Fanatics with families. Debts. Same troubles as everyone else. You running the order. You've got to get on that, Roshar. Cheaper to buy someone off than to get raided because you don't know what's coming. She was quiet for a moment. Most likely, the reason the Order didn't already have a set of eyes and ears inside the Citadel was that Gates had been working for them. I'll worry about that later, she said. Find the book, and I'll make it ours. While waiting to hear back from Vess, Rasha took a number of meetings with Anya, who could rattle off the name of everyone in the Order, along with what they'd earned over the last year. Rasha was glad to have her around. It was easy to tell yourself things would be so much better if only you were in charge. But when you took on the crown, you soon learned that you served it. She didn't think it would be the world's best idea to try to set up a contact in the Citadel at the same time they were conspiring to rob it. But she got girls to start laying the groundwork. Other than that, she had to deal with a ton of low-level shit regarding the truce between the Order and the Little Knives. The part she hated most was coming up with compensation for her people who'd been permanently injured during the war for the street. You had people who could have earned a fortune stealing jewels and art, but now they couldn't even climb a wall. You were going to console them with two hundred and silver and a job scrubbing dishes. Everyone who signed up for an outfit like the Order knew damn well what they were getting into. Roshaw's sympathy only extended so far. Even so, when she thought about what it'd feel like to be in their shoes, the long years of quiet boredom, fading memories of jumping from rooftop to rooftop, forcing out a smile when some kid came in flushed, sweaty, and hilarious from a successful theft— she knew she'd have to walk away, find a different life, and try to forget. As she paid them their due, Anya scribbling amounts in her ledger, Rosha envisioned herself calling down the shadows like the priests did, and using them to make her people whole. It was three days before a young boy dropped by her tenement with word from Vess. That night, Rasha hoofed it over to the Temple of Earth. Its warped exterior made her head hurt. Vess was waiting in the courtyard, sitting on the branch of a tree. It was a humid night, and Rasha wiped sweat from her forehead. Why do we always have to meet in your temple? Do you know how far I have to walk? Didn't know I was invited. Would love to come by and drink whatever you got. Speaking of gods, how's the book coming? Vess chuckled. You don't have any love for talk, do you? Every time it's straight to it. Wonder if the men you're with love that or hate it. I haven't had any complaints. There is a chapel. Four floors. Let me guess, Roshaw said. It's on the top. It's on the top. And always guarded. Inside the chamber, or at its door, 
The door. It's in a case. Glass. You know how to cut glass without making it scream. That won't be a problem. How will you get in? Ah, uh, ah. Uh, we haven't worked together for nearly long enough for me to tell you that. Vess smirked. Can't blame me for trying. Roshaw returned to her offices and pored over maps of the Citadel. She'd have to move fast to get to the chapel and back before she ran out of juice. But it looked doable. The next night, she headed for the hill on the north end of the city, where Galand had built the Carnatarium, the institution of monks who liked to paw through corpses and figure out how they died, and, sometimes, who'd killed them. She slipped into the shadows, the intoxicating world of silver and black, like what it must feel like to live on a star. She walked briskly past the old man sitting inside the cave entrance and hooked down a hallway, reverting back to the real world to save her strength. She reached the side tunnel leading toward the Citadel dungeons. Moving in utter darkness, she shuffled forward until her fingers touched brick. The last time she'd been through here, she'd used her almighty bone saw to chop her way through the back of a cell. They'd patched it up in a hurry. Not a problem. In the shadows, walking through rock was like walking through an open door. She moved back into the starry world, stepped through the bricks, and bounced right off a wooden wall. She flickered back to reality, swearing as she rubbed her forehead. What was going on? Had they slapped up some boards as a temporary cover for the hole, then come in from the other side and walled it over with brick? Strange way to do things. Very strange. Roshar re-entered the shadows. She moved up to the wood, placing her palm against it, then moved to her right. Once it ended, she could simply step through the rock and into another cell. Three steps later, the boards were still going. The coverage was much wider than the door-shaped space she'd sliced open on her way out. Even so, it wasn't until she'd gotten another twenty feet and still hadn't found a gap in the wood that she understood something might be seriously wrong. She retreated to the bricks that marked the original hole and tried walking to the left instead. Same story. Exploring further, she discovered they'd walled up the entire dungeon with wood. Rasha returned to the tunnel and the normal world. A slow heat moved around her scalp. Wasn't any reason to coat a stone dungeon with wood panels? Check that. There was no mundane reason, but she could think of one pretty crazy reason. To stop people like her from getting in. Gates had told C about her little trick. C had since taken steps to stop her from getting back in. Rasha did have a sword that seemed capable of chopping through anything, up to and including walls, anvils, and mountains. But there was no way she could whack her way through a brick wall and then a wooden one without drawing the entire castle down on her. She cocked her head. If C knew who she was and what she could do, 
Then why hadn't she been arrested yet? She'd been careful for the last few days, but not that careful. There hadn't been any word on the street, or from Vess's inside man, that the Citadel was out looking for her. They didn't really know, did they? In the gloom of the dungeon, C hadn't gotten any kind of real look at her. C had her name, her first name anyway, but who else really knew who Rasha was? The others in the order, the orphans and the families she'd placed with them. The Citadel hadn't come after her because they didn't know who to arrest. Something stirred in the fun part of her brain. She turned around and jogged back out the way she'd come in. Back fast? There was a setback getting in, Rosha said, but I've got another idea. Vess made a flicking gesture with her fingertips. Let me guess, I don't get to know it. Sorry, a few days ago we were still trying to kill each other. You couldn't get in like you thought. The new idea works, you still sure you can get out? If I can get in, I can get out. Vess shook her head. Getting out is always harder than getting in. You got another idea that's good. Means you still got a few beans between your ears. But if you don't let me come up with a backup exit, I think those beans gone rotten. Where do you come up with this stuff? Rosha said, laughing. Fine. You got an idea for me, or do I have to wait for it? Vess laid out her idea. Risky, but better than nothing. She thought she'd need two days to prepare. Back at home base, Rosha woke early and tracked down Anya, who was the annoying kind of person who popped out of bed the instant the sun began to turn the skies pink. I'm looking for Lark, Rosha said. The new fence. Need to move a few pieces. Anya put on a stern look. Gates only hired him a few weeks ago. Gates was compromised. Lark could be compromised as well. That's exactly why I need to test him. An alternate choice would be to assume he is tainted and cut him loose. We have other fences. Gates was connected to everybody, but if we cut loose everyone he knew, we'll have to start over from scratch. We just have to be careful, that's all. Anya's expression made it clear what she thought of this idea, but she wasn't the type to buck an order. She gave Rasha Lark's address. Rasha rattled off a note to the effect that she was a collector of jewellery and was looking to sell off a few select items, describing them just well enough for an experienced hand to identify them as coming from the Gerilek collection, which she'd nabbed from the Citadel earlier that summer. She handed the note to Skipper, one of her runners. Skipper jogged off into the city. The girl was back before noon. Lark was interested in the pieces, so interested he'd included an offer. Written in code, of course, but it was a good price. Better than Rasha had been expecting. He said he'd need a couple of days to get the funds together. Rasha sent Skipper back to give him the okay. Lark waited until the next day to send back a time and place for the meet. The night after that, Rasha headed to the place, 
the back room of a pub inside the Ingate. Not the most imaginative location for a meet, but at least it was a nice location. As per instructions, she'd worn a green scarf. As she stood in the warm, smoky pub, a tall, slender man approached, dressed in black. You're Carla, he said, giving the name she'd attached to the letter. She nodded. He smiled thinly. Alone? You think I got a regiment hiding in my blouse? His cheek twitched. This way. He led her through a cramped hallway and into a windowless room. Boots rumbled behind her. Two citadel goons in black and silver, swords drawn. Hands on your head, scum. One of them stuck the point of his blade against her chest. Any blades on you? She did, along with two bracelets and a necklace from the Jerilek. They tied her hands, loaded her onto a wagon, and rolled her straight through the citadel gates. They marched her through the courtyard and down a staircase. The dungeon smelled like piss and mildew. They flung her in a cell. Before the door closed, locking her in darkness, she saw the cell walls that fronted the hallway were blank stone. The cell reeked, and they'd roughed her up a little, but she didn't care. Lark had swallowed the bait like a starving cod. Offered too much, and then, despite being that eager to buy, his arrangements had been slow, almost as if he'd had to make arrangements with somebody else first. She listened to the guard's footsteps fade down the hall. If they took the Jerilic pieces straight to C, who seemed to be head of Citadel security, the woman seemed smart enough to check in on the culprit for herself. Rasha had two things working in her favor. First, she hadn't told Lark anything that could identify her. And second, the Citadel was a great big God's damned bureaucracy. Even so, no sense in wasting time. She walked into the shadows and through the wall. Hallway was clear. She moved back to the dullness of the actual world, sticking tight to the wall as she headed toward the stairs. She ascended. At the top, she moved back into the nether. From the perspective of the gates, the dungeons were on the left side of the keep. The chapel was all the way on the opposite side. On the outer walls, the guards stood out as silver silhouettes, streamers of shimmering mist following them as they moved. Rasha took off at a trot, cutting straight across the courtyard. If the Cathedral of Ivars weren't looming across the street like a sentinel of the gods, the word chapel would have come across as an eye-rolling piece of false modesty. The building that housed the cycle would have been a cathedral in any other city. Its two spires poked over a hundred feet into the night. Its face was dark granite, swarming with gargoyles, demons, miniature dragons, all that churchly crap they used to humble you. A lantern hung out front, presumably in case anyone couldn't wait until morning to prostrate themselves and beg forgiveness for their latest failure. For just a moment, Rosha paused, head cocked at the splendid building. 
By definition, the rich were those who had lots of money, which made them the best targets. The rich also almost always lived in stone houses, where her talent was most useful. Was this a sign from Carvajal, the silver thief himself? A divine calling? If so, she'd better not ever reject her gift. To do so would risk invoking holy wrath. She strode through the outer wall, blundering into a tapestry on the other side, the fabric barely rustled, as if she were no more significant than a breeze. The main hall was deserted. She dashed across it, locating a stairwell. The fourth floor landing opened to an airy foyer with windows overlooking the grounds. The foyer doors were flanked by two grim-looking guards bearing wicked pole arms. Within the shadows, Nether danced on the blades. They'd tasted blood. Couple of toughies. But if they wanted to keep their treasures safe, they should have sent a priest. Rasha skipped through the wall. After ensuring the room beyond was vacant, she relaxed back into reality, letting her eyes adjust from the dazzling glow of the nether. The room had a high, arched ceiling, matched by high, arched windows. Desks and shelves held a plethora of objects that looked worthy of her pockets. But there was no time to indulge in the pleasure of pawing through somebody else's collection. At the back of the room, a glass case stood on a low dais. The thick rugs swallowed up the sound of her footsteps. The glass was finely crafted, few bubbles almost completely transparent. Within it, an oversized black book bore the unmistakable white tree of Barden. She prodded the glass. It was embedded in the dais, a hinged flap providing access to the interior. But that was locked with a solid loop of iron. Rasha didn't see a keyhole in the lock. Damn priests probably didn't need keys. Then again, neither did she. She inhaled, drawing herself back into the world of bright and dark. The white tree on the cover now extruded a dull light across the room. Rasha reached toward the glass. Years back, on discovering she could pass through it, she'd asked around. Discovered glass was made from melted sand. Made sense she could pass through it then. But while walking through rock was no tougher than walking through mist, crossing through glass was more like wading through water. She pushed her fingers through, picked up the book, and withdrew it. She snapped out of the nether. The book was heavy enough to brain someone with. Holding it in her hands, she expected lightning to shoot up her arms or nether to spill out of her nose. But it seemed intent on doing nothing. Well, that was books for you. She set it on top of the glass and opened the cover. The smell of old parchment and leather wafted loose. The first few pages were blank, slightly yellowed, speckled with faint grey-green spots. Then, in elegant script, written with the authority of one who ate kings and shut out priests, the book's title.
and beneath that, in smaller letters from a different hand, the name of Dante Galland. Rasha swore under her breath, chuckling, just like a high priest to tattoo their own name on an irreplaceable relic that was created centuries before they were messing their diapers. She flipped through a few more pages, ensuring there weren't any demons coiled and waiting to spring from the text, then tucked the tome under her arm. She hesitated. Maybe it was the book's weight. Maybe her instincts were just that good. Whatever the case, Rasha frowned, head lowered. She couldn't name half the council priests, and didn't care a bucket of night soil about the ones she could. But everyone knew at least a little about Galand, the malish boy who'd shown up out of the blue, helped to murder the existing head of the council, and then roped Narashtovic into an insane war, only to somehow, unbelievably, win it and take over the council for himself. Ambitious, ruthless enough, too. But he'd promised to rebuild Narashtovic, and these days the dead city was thriving. He'd said the war was going to free the Norin, and he'd set them loose, challenging Gask itself in the process. He was a true believer. And true believers weren't the type to deface the faith's most precious relics. Keeping the book under her arm, she made a quick pass of the chamber. Dozens of other books, but nothing that looked any different from within the netherworld. Nothing else protected in a chest or a case, either. She moved back to the dais searching it for hidden compartments, then fixed her eyes on the wall behind it. This was black rock, rough-hewn. Except for a patched dead center in the wall, roughly six feet tall and three across, that was nearly as smooth as the glass case. Rasha shifted into the shadows and walked through the wall. She popped into a closet-sized room on the other side, the silvery glare was so bright, she had to shield her face, eyes watering. Nether boiled and churned like a fresh-forged blade quenched in water. The power in the chamber was so dense, she could barely breathe. A wooden end table stood before her, thigh high. On the table rested a book. On the book, a white tree glowed so powerfully her eyes stung with tears. As she reached for it, darkness flowed from her hand to its cover. Her arm went as cold as if she'd plunged it into a mountain stream. The nether was being ripped out of her body. Another moment, and she'd be trapped in the doorless space for good. Chapter 7 Blaze's swords seemed to leap into his hands. He drove them forward in an X. An arrow bound for Dante's chest scraped into the blades and glanced away. I've been shot, Dante announced. Blaze ignored him, sprinting forward. Naren gave Dante a startled look, but despite his refined ways, the captain was a man of action used to command. 
he ran after Blaze. Dante sat up, head spinning. A thick wooden shaft jutted from his left shoulder. Just as he suspected, he had been shot. It ached dully. Injury seemed to slow everything down, including the sensation of pain. Was the slowness real or imagined? If a sorcerer broke his own toe with a hammer, only to heal it, break it again, and repeat, could he get time moving so slowly that it stopped altogether? Steel clanged from somewhere in the grass ahead of him. Dante frowned at himself and called to the darkness. Fortunately, he'd already spilled plenty of blood. The shadows plunged into his shoulder. With a slurp, the arrowhead was expelled from his flesh. He closed the wound and stood. Black spots filled his vision. He staggered toward the tree, bracing himself against its trunk. He was no longer in any pain, but the sight of the wound tingled, and his head was still loopy with after-pain. Fifty yards away, Blaze and Naren were holding a conversation with what appeared to be a patch of grass. Dante picked up the bloody arrow, evidence of the crime, and walked over to them. A giant of a man was sprawled in the grass at Blaze's feet, disarmed, bleeding from a pair of shallow cuts. A beard covered the entirety of the lower half of his face. He looked younger than Dante, but he was closer to seven feet tall than to six. His fists looked big enough to knock down a bull. You shot me. Dante brandished the telltale arrow. Why? The Norin gave him a sullen look. Because you were standing still enough to be shot. Do you normally shoot everyone who stops to smell a flower or take a piss? That sounds needlessly hostile. Then why, Dante said slowly, did you shoot me? Well, you were hunting me, weren't you? We weren't hunting you. We were only trying to find you. The man sat up. Yes, by hunting me. With weapons. Blaze stepped between them, making a chopping motion. Mistakes have been made. Arrows have been fired. People have been shot. Now we can spend all day arguing about who shot who. Dante spotted. He shot me. Or we can agree that no lasting harm was done. So we can argue about it and get mad at each other until we get in another fight, one where someone gets hurt badly or even killed, or we can put it behind us and get on with our business. Dante rubbed his shoulder. Agreed. Agreed, the Norrin said. Then again... You've got your sword pointed up my throat, so I'd probably agree to anything, except the suggestion that I should be stabbed with it. Blaze sheathed his sword. We need to speak to your chieftain. He's not here. I'm going to assume by here you mean in our immediate presence. In that case, I request that you go wherever he is and get him for us. The man stood, brushing off his trousers. Then I'll go do that. 
Dante narrowed his eyes. No, you're not. You're going to run away. Are you giving me permission? A great calamity is about to strike your lands. If your people are here when it happens, you'll get calamitized too. You need to convince your chieftain to see me. It sounds like all I need to do is tell him there's a terrible calamity. The Norrin regarded him for two long moments. But I'll tell him he should talk to you. He bent to pick up his bow and spear. Stay here, or you can choose to leave. I'm not your human king. But if you do leave, we won't know where to find you. Dante smiled tightly. We'll be here. The man gazed at them, then turned and walked away. Dante had half a mind to follow him with a dead grasshopper, but the Norrin was skittish enough already. If they happened to have a sorcerer capable of detecting the grasshopper, they'd never speak to him again. Even so, he posted a couple of lookouts in nearby trees, in case the clan would rather have a human hunt than a conversation. Less than an hour later, a lone figure approached through the grass. His height topped seven feet, and he looked like he'd have to turn his shoulders to fit through a human door. Their beards, bulk, and features made it harder to peg a Norrin's age, but Dante had spent enough time among them to guess this man was in his late twenties or early thirties. Feathers and fine silver chains dangled from his spear. His armor was composed of boiled leather and black iron bands, the metal etched with rune-like depictions of wolves, deer, owls, and snakes. His bearing was as proud as his armor. Wordlessly, he stopped across from the three humans, his gaze settling on Dante. Alok says he shot you, but you don't look very shot to me. I got better, Dante said. You're the chieftain of this clan? That's who you send for, isn't it? My name is Ram. Alok said you think a disaster's coming to the Valley of Northern Spirits. It could hit within a matter of days, before winter at the latest. You need to relocate your people. What kind of disaster? And how do you know it's coming? The land will be transformed. Dante paused. He'd been on the brink of saying that he knew it was coming because he was the one bringing it. If he confessed to destroying the clan's land, however, it wouldn't be an illogical response for the chieftain to hoist Dante on the end of his fancy spear. I'm a... prophet. Of Aron. He sent me a vision of this valley being destroyed. Ram scratched a bushy eyebrow. That could mean anything. Gods don't like to show mortals the exact future. What you saw was probably just a metaphor. For what? How should I know? Do I look like a Ron? Trust us on this, Blaze said. I know we look like short, scrawny little humans, but my friend and I are members of the Broken Herons clan from the hills north of Tetonin. The chief snorted. It's impossible that any clan would ever admit a human. So your claim that the Broken Herons took two humans is double impossible. Our chief's name is Hop, 
This happened several years ago, during the Chainbreakers War. Did you hear of that one? No. And since you're a liar, I can only conclude that you're about to tell me more lies. Goodbye, liars. He turned and walked away, broad shoulders swaying. Blaze spun on Dante. Does Hawk still have one of our looms? Can we get him to talk to this guy? It's worth a shot. Dante jogged after the Norin. Ram, do your people speak to Joseph and Joe? The Norin stopped in his tracks. Do they what? In the north, the clans venerate the god Joseph and Joe. Some speak to him. Do you do that here? Ram's brows went together. You mean do's and do. Wait here. For what? For me to get our chieftain. Dante's mouth fell open. You said you were the chieftain. No, I didn't. If our chieftain would come talk to a trespassing human, that wouldn't make her much of a leader, would it? Now stay here. He jogged away, spear rattling. Dante clamped his fingers to his temples. Why did we ever help these people again? We were young and foolish. Blaze seated himself under the tree and swigged from a flask of something that probably wasn't water. Anyway, if these guys are that annoying, then we won't feel bad if they're all killed when they don't listen. Ram was back in less than half an hour. He was accompanied by two other men with bows and long spears, and a woman in a plain brown cloak. Most Norrin carried an air of calm unflappability around with them, but her bearing was so steady you could have built a house of cards on her. I'm Carda, she said. I'm chief of the walking fish. You're in our valley. What do you want? Dante repeated his warning, along with his fabricated credentials as a prophet. By year's end, this valley will be ripped apart. Please, move your clan before it's too late. Do you know why we're here? Because we came to your land, and insisted on seeing you, and showed enough knowledge of Norrin matters that you relented. Is that a complete enough chain of causality for you? Kada smiled crookedly. You do know of the Norrin, don't you? It could be that our ancestors knew the ancestors of your friends. Years on top of years ago, we lived in the North, too. Every year, the humans would come for us to take us, put us to work in their fields and mines. No matter how well we hid, sooner or later, we had to hunt for meat, and they'd find us, and they'd take us. One day, the elders gathered. They decided there was only one way out, to leave. So that's what they did. Many died along the way, but at last our ancestors settled here. For three hundred years, we've been free. The ancestors, they sacrificed their lives, everything they knew to escape human troubles. 
Now you're telling me that human troubles have found us again, and again we need to leave our home because of it. That's correct, Dante said. She burst into laughter. Do you have any shame at all? Plenty, but my feelings don't matter. Your lives do. How do I know this isn't a trick to take the valley for stupid human farms? Dante darkened the air around them until their faces were nothing but dark outlines, eyes shining white from within the fog. If I wanted your land, I wouldn't have to trick you into leaving. I'd just kill you and take it. He dropped his hand, returning the world to its normal brightness. If I'm right about what's coming, it will happen before the year's end. If I'm wrong, you can always come back then. Kada exhaled through her large Norrin nose. I think you're telling the truth. But we can't go. Wrong, you have legs. They will support you in any decision you make. When our ancestors came here, they brought a great relic with them. They brought it to that mountain to watch over us. She pointed northwest, where a pair of low peaks rose from the surrounding flatland. If we leave this valley without it, we'll be cursed. Blaze shifted his eyes between her and the mountain. Might I suggest you don't leave without it? We lost it long ago. We can't find it. But if you can... That will be proof Dozendo knows you're telling the truth and wants us to go. If you can't find it, then you are liars, and we will stay. Dante wanted to kick and scream and hit things with other things, such as her head with a large club. But he knew Norrin. The harder you pressed them, the more stubborn and indifferent they grew. The only way to reach them was to win their trust. Tell me more about this lost relic. It's called the face of Dozendo, Kada said. It's carved from blue marble by the master Aelin, whose nulla was stonework, and it's the most beautiful statue you'll ever see. Blaze squinted at the two peaks, neither of which were tall enough to bear snow yet. Do you remember the last place you saw it? The only place such a sacred item could be. Our shrine. Interesting. Have you tried checking the shrine? Yes. Kada gave a lingering look toward the peaks. But that was lost, too. Come now, everyone knows you have to tether your shrines, otherwise they'll get up and wander away. Only our holiest wise men knew where it was. Then he got eaten by a bear. But we know two things about the shrine. It rests where the moonflowers grow in rings, and that you will know it by the shine of the sea on its grim and stony face. First you want us to find the shrine, Dante said. Then you want us to find the face of Dozendo. 
And once we bring it back to you, you'll relocate. Kada nodded. We haven't been able to find it, but surely a great prophet and sorcerer like yourself can. Perhaps your god will help you too. Dante had one of the clan's best artists sketch him a picture of a moonflower, which was a distinctive silver color with petals shaped like crescents. After making arrangements about where they could find the clan, in the event that they brought back the statue, Dante, Blaze, and Neron took off on horseback, trotting toward the pair of low blue mountains. I don't mean to question your wisdom in this matter, but... Neron wrinkled his forehead. Actually, I do. I wish to question it most rigorously. We may be days away from invasion, and your plan is to run off to find a lost idol in a lost shrine. The Norin are as stubborn as a constipated mule, Dante said. They'll never leave just because we tell them to. Trying to push them to do something is like trying to push down the surface of a lake. This type of challenge they've given us is very common. If we follow through on it, it's a sign that we're serious, and that we respect their ways. Evidently, they have no respect for our time. It could take years to search these mountains. I know. That's why I'm planning to cheat. By nightfall, they had ridden within ten miles of the foothills. Dante woke before dawn to slay a host of winged insects. He sent these soaring toward the dark mountains. By the time the three of them had eaten a breakfast of flatbread and venison jerky and gotten on their way, his scouts were entering the mountains. The moonflowers sparkled like steel shavings, impossible to miss in direct sunlight. They didn't grow in the lower half of the mountains and quit flowering some ways before the peaks, narrowing the surge. On top of that, the only areas with a view of the sea were the southern exposures, at an initial pass, Dante only saw six sites on the closer of the two mountains that might qualify for the shrine's location. The mountains were weathered and slump-shouldered, no trouble for the horses to ascend, especially when Dante could scout the lay of the ridges from ahead. Early that afternoon, they reached the nearest site, a flat shelf of turf a few hundred feet across, bordered on its north side by a low cliff that looked out on the faraway sea. Most of the ground was covered in grass and weeds, but near the center, a lopsided circle of moonflowers bobbed their heads in the wind. Dante dismounted and walked around the ring of flowers. The three of them crisscrossed the site, eyes sharp for cairns, norin bones, statues, and so on. Finding nothing but rocks and lichen, they reconvened in the middle of the circle. Dante folded his arms. Does anything about this look like a shrine? That depends, Blaze said. Do Norrin worship empty fields? If so, you'd think they'd choose one closer to home. They moved on to the next site, a rocky field sporting another ring of flowers. It took nearly two hours to check all the boulders and debris for a blue marble carving or other signs of shrineliness. This is absurd, Neron said. 
even if the shrine is here. Everything here is so weathered that we might not even know it when we see it. And that itself assumes its design will be obvious to human eyes. Blaze swore. And if it was obvious, you'd be able to see it through the eyes of your bugs, wouldn't you? Their logic struck Dante like a hammer swaddled in velvet, leaving him unable to do anything but stand there and stare at them. There are only a few more on this mountain, he said lamely. After that, we'll check the next one. They moved on to the next ring, an uneven grassy slope. There was nothing there. The sun was already nearing the flatness of the sea. They made it to one more site before the sky grew too dark to see what they were doing. Dante didn't sleep well. He woke up cold and stiff. They moved out at first light. The next ring of flowers was only a short walk away, but Dante's enthusiasm was waning. Again, they found nothing. They headed on to the final possibility he'd scouted out, a small hilltop rising from the side of the mountain. The view was stunning, but his heart sank to his knees. You're right, he said. This is the quivering bow all over again. Naren swatted a hectoring fly. The quivering bow? Blaze chuckled. That was a fun one. That time, a Norrin clan tricked us into assaulting one of their worst enemies, hastening the war that was brewing. At least this time they only seem intent on sending us on a wild goose chase. I expect that's their game, Dante said darkly. There's no shrine. There's certainly no face of dozen dough carved from blue marble. Without my scouts to speed things up, we could have wasted weeks out here. Sounds like we should go back and yell at them. Agreed, Naren said. But first, I get to tell you I told you so. Dante stalked toward his horse. And I get to not to listen. It's for your own good, really. Blaze grew thoughtful. Because otherwise you would turn him into a moonflower chow? Correct. A frown crept across Blaze's face. Something doesn't feel quite right about this. That would be the feeling of humiliation. I'd think you'll recognize it from every time you take your pants off. Think about the trick they played with the quivering bow. Or just the other day, when they let us assume Ram was their chieftain. They like to play on ignorance. Sending us on a hunt for something that isn't there isn't very clever. It's much funnier to send us after something we'll never find, even when it's right under our nose. Dante turned away from his mound. Carter came up with the relic and shrine business awfully fast. If it's invented from whole cloth... She lies like a Candean. Take us back to the first side. I've got an idea. Dante led them across the green hills, returning to the flat, grassy shelf backed up by the cliffs. Blaze glanced at the grounds, then at the cliffs, then out to sea. He turned his back to the cliffs and vanished. 
As Blaze's shadow walked through the netherworld, Dante could feel the barest hint of his presence heading toward the rock wall. And then Blaze was gone. A hawk cried out from the heights. Dante had barely glanced back at the cliff face when Blaze reappeared. He grinned, jerking a thumb behind him. There's a cave back there. Want to open it up? Dante opened a cut on his arm. How did you know? Carter said it would be at the place where the sea shines on its grim and stony face. I figured she was talking about some big old statue, but she meant a cliff face. Stony. Dante shook his head, hiding it right under our nose. He sank the nether into the rock, feeling its shape, then pulled the stone back to either side. A large hollow opened before them. Dante lit his torch stone and walked inside. They had arranged to meet at the same tree as before, but Dante decided to save time by going right up to the clan. The walking fish were arrayed in a thorny grove of trees that had sprung up around an L-shaped pond. Many were working on wooden carvings or birch bark drawings. Others were smoking fish, weaving matting for their yurts, or flaking arrowheads from obsidian. Noticing the riders, they went still. Kada strolled forth to meet them. As before, she was flanked by two enormous warriors. Back already? She looked Dante up and down. Did your god tell you he's changed his mind? No, Dante said. But yours told me he missed you. Blaze lowered a battered leather sack to the ground, grunting at its weight. He untied its thong and yanked it open. A blue face stared up at Carda, its skin and beard marbled with white. Though the coloration was phantasmagoric, muscles, wrinkles, and hair chiseled into the stone looked so lifelike, Dante was certain it was about to blink. The face of Dozondo, Dante said. Unless you lost some other blue marble relic bust you didn't think to tell us about. She reached out to touch its face, hesitating at the last moment as if it might sting her. She composed herself and caressed its brow. Where did you find it? Behind several tons of rock. I'm not sure you can trust that wise man of yours, Blaze said. We found it in a dirty old cave. If he was telling you all that was a shrine, he needs to raise his standards. It was buried in a cave. She eyed Dante. Then how did you find it? He shrugged. I told you, I'm a prophet. So you should heed my words when I tell you it's time to leave the valley. Our agreement. Yes, I'd like to honor it. But I don't have the authority to make these people leave. You're the chieftain. Where you go, they'll follow. Kada shook her head sadly. But I'm not the chief. Not anymore. Since when? Since you brought back the face of Dozendo, 
That means the clan of the walking fish has entered a new era, one I'm not worthy enough to guide us through. Dante clenched his jaw. I can't say I disagree with your decision to step down. Who'll be replacing you? Everyone knows it's bad luck to choose a new chieftain before spring. You should probably wait to come back until then. You can't be serious. It's regretful, but there's nothing any of us can do. She took a long breath through her nose. Ah, oh, and yet it feels so freeing. Heat crept up the back of Dante's neck. You think you're putting one over on me, but when I leave here, the disaster doesn't leave with me. You're only hurting your own people. We've seen human kingdoms come and go. We're still here. I think we'll be fine. Blaze exhaled raggedly. I'd try to shame your honor, but it appears you haven't got any. Maybe it's lost in a shrine somewhere. We have to leave, Dante said, before I start killing them. Blaze snorted, then caught the look on his face and grew sober. Okay, we do have to leave. Keep an eye on the valley, ex-chief Carter. If it starts to do anything strange, such as rip in half, you might want to run. Nether flickered around Dante's hands, drawn by the overwhelming urge to lash out at their smug, stupid, stubborn faces. That, however, would defeat the purpose of trying to save their lives, so he strode back to his horse instead. As he mounted up, he was tempted to reach into the blue stone statue and melt it into a hard blue puddle. Carter hadn't held up her end of the deal. She didn't deserve to profit from it. But a part of him knew that not all of his anger was caused by the Norrin. Much of what he felt was still the fault of the Keeper. Besides which, if he destroyed the face, he wouldn't only be taking it from her, he'd be taking it from the clan. And future generations, lasting for countless years. Ever since the cracking of Aron's mill, people had been mortal, born in order to die. But art could still be eternal. Whatever talent had carved the face of Dozendo was immortal. The idea of destroying the statue disturbed him worse than the thought of annihilating the clan. In most circumstances, Blaze would have derided him for getting fooled by the Norrin yet again. But Blaze rode in silence. Naren, too. Although he was often so stiff and silent, he could be mistaken for the masthead of his own ship. After several miles, Dante slowed his horse to a walk. We weren't trying to rob them. We weren't trying to hurt them in any way. All we were trying to do was help, and all they did was take advantage of us. Blaze glanced behind them. How does that make them any different from the coloners, or the Candaeans? Is it that hopeless, trying to make things better? What else are we supposed to do? I suppose we could tend to our own lands. Failing that, 
There's always rum. Dante lapsed into silence. Riding along the rim of the valley, his options slowly clarified. He could get lost in his rage, letting it pull him off his path, or he could forge forward with his work, do what he could, and pray it was enough. At the end of the valley, he stopped, gazing northeast. For now, we'll leave the Norin be. There's plenty of other land for me to deal with. Naren, would you mind heading back to Colin? The captain smiled. Am I that useless to you? Just the opposite. We can no longer trust the keeper. I'd like to have a pair of smart eyes on her. Naren touched his loon. I'll let you know if I see anything out of order. He struck northeast, toward the distant city, dust pluming from the hooves of his asti. Well, Blaze said, ready to smash the gods' hard work? Dante smiled. If it offends them, then they shouldn't have left the world unattended for so long. Having already surveyed his course, he wasted no time riding up the hill to their west. A little past its crown, he dismounted and drew his knife across the back of his arm. Shadows fell on him like rain. He sent them worming into the slope below him. Rock cracked like thunder. Dust shot into the sky. With a rumble, the western face of the hill slipped loose, shaking the earth as it tumbled downhill. Dante grinned at the devastation. Now that was satisfying. Stones broke, smacking against each other as they sought new resting places. When the dust settled, Dante moved to the edge, inspecting the twenty-foot cliff he'd chiseled into the hill. Troops could still climb it, assuming they had ropes, but wagons wouldn't have any hope. And the coloners could defend it with a handful of soldiers. He moved north, raising a spine of naked rock, then ripping open a fault between two massive slabs, creating a ravine as bad as the one they'd seen in the glacier fields of the Wodens. Though the changes to the landscape were vast, they were slow to deplete his supply of nether. He wasn't building anything. He wasn't doing any fine shaping or meaningful building. He was destroying and it was always far easier to destroy than to create. They slept under the stars. Dante woke angry, but he turned his wrath on the blankness of the land, cracking open cliffs and chasms, lifting ridges and spikes. As soon as Neron was back in Colin, Dante requested a delivery of Chardon. A rider delivered the heavy snails to him the following morning, Drawing on the nether collected within the shells, he was able to extend himself five times as far, covering miles per day, leaving a wandering trail of ruin behind him. He lost himself so deeply in the work that he wouldn't have noticed if a malish army had marched up and made camp around him. Blaze kept watch, moving from hill to hill as Dante chewed his way north. They didn't talk much, and they didn't need to. Sometimes, when Dante paused between assaults on the earth, 
he'd catch a look on Blaze's face that was somewhere between thoughtful and troubled. Neron reported in via the loon each night. The keeper didn't seem to be up to any new tricks. Either that, or her skullduggery was too subtle for Neron to spot. But a group of colonies' soldiers had run across a party of Malish scouts investigating the torn-up King's Road. They'd skirmished, but the Malish had escaped. Neron had word from Bressel, too. According to his crew stationed there, King Charles had announced that the Colin Basin had once again rebelled against its Malish lords. And this time, the coloners had raised demons from the shadows. It was, the king said, a staggering heresy. But it would not be allowed to stand. A cohort of ethermancers would be sent to purify the realm, along with a second, larger army. Colin would be back in Malin's hands before the end of the year. Hearing this, Dante's jaw dropped. That's disgusting. I can't believe it. That a king would lie to his subjects, Blaze said. If you find that disillusioning, then I have terrible news about Falmax Eve fairies. Gladick's behind this lie, I'm sure of it. Knowing his hunger for glory, he'll insist on leading the new army into Colin. He'll deliver himself right to us. I thought he was down in Tanaratane. What if that was a ruse to stop us from looking for him in Bressel? Blaze frowned. Then it was an awfully cunning ruse, depending as it did on you raiding a fort while disguised as Gladick, bumping into one of his underlings, who happened to have that piece of intelligence, and then being fed that intelligence, despite the underling not having any idea who you really were or why you needed to be fed it. If Gladick's that clever, we should start sowing our white flags right now. Gladick's involvement was speculation, but Malin's intentions were clear. Dante pushed himself to the brink, gouging trenches, tossing up walls of jagged rock. The effort made him stand tall. The catharsis of devastation had him eager to rise each morning. Hard and clear, the desert sunlight seemed to be trying to show him something. But all it shined on was more wasteland. Somehow, the wasteland seemed to be enough. Everything fell away, except the brightness of the sky, the crispness of the nights, the flaming wall of orange and pink that erupted at the end of each day when the sunset struck the dust in the air. The land was as empty as a bowl that had never been used, and that seemed to be the point. Dante had nothing except himself a trusted friend to watch his back, and the job. All of his other troubles were petty nothings. Soon he would walk away, and his work here would remain in testament to what he had done. Mile by mile and day by day they forged north. The green mountains sharped on the horizon. Blaze stopped to stare, then turned around, taking in the trail they'd left behind them. Parts of it looked like a god had stabbed at the earth, 
In others, it looked like a dragon was burrowing beneath the soil, with only its horns and spine breaking the surface. Know what's funny? Blay said. No one's here to see this being created. But the coloners will see the results. They'll come up with stories to explain it. Some will be true or close to it, but others will be exaggerated or just plain made up. Let me guess. You're going to spread stories of your own, like this was all your work, and while you were slaving to save the realm, I was busy wandering around eating berries and crapping my pants. That wasn't my idea. But it might be now. Blazer's smile faded. People who didn't see it happen will tell other people all about it. Kids will grow up with the stories, and they'll only remember the craziest parts, which they'll tell to their kids, who will only remember the craziest parts of that, and so on. A few hundred years from now, the coroners will all swear to the story of Don Tay, the stone shaper, who waved a hand and summoned a thousand-foot wall between Cullen and Mallon, booting out the oppressors for all time. I really must learn how to live for another few hundred years. What if it's always been like that? What if our holy books are just stories of powerful people who did something great long ago? People who got turned into gods by the passage of time? and by us wishing that there was something more for us to follow. Dante blinked. It's a good thing we're in the middle of nowhere, because that might be the most heretical thing I've ever heard. Blaze squinted at the sky. I suppose we'll never know. So we might as well believe so we don't accidentally piss any of them off. The next day brought them within five miles of the Green Mountains. The day after that, Dante's loon twinged in the middle of the morning. It was Neron. Malin's army was on the march. It would arrive in Colin within three days. Chapter 8 Dante ran his hand down his face. Three days until the Malish are here. Why couldn't they have waited just one more day? I don't know, Blaze said, but it's probably best to spend our remaining time complaining about it. You're right, we've got work to do. He jogged north toward the Green Mountains, leading his horse beside him. Blaze matched pace. Do you realize you're going the wrong way, or are we deserting? If we leave this route open, they can use it to strike straight at Colin. We'll be trapped in a siege. It could be months before we're able to make it out. We'll be fine. I can shadow walk away at any time, and you can do your little mole act. It's just the entire Colin Basin that'll be trapped. At least my nightmares would have plenty of screaming faces to choose from. I'm finishing the barrier— if we ride back as fast as we can, using the Nether's help, we'll beat the Malish to the fort. Assuming the Malish don't pull any forced marches. They probably won't, though. After all, the first thing they taught me in boring school was that it's always safe to make assumptions about the enemy's capabilities. 
Dante knew it was a gamble. If the Malish beat him to the fort he'd set up near the King's Road, the coloners would only have a single sorcerer to their name. The Keeper. The Malish ethermancers would rip straight through their lines. But it would be just as much of a gamble to leave a gaping hole in their line of defense, a hole for which they had no backup plan. All in all, finishing the barrier took nearly a day and a half, along with all the remaining Chardon in his possession. As he turned around to gallop south, he reached for the nether, but it was sluggish, reluctant. Of course, he'd been counting on being able to use it to refresh the horse's muscles, allowing them to make as much haste as possible, but somehow it hadn't occurred to him that he'd use most of it up reshaping the earth. They pushed their mounts as hard as they dared. By nightfall, they were within a day's ride of the fort where the coloners intended to make their stand, but the Malish had advanced within twelve miles. They could be upon the site by the next afternoon. Cord's scouts had placed the enemy's numbers at five thousand men, including eight hundred cavalry. In sheer numbers, the coloners were their equal, but the priests alone could tip a battle in favor of the Malish. If Gladick was among them, and he summoned his Andrak, it would turn into a slaughter. Dante made himself awaken by four in the morning. Lighting the way with his torchstone and then a small ball of ether, he galloped onwards, blaze right beside him. Their haste was for nothing. After sunrise, Naren informed him the Malish were turning south, bypassing the fortifications and making for the road along the coast, the road that remained open. Is cord ready? Dante said. She is preparing to march as we speak, Naren said, though it remains to be seen whether this is a ruse. After last time, the Malish won't want to rush into another pitched battle. They'll try to slip past our guard and capture Colin while it's undefended. And we're sure we can stop them. I think we've traveled together long enough for you to know we're never sure of anything. Naren made a sound that was almost, but not quite, a chuckle. In that case, I look forward to finding out what we're about to do. Dante hunched behind the pale green sagebrush, certain that one pair of eyes among the five thousand passing below would be sharp enough to spot him. He was perched on a hill on the west end of the Valley of Northern Spirits. Behind and to his right, grey seas churned under slate skies. A Malish cavalry vanguard had already claimed the eastern rim of the valley, holding it against the several hundred coloners who had made a desperate march to cut the enemy off before they could penetrate deep into the basin. The remainder of the Malish army was on the verge of catching up. Thousands of men in blue shirts gathered on the western rim. A strip of land directly along the coast was raised thirty feet above the ocean as well as the valley it sloped down to on the other side. It was here that the coastal road ran. No more than a hundred feet wide, the rise would have made a natural choke point, but the Malish had beaten them there, 
Already the infantry were starting to cross, forming two well-ordered columns. Blaze shifted beside him. Any sign of Gladdick? A few priests, but none that looked like a shambling corpse. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Dante hesitated. I don't know, but it's what we've got. The blue shirts marched onward, the stamp of their boots carrying on the damp, cool air. The smell of rotting kelp drifted up from rocky, crab-pocked beaches. Dante waited until the army was strung out along the entire length of the elevated road, then drew his knife and slipped it along his arm. Blood trickled down his wrist. He dived into the dirt, rushing forward along the strip of land the road lay on. The earth there wasn't a solid mass of rock. Rather, it was a mixed jumble of boulders and hard-packed silt and sand, like the mouth of a river gone dry, then disguised by the deposits left by a few hundred years of oceanic waves. He found a soft spot near the western bank and shook it loose. The outer wall collapsed into the ocean. Gray-green water rushed forward, sluicing inward. Dante softened the soil in front of it, and the water surged on, churning and brown, pummeling all the way through the dirt and into the valley on the other side. The ocean roared through the gap, ripping it wider. Men were screaming, running for the eastern edge of the strip. Dante opened a second channel there, cutting them off. The water flooding through the two channels would have done away with the plug of boulders and silt by itself, but Dante had no intention of giving the Malish priests the time to figure out an escape. He continued to jostle and weaken the soil, letting the titanic strength of the ocean take care of the rest. The strip of land shrank on all sides, opening a third gap through it, then a fourth. Soldiers ran from the crumbling embankments as the land dwindled beneath their feet, spilling them into the tide like grain poured into a boiling pot. A few flung themselves over the northern banks. The foamy eddies swallowed them up. Dante watched with a perspective that didn't feel entirely human. On the eastern shore of the flooded valley, the coroners unleashed a battle cry that could barely be heard over the torrential wash of the sea. They charged the Malish vanguard, which had scattered from their formation, trying to get away before the flood claimed them next. Dante watched from afar as the most organized of the enemy commanders redrew their lines. Most didn't. The coroners punched through their slipshod ranks like a spear through untanned leather. In a matter of minutes, five thousand men had been reduced to five hundred. On the west bank, less than two hundred yards from where Dante crouched in the sagebrush, Malish officers yelled commands to their men. Dante killed each officer with a bolt of black nether. The enlisted men cried out and danced back, covering their heads. Dante reached out with his right hand. Black mist congealed over the fallen bodies, sinking into their skin. The dead staggered to their feet, 
launching themselves at the men they'd once commanded, biting ragged hunks of flesh from faces and necks. Blaze grunted. I almost feel bad for them. If they'd taken the basin, they would have murdered every last person in it. I said almost. Dante brought ten more undead to their feet. They grappled with the soldiers and made clumsy hacks with their swords. After a brief skirmish, the surviving soldiers broke, streaming west through the yellow grass. Why are you letting them go? Blaze said. So that they'll be able to tell King Charles the story of what happened here. The entire valley had flooded for miles inland, running all the way to where Dante had started his barricade of ridges and ravines. He and Blaze rode north along the new arm of the sea. The water was as brown as tilled earth, sloshing chaotically as it made sense of its new shape. The waterway was at least a quarter of a mile across at its narrowest, widening to a mile or more at others. Conceivably, the Malish could sail a fleet up it and debark on the eastern bank. But with a few watchmen along the coast, the colonists would have no troubles defending it. The rocky cliffs bordering the shore would prevent a landing elsewhere. The barrier was complete. They swung around the northern tip of the inlet and struck south along the eastern shore. Blaze scanned the horizons. Suppose the walking fish made it out. No idea, Dante said, and I'm not sure if I want them to have. Blaze laughed. You're in a dark mood these days. That's the natural reaction to getting jerked around. He was quiet for a moment. The Noran are stubborn, but they aren't stupid. After we found the face of Dozen Doe, Carter knew we weren't just lunatics. She would have people watching for any signs of trouble. Then I'm sure they had a great time watching the giant, inescapable flood. We warned them. We did everything they asked of us. If they chose to stay, then that's on them. Riders appeared ahead. Cord galloped at the front of the colonists who'd crushed the Malish vanguard, grinning like she'd gone mad. She reined her mount to a stop, dust blossoming from its hooves. Friends! She carried her wheel in one hand. Both the point of its spear and the iron ball on its butt were coated in blood. Do you know what we've done? Won a war, Blaze said, or are you referring to this brand new beach you've acquired? We did more than win. As I killed the Malish, I felt the calling of the gods. This was where they always meant for us to triumph. We've fulfilled our destiny. Around her, the other soldiers thrust up blades, spears, and fists, and screamed at the sky. Colin is free, Cord bellowed. Today and forever, Colin is free. Free! The atmosphere among the other soldiers was equally ecstatic, almost religious in its fervor. When Dante and Blaze returned to the city of Colin, they were greeted with such overwhelming gratitude, Dante was afraid his ass would fall off from all the kissing.
Men rolled kegs of beer into the street, pouring cups for any and all. People danced in the squares, while women strung strips of red cloth between the upper windows of the buildings. Boggs had arranged a great feast for them, peppered asparagus and quail eggs, venison with gravy, squares of almond paste served at the end. The volume of beer tapped for the occasion was enough to flood the Valley of Northern Spirits all over again. Have you ever seen people this happy? Blay said, between bites of red venison. At a nearby table, two men were in the process of falling out of their seats from laughter. Others were dancing with their plates in hand, asparagus spilling to the tile floor. No, Dante said. But then again, I've never seen people celebrating the end of nine hundred years of armed occupation. Until that moment, he'd felt removed from the outrageous good cheer of the colonists. But when he put their achievements into words, he was brightened. No matter how much awful shit had come attached to the victory, they had nonetheless done some good for the world. He was kept up late by the well-wishers of a steady stream of farmers, who in Colin were granted the esteem of minor lords. At last, he was allowed to sleep. He dreamed of walking a world free from people, questing in perfect solitude. As he moved on, the landscape shifted around him with each step, and he was supposed to find a silver doorway with the other side holding the answers to all his questions. Yet every time he glimpsed it and tried to walk toward it, the world shifted again, and the doorway disappeared. When he woke, he summoned a meeting of the hand at their customary balcony. To his lack of surprise, no one was in a state to convene until well into the afternoon. Even the keeper had the glassy eyes and flushed skin of someone who'd struggled valiantly to empty a keg all by herself. I'd congratulate you on your victory, Dante said, but from the look of your face, you probably don't remember it. Boggs laughed raspily. As soon as we're done at this table, I'll be getting back to the one with venison and ale on it. We would never be here without you, the keeper croaked. Thank you for your aid, and for playing the part given you. Dante raised his eyebrows. The part was given to me. More like thrust upon Clobbered by, as if with a giant mallet, Blaze said. Ground up and fed to, like corn to a fatted calf. You have made your point, the keeper said. Regardless, you will always have friends and a home in Colin. Will you require horses for your journey back to Narashtovic? You think we're leaving? Dante frowned out at the sunny fields below the butte. I don't see any snows yet. Marlon is defeated. They won't have time for a third attack before winter. 
I doubt that they have the will to continue the war at all. I expect you're right. But this isn't the first time the Colin Basins booted them out, is it? They've always come back. It might take years, but the King's army will return. Let them! Cord pounded her fist on the table. You've built a barrier from one end of our nation to the other. If they want to shed their blood against it, we'll use it to water our wheat. It isn't the barrier I'm concerned about. Not when they have a much easier route into Colin. He unfolded a map he'd copied from one of their own. Setting his finger over Bressel, he moved out to sea, tracing his way along the coast. Our coasts are sheer cliffs, Bog said. But they can make landfall in the strip, come straight up through our guts. Dante tapped the coastline. That's what I'd do. If you want this victory to last, you're going to need allies, starting with the strip of Alebolgia. They will have no desire to ally with us, the keeper said. They wouldn't even sell us grain. Blaze twirled a knife in the air, catching it by the blade. That was before you kicked King Charles's ass clean off his hips. Go to them now, while the afterglow of your victory is still blinding everyone, and they might switch sides. Even if they don't, you can't leave the matter there, Dante said. The cities of the Strip are ruled by individual families, right? Dynastic houses, Bog said. Families with fancy titles. Go straight to the top and see if they'll support you. I've been running the twill business for years now. I know that nobody does nothing out of the goodness of their hearts. It's one thing to run a business. It's another to run a kingdom. There are always houses who aren't happy with the current order. If the ruling house isn't willing to help you, we might have to replace it with one that is. They prepped for the trip that same day. Dante was fairly sure the news of the battle would reach the coastal cities on its own, but just in case rumor was sleepier than normal, he had Boggs dispatch a rider to the south. It would be best if the houses had a few days to gossip and scheme amongst each other before the colony's delegation arrived. They left the next morning. Boggs, Dante, Blaze, and the Keeper, who seemed hell-bent to take every opportunity she could to violate her oath not to leave the reborn shrine. Then again, considering the reborn shrine was in the midst of being rebuilt from the ground up, Remaining in it would be something of a health hazard. They took a small retinue of servants and soldiers as well. Dante thought about using the time to ask the keeper to show him more of the ether, but the thought of spending so much time talking with her was exhausting. Maintaining his temper while he traveled with her was hard enough. After two days of riding... The landscape shifted to rolling hills of tall grass and stunted trees. Small farms gathered the slopes, trellises of vines growing in orderly rows. 
Most had already been harvested, but a few sections sagged with bunches of red grapes hanging from the vine. What do they think they're doing? Blay said. Aren't the frosts due any day? Yes, forget the strip. Dante tightened his reins. We must save the wine. Laugh all you like. When dinner comes and you have nothing to drink but water, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. Phrasing them's the whole point, Bog said. Makes the sweetest wine you ever drank. The price they pull is even sweeter. According to Boggs, whose trade had left him well informed with regards to Colin's neighbours, the land they were currently crossing was under the control of a hilltop city called Poloa. Originally, it had been a colony of Cavana, the port city they were headed toward, but over the last several decades, its burgeoning wine trade had swelled its wealth and influence to the point where it had broken loose. Poloa, Cavana, and as many as a dozen other small cities composed the Strip of Alebolge. This was a geographical title, not a political one. The cities were regularly at war with each other. At the moment, however, Alebolge was trying out a radical new notion known as peace. By presenting a unified front, it was hoping to leverage more favorable deals from Malin, Path, and various trade partners to the south and out to sea. The group that had forged this alliance was House Itiego. Cavanese spice merchants, they'd amassed a gigantic fortune which they were currently employing to make their home city the jewel of the Strip. With most of the coast being rugged cliffs or jagged reefs, the city was the only deep-water port in the area large enough to accommodate a Malish fleet. If the colonists could convince the Etiegos to deny Malin the right to make landing, the basin would be all but closed to attack. Their delegation arrived on a blustery afternoon. Gavana was dug into a steep hill overlooking the ocean, its levels descending in concentric rings down to its heart, the bustling piers where it did business. Arms of rock embraced the bay, protecting it from rough seas. Ships jammed the waterway. The grander houses were built with their backs against the hillside, pale stone with long slanted roofs to keep the rain off the verandas. The people of Alebolgia had the same olive-toned skin as in Malin and Colin, but the streets jostled with sailors and merchants from all corners of the known world. It was far smaller than Bressel or Narashtovic, home to no more than thirty thousand residents, yet it felt no less vibrant. House Itiego occupied a small hill of its own. Its sandstone central tower climbed to nearly three hundred feet, overlooking a sprawling compound of high walls and lush courtyards. The wrought iron gates were decorated with the albatrosses of the Etiego family crest. Boggs had sent a messenger ahead to announce their arrival. The gates were opened by pikemen wearing purple tabards, bearing the white albatross. The coroners were greeted by a man with thigh-high boots and a collar so big that a good gust of wind might blow him halfway to the plagued islands. Welcome to House Itiego, the man bowed over one knee. 
I am Gareno. Master Itiego awaits you in the Hall of Soaring Sails. Grooms materialized to lead their horses away. Several of the colonists' servants went with them. Gareno took the rest of the expedition to the central keep, a round and massive sandstone fortress with two shorter rectangular wings of the house extending in a V from the center. Inside, sunlight spilled through high windows, splashing the black marble floor. The hall was an immense cylinder, the walls rising for thirty feet before bending inward to meet in a dome. A walkway encircled the wall, just below where the ceiling began to curve, protected by a railing of thin copper bars. Great sheets of dirty canvas hung from the walls, completely at odds with the dark bleak wood furniture and copper fixtures. Garena's assurance that Itiego was awaiting them turned out to be highly optimistic. While they waited for his arrival, Gareno, who was either a high-ranking servant or a low-ranking noble, told them the history of the canvas sheets, which turned out to be from some of the house's most famous ships. He'd gotten halfway around the room when hard steps echoed from the front doors. Gareno smiled and bowed over his knee. My friends, give welcome to Tanelo Itiego, Lord of House Itiego, Prime Navigator of Cavana, and first speaker of the Confederated Cities of Alebolgia. The colonists made their bows. Dante winced. Malish nobles had trained them to bow as inferiors rather than as foreign equals, but though Lord Itiego surely noticed this lack of worldliness, no sign of it touched his expression. Like Gareno, he wore an enormous upthrust collar, which enfolded his head like a palm cupping an egg. He had hard, narrow features, like carved wood, and a long black moustache that drooped below his chin. His boots were turned down above the knee. He wore a dark coat, fitted at the waist that was crossed with multiple belts. As Gareno introduced them, Itiego gave them each a respectful nod. His gaze lingered for an extra moment or two on Blaze, who could have passed for a coroner, and then Dante, whose features were a picture of the basin's mortal enemies. In Cavana, Itiego said, in staccato-voweled, accented malice, we have a saying, what separates us from the fish is that, among people... Sometimes it is the smaller who wins. Congratulations, then, to the victory of the smaller fish. Cord grinned, rolling her shoulders. Are you calling me short? Only your odds, General. Ah, then I won't have to give you a display of how we sent the malish running. Itiego's eyebrows flickered, as if he couldn't decide how to feel. Then he laughed. The only red I tolerate being spilled on these floors is wine. Be seated, and let's have some. They took their places around a bleak wood table. Servants arrived with pewter cups of wine. Itiego toasted the Colin Basin's victory. Dante was no expert on vintages, but every sip of the deep red seemed to taste like a different.
I am happy to hear the war concluded so swiftly, Itiego said. Given the nature of my last contact with Colin, I was afraid a siege might prove very costly. Blaze gave Dante a flat look. Dante blinked twice, the equivalent of a nod. Itiego was making a gambit to get them to boast about how exactly they'd ruined a superior Malish army in the open field. He'd heard rumors, no doubt, but was now trying to determine how much truth was in them. And thus, how much, if any, he needed to fear the people in front of him. We took a risk, Cord said, and our victory was so large, Gashin must treasure us like his own children. Gashin, Itiego raised a thin, dark brow. O'Fannon. Boggs chuckled. Got to wonder what the Malish did to piss off the lords of war and the sea. I'm sure their priests will be scurrying to divine the same thing. In any event, I'm glad events turned out as they have. That's so. Last time we sent people your way, you seemed happy to send them back empty-handed. There was nothing happy in that decision. In hindsight, I'm sure there wasn't, but only because you gambled on the wrong horse. Itiego stared Boggs down. Dante wasn't sure if it was a rebuke or if he was just taking the man in. Boggs's face was chapped and weather-beaten. His speech was as plain as yesterday's bread. He was a good fit to lead the farmers and soldiers of Colin. It was an open question as to what kind of fit he would make with the lords and merchants of Alebolgia. Publicly, I said many things to many people, Itiego said. In the interior of my heart, however, I hoped that Colin would win. Not because I admire you so much, mind you, nor because of any especial dislike for the Malish. Rather because your survival, and one hopes your growth, is better for balance. Just as you must prefer that the cities of the Strip remain independent and not proxies of the Empire on your doorstep. That is so. In the echoing hall, the Keeper's deep voice sounded like a godly command. And that is what brings us here. For the first time in years, Colin is free. For the first time in ages, we will keep it that way. We have secured our borders with Malon. We request that Kavana closes its port to their army. Why would we do such a thing? It's as you just said. If you let them land their troops, and they steal our lands from us once more, then they also steal the balance of the region. Itiego leaned back. Without breaking eye contact with the keeper, he accepted a glass of wine from a nearby servant. Do you understand why the cities of Elebolgia fare so well? An abundance of wise leadership, Blaze said, which includes an immunity to flattery. Are any of you familiar with The Gold Road? Dante nodded. I've read it. Itiego smiled strangely. 
I would have thought you'd consider it heresy. Do you think that makes it less interesting? In Kavana, indeed, across the entire strip of Alebolgia, you might say our only heresy is the concept of heresy itself. This is taught in the Gold Road. In it, Carvajal shows that everything must flow. Oceans and rivers, people and currency, and ideas too. Just as still water goes stagnant, so does a still mind. It must be fed with a constant flux of ideas. That sounds good enough, Blay said, but flowing water is the kind with all the monsters in it. To damn the waters is to damn yourself, Itiego continued, as if Blaze had never spoken. That is why we call nothing heretical. To do so would be to place a dam on ideas. It is just as important not to place a dam on trade, for currency is the water that nourishes civilization. He paused, thin eyebrows raised, letting that sink in. This is why I can make no agreement to cease business with Mellon. You could still sell them whatever you like, Bog said. All we're asking is you don't let them march an army in through our back door. You fail to understand. They pay for the right. To sell them this right costs us nothing. To take it away is to take prosperity from my people, and to threaten my people with war. For picture this scene. Itiago stood, pacing around the table, gazing up at the sails strung from the walls. You are Charles IV upon your throne. Your province of Colin has thrown out your military, repulsed a second attack. Now, when you approach Gavana, long a friend, open to all offers, Gavana shuts you out of its ports. Very curious. This act violates Kavana's deepest principles. Why would it do such a thing? Has Colin paid them to close their port? So, you make an offer of your own to reopen it. It is a good offer, but sadly, Kavana turns it down. So you make a second offer, one that Colin can't possibly have matched. He clicked his heels together and swiveled toward Boggs. What happens now? If Kavana accepts Mellon's offer, then the agreement with Colin is null. If Kavana rejects the offer, it exposes an alliance between itself and Colin. This means that Kavana is now an enemy of Mellon. Isn't it thus within Mellon's rights to pursue war against Kavana? To pluck the jewel of Alabolgia? and add it to its own crown? Itiego stopped, face tilted forward, hands clasped behind his back. Silence fell over the room, as heavy as wet canvas. Cord stood. Have faith in your strength. You can defeat them as we did. But, General, that is not the point. Win or lose, war destroys both sides. I will have no part of it. Not today, and not ever.
Chapter 9 Rosha stood in the doorless room behind the chapel wall, feeling the nether drain from her body. Another two seconds, maybe three, and it would be gone. She'd come too far to lose the loot. She snatched up the second cycle of her own and stumbled toward the wall she'd walked in through. She was already falling out of the shadows, the light and smoke fading to plain darkness. Her right heel caught in something firm. She spilled onto the floor of the room beyond, the boot ripping from her foot. She spun about. The boot jutted from the wall, its heel embedded in the rock. In dumb disbelief, she set down the book, grabbed her boot, and pulled. It was like trying to uproot an oak with your bare hands. She fell on her back, breathing hard. She was on the fourth floor of the chapel, with two guards outside the doors, in the middle of the sealed citadel. And she didn't have a drop of juice left. Squeezing her eyes tight, she gave herself a moment to scream, internally, mentally and to pound her fists against the lush rug. With that task completed, Rosha took inventory. She had the book, and judging by the way it had stolen the shadows from her, as well as the blinding, terrifying light it had cast when she'd seen it within the netherworld, it was the true copy. The first copy. The one that, according to rumor, could turn you into a sorcerer. She also had a way out. Vess's exit. What she didn't have was a way to get to the exit without being riddled with arrows, spears, and bolts of shadow. Would have to do it the old-fashioned way. On her arrest, the guards had confiscated everything but her clothes. Searching the room, she found a small knife— if you could call it that, designed for trimming quills and such, you'd have to put it in the exact right spot to kill someone with it. Still, better than nothing. No matter how hard she tried, she couldn't pull her boot loose from the wall. Instead, she took off her other shoe and hid it under a chair, then draped a table cover over the stuck boot. She put the book she'd taken from the case back on top of the glass. Somebody might wonder what idiot had left it out of its case, but at least it wouldn't look like anything was stolen. Long black curtains hung beside the windows. She took one down. Using the knife to start the tear, she ripped off a length of cloth and wrapped it around her head, leaving a slit for her eyes. She wrapped the remainder of the curtain around her torso, tucking her book underneath it, snug against her back. She climbed into a window and took a peek out. Forty feet down to a cobbled surface. Not the sort of thing you wanted to fall from. At the same time, she didn't want to leave a makeshift robe dangling forty feet to the ground. Someone would spot that before she'd made it over the walls. She pulled down a second curtain, cut it into four wide strips, and knotted them together. 
She tied one end around her left wrist. She went back to the window and checked the stars, closing in on one o'clock. At three o'clock, the guards were scheduled to make a change. One of the sentries had been paid very well by Vess to leave a door unlocked in the outer walls. Rasha would enter the door, climb the stairs to the top of the wall, then jump down into a hay wagon Vess had parked outside. Rasha was tempted to kill time reading the book, but you never played with your loot before you had it home. Good thing she waited. Not five minutes later, a key scrabbled in the lock to the door. She popped to her feet and into the window. As she dropped out, the door's hinges squeaked open. Rasha gritted her teeth, stomach flopping as she began to fall. With the rope of curtains tied around her left wrist, she grabbed hold of the loose end with her right hand, forming a loop. She snared this around the body of the gargoyle, the rope snapped taut, slamming her against the outer wall of the chapel. She dangled, heart racing like it was ready to gallop out of her throat. Above her, men's voices murmured from inside the room she'd just vacated. She was secure, but if they glanced out the window, she was done. Holding tight to the loose end of the curtain, she let out some slack, lowering herself until her foot touched another gargoyle. She crouched atop it, holding on with her left hand, then let go of the curtain with her right, gathering it in. Looping the curtain around the gargoyle she was standing on now, she lowered herself to the third floor window. This looked into a dark room. She stuffed herself into the window and waited. Two hours later, the bells of the Cathedral of Ivars rang the clapper muffled so as not to wake the entire city. Rasha bided another five minutes, then used the loop of curtains to descend the face of the chapel. The feel of her bare toes against solid ground had never felt so good. She untied the rope from her wrist, watching the night. She'd spent the last two hours watching the patrol routes of the sentries. She waited for a gap in the coverage, then crossed the courtyard at a brisk walk, coming to the tall outer wall. She counted down doors to the one Vess had bribed the guard to keep unlocked. She tried it, stuck fast. Heart back to doing its best impression of a stallion, she tried again. It jerked open. Whispering a dozen curses, she moved into the gloomy stairwell, smelled like sweaty men. She jogged up it, bare feet silent on the stone treads, and barged right into a guard on his way down. He swore, slapping a palm against the wall for support. What the hell? Rasha swept the rope of curtains around his throat and pulled it as tight as she could, entangling the fabric around her elbows for extra leverage. The man gave a single, strangled gasp, then whacked at her head with his fists, but they were so close he couldn't put any strength behind the blows. Within seconds, he sagged. She kept the pressure on until his eyes bulged from his purple face. His weight dragged down against her makeshift rope. Shit. Shit. 
Nowhere to put the body. Would have to get over the wall before someone found him. She left it and hurried up the stairs, poking her head from the trapdoor-style entrance to the top of the wall. And caught her first break. No guards in sight in either direction. The wagon was supposed to be ten paces ahead. Rosha hurried along the Merlins, counting steps. At ten, she stopped and leaned over the wall. The wagon wasn't there. Her chest froze. Had Vess betrayed her? Gotten arrested? It was a thirty-foot fall to the ground. The walls were smooth rock, deliberately unclimbable. The ground below was dirt rather than pavement, but that wouldn't help much. Looking closer, she spotted a small pile of something directly below her, but it was too dark to say what. A silhouette moved along the wall, coming her way. She grabbed both ends of her makeshift rope, slung it around a merlin, and swung over the side. She jerked to a stop after falling six feet, the rope sliding from her right hand. Between the length of the rope and her arms, she'd cut nearly ten feet from the descent, but there was still a hell of a lot of space between her and the ground. The rope slipped out from her fingers. She flattened herself against the wall, slowing herself, but this pushed her away after a fall of a few feet. Empty air whisked past her, the rope of curtains fluttering behind her, the pile rushed to meet her. She got in position, landing with a crunch of straw. As she tucked into a roll, pain seared through her right ankle. She popped to her feet, ankle giving out beneath her. Broken, no doubt. But hurried steps were smacking along the top of the wall. Already sweating cold drops, Rasha hobbled into the city as fast as she could. You're hurt. It's nothing. Rasha took a step toward the bench, limping hard. That's not true. Hurts like Gashin whacked it with an axe handle. Let me see. Vess kneeled beside her, undoing the cloth Rasha had wrapped tight around her bare foot and lower leg, revealing an ankle so swollen you couldn't tell where the calf ended. Broke good or else you need to start eating less fry bread and more fish. What happened out there? Rasha stared through the darkness of the sweet-smelling courtyard. She'd considered stashing the book on her way there, claiming she hadn't been able to find it. If she had what she thought it was, it was worth killing for. But if she was going to pay back the Citadel for what they'd done to the Order— and what they'd try to do to her adoptees, she was going to need help. If Vess had inclinations to betray her, she'd had plenty of opportunities already. Rasha gave Vess the rundown, altering everything that had to do with shadow-walking. At the end, she shot Vess a dark look. What happened to your end of the deal, not a great time to cheap out on the wagon. Vess shook her head. We put the wagon where I said the wagon would be put. The guards, they ran us off. 
I dumped out some straw for you. Best I could do. Vess offered her a drop of white weed to help with the pain. Rasha swallowed it, working her tongue around to be rid of the bitterness. Guess a broken ankle is a great excuse to get some reading done, she said. Want to take a look? She removed the book from the makeshift sling she'd wrapped around her back. Seeing the white tree on the cover, Vessa's face went as sober as a malish priest. Sure this is safe? It's a book that can supposedly turn ordinary people into sorcerers. It's about as safe as swinging a sword by the wrong end. Well, we got it. Waste of good taking not to check it out. Rorschach propped the empty tome on her knees and opened the front cover. There were no signatures in this copy. She flipped through a few freakish illustrations to the first page of text. She frowned. What the hell is this? Vess leaned over, neck extended as she examined the page. Malice. Rasha paged forward. Why would the holiest book of the Gaskin region be written in Malish? Don't know. Want to complain, or to hear me tell you what it is that it says? Rasha examined her for signs she was joking. Vess couldn't even speak Gaskin right. With nothing to lose, she handed the heavy book to the other woman. By all means. Vess ran her finger over the first few sentences, muttering under her breath. She cleared her throat. In slow and sometimes backtracking words, she began to read. Within the first minute, Rasha knew what she was hearing. The story of how Aron came for and eventually spared the life of a man named Janf. Vess stumbled here and there, complaining that she hadn't seen several of the words before and doubted if they were malice. Despite this, Rasha got the gist of nearly everything, helped by how often she'd heard the story before. After they talked briefly, concluding that there was nothing that stood out to them, Vess read onward, telling tales of kings, heroes, sorcerers, and gods. After the better part of an hour, Rasha stopped her. Vess raised an eyebrow. Feel anything? From what? Rasha pinched her upper lip. These are just... Stories. In the church every week, what do they do? Tell stories. How is any of this going to teach us to throw the nether around? Don't know. How do stories teach you how to live, act, be? Rasha quashed a sigh. Vess read on, but it was more of the same. As dawn neared, Rasha was having a hard time keeping her eyes open, despite the steady throb of pain in her ankle. Noticing this, Vess tucked a ribbon into the book to mark her place and closed the covers. Think we done for the night, yeah? Yeah. Rasha rubbed her eyes. Question. When we go our separate ways for the day, who gets the book?
I do. You can't even read it. But I'm the one who snagged it, at great personal risk. Vess shrugged. Don't have a head full of dumb. You're the master thief in this city. I take it from you, and you just take it right back. Ha, Rosha said. We'll split it. Cut it in half? Good thinking. Vess reached for a knife. Rosha slapped at Vess's hand. Are you crazy? If this is what we think it is, we can't desecrate it. Aron would burn us to a cinder, then send a plague of locusts to eat the ashes. We'll alternate nights with it. You can have it first. You got more trust than most of us. Maybe. Or maybe I'm just sure that if you run off, I will find you. Vess grinned and helped Rasha to her feet. The other woman whistled softly to one of her goons, ordering him to send for a horse. He came back with a donkey. Rasha didn't care. At that point, her ankle hurt so bad she would have ridden home on a flatulent goat. Before sleeping, she had the order's physician set her ankle. Wasn't fun. A hefty swallow of rum and whiteweed helped. When she woke up, she grabbed a mug of tea, spiked it with more whiteweed to take the teeth from her pain, and tore through the day's business. As soon as she was done, she sent a runner to Vess, who showed up an hour later. Rasha smiled. You didn't run off with it. Decided it wouldn't be fair. Vess nodded at her splinted leg. With that, you'd never catch me. They retired to Rasha's office. Vess opened the book and began to read. As she narrated stories of Jack Hand and Starthus the Wise, a weight mounted in Rasha's gut. Even when the cycle was talking about the feats of the greatest nethermancers in the history of the shadows, there was no mention of how they did what they did. What if the rumors she'd heard about its power to train you were as wildly off the mark as most rumors were? What if they reached the end of the book, a process that could waste weeks given how long it was, and found they were no different from when they started? That's that. Vess closed the book, standing and stretching her arms about her head. Rasha glanced at the window. It had gone dark, which was a surprise, but it couldn't have been that late. Come on, there's way more night than this. Got a thing needs doing that needs me to do it. Keep the book. Maybe you can't read it, but it's thick enough you can use it to prop your foot on. Rasha grinned. See you tomorrow, asshole. Once Vess was gone, Rasha hobbled to her door, locked it, and sat down across from the book. Sitting in front of her, the cycle didn't look like anything special. Old, yeah, but nothing like the ethereal hellstorm that had nearly gotten her trapped inside a doorless room that was hardly big enough to sit down in. Had that been the book itself, or a booby trap set to protect the book? Grimacing, wary, 
she eased into the shadows. As before, light spewed from the book like a lord expelling his fourth bottle of wine. Tendrils of darkness lashed from her to the pages. The shadows poured from her like blood. Her instincts were to jump out of the dark world as fast as she could, but the book didn't seem to be hurting her. And this time there was no danger of getting trapped. Specks of darkness floated in the air, like mist churned up by the torrent of nether. She looked closer. The specks were tumbling toward her, landing on her skin and sinking in. The book was draining her, yes. This time, though, it was also giving something back. Within moments, the book had sucked her dry, booting her out of the nether. Compared to the shining silver of the other world, the room around her was as dark as a cave. The weight on her stomach eased up. There was something potent about the book. All she had to do was find out how to unlock it. They fell into a comfortable, if frustrating, routine, handling their responsibilities each morning, meet up by early afternoon, read the cycle together until well after the sun had set. Day by day, Rasha's ankle hurt less and less. In the normal world, she still couldn't walk without a crutch, but in the nether world, she was so light on her feet, she felt no pain at all. If anything, visiting the other realm seemed to hasten her healing. Feel any power? Vess asked a few nights into their effort. Any feeling like you could clench your fist and make the walls fall down? Rasha shook her head. The only thing I feel is the urge to go ask a priest why all their old heroes were so murderous. How about you? Feel like I need to get one of my lowlings to write a book about me. Maybe we call it The Cycle of Vess. It was like being dumped overboard far from sight of land. No way to tell which direction to head in. No way to tell if they were even getting close to something. It didn't take long before she was frustrated. Angry. Ready to toss the book in the bay and forget it. But she had to press on. Until the nether was hers, she'd never be able to protect her people from the citadel, or to take her revenge. Whenever Vess hit a point where a nethermancer was doing his or her thing, Rasha took notes, quoting anything that might point to their methods. At the end of each session, she and Vess went back over everything Rasha had jotted down, phrases like, When Eosa's breathing matched the nether, at last she felt it on her fingers, or, And so Kamratis spilled his blood, and the darkness flocked, and his foes fell before it. Each night she had the book to herself. She stood before it in the shadows, watching it pull the nether from her body and into its pages, the black dust rising from it and settling into her skin. The first time she'd encountered the book, the process had been almost instant. 
After having four nights with it, though, it was taking twenty seconds before the cycle drained her to nothing. And each time took a little longer than the last. Because she was making progress. Or was the opposite true? And the book was slowing down because it was petering out, like an unbunged barrel getting down to its last few drops. Midway through the night's reading session with Fess, Rasha stood, stretching her back. Gonna hit the privy. She walked into her office's front room, opening and shutting the door to the hallway. She shifted into the nether and moved back into her main office, where Vess was hunched over the book. Dark tendrils stretched between Vess and the cycle, but they were much thinner than Rasha was used to, more like threads than yarn. There were hardly any dark specks in the air either. Though the specks were sinking into Vess's skin, they seemed less excited about it, like snow landing on cobbles and taking a long time to melt. Whatever was happening to the two of them, it was happening at different rates. In hindsight, not that surprising. Everyone had the nether in them. According to some people, everyone could learn to use it, but in practice, the talent varied widely. Most could train for years and never learn to summon more than a drop. That thought exposed a hundred others, like ruins unearthed by a sudden flood. Funny how much you could forget if you tried. You didn't have one life, you had many, as separate from each other as towns strung out along a road. People like to think their lives were a progression, a building upon, as cohesive as a song, complete with crescendo. But it was more like a bard who'd gotten so drunk he couldn't remember which story he was telling. Every ten minutes he'd switch to a new one, leaving his audience annoyed and confused. Vess turned a page. Rasha blinked. Still in the shadows. She returned to the foyer, dropped back into the plain world, and rejoined Vess at the table. Vess glanced up. Ready to go on? Where else am I going to hear about how Jack Hand killed another rat? Vess smirked. She launched into a new story about one of the nethermancers who'd been imprisoned in a tower or a dungeon and was fiddling around with the rats in it. Rasha tried to listen, but it felt like her mind was ready to vomit, and her whole dinner was on its way up. She closed her eyes and let it come. Her mom had died giving birth to her. Her dad was a woodsman, and they lived in a log shack in the pine forests outside the city. She remembered being happy. She remembered little else except for the way the sunlight pierced through the pine needles the feeling of a blizzard outside while you had a fire and blankets inside. The spicy smell on her father's breath that she would recognize years later as rum. When she was five, he cut himself while felling a tree. He'd probably been drunk. 
and the wound became infected. She told him to see a priest. He said they didn't have the money. He lay in bed with his rum, which he said would drive the infection out. Within five days, he was too weak to get out of bed. He was pale and had dark streaks on the arm where he'd been hurt. He asked her to go and get their neighbor, a young farmer named Garen, who always talked about finding a wife. She did so. She brought Garen in, and her father sent her outside. After a few minutes, Garen exited, gave her a tight smile, and headed to the city. It was hours before Garen came back. Rosha's dad sent her outside again. When Garen walked out, he told her that her father wanted to see her. The inside of the cabin smelled funny. Her dad gripped her hand tight. Your aunt and uncle will be here tomorrow morning. They'll care for you. What about you? I'll come for you when I'm better, he smiled. It won't be long. By morning, he was dead. Rasha waited all day, and then the next. Then she went through the forest to Garen's and told him what had happened. He said he was sorry to hear that. I can take care of you, he said, and when you're older, we can take care of each other. After all, time turns stems into flowers. He smiled. It was a selfish smile. When he went out to tend his fields, Rasha ran into the city. She looked for her aunt and uncle every day. As she searched, she learned the city was a place where, if you wanted to eat, you had to steal. She got used to the taste of hard bread and soft cucumbers. There were other children there, too, filthy and quick-footed. Most would steal from her if they saw she had something, but some became her friends. They helped her look for her aunt and uncle, warned each other when the city watch was coming, shared crusts and cheese when they'd nicked more than they could eat. The streets had a fleetingness to them. People came and went. Sometimes they came back after a few days, but sometimes she saw them months later, servants in the retinue of the rich. Often she never saw them again. Often she was cold. Always she was hungry. In winter, which in Narashtivik lasted nearly five months, she was both. She still wasn't sure how she'd made it through the first winter. By the time the air began to warm, the points of her hips and shoulders could pierce leather. Before the snow melted, her shoes rotted off. She tried to eat them, but her jaw got sore before they were soft enough to swallow. The snows still hadn't thawed. Ice cut the soles of her feet, leaving bloody tracks behind her. Every day, the pain got worse. Soon she might not be able to walk at all. In the streets, your feet were your life. Couldn't walk, and you couldn't steal. Couldn't run, and someone would catch you. 
and the kids and the crazies weren't the only ones out there. Men walked through the crowds, faces as cold as a blizzard, hunting those like Rasha. The children of none that no one would miss. If your feet hurt too bad to run, they'd take you. You'd be one of the street people who disappeared and never came back. She tried to hole up, giving herself the chance to heal, but if she hid out for more than a day, her stomach hurt worse than her feet. She limped from block to block, trailing blood through the snows that fell every afternoon. Roshok prayed to Aron to melt the ice, but it only got worse. One day, on her way to the alley where Walden the baker sometimes took pity and gave them his old bread, the hurt got worse than it had ever been, like nails were being pounded up through the bottom of her feet. Her vision speckled over from pain. She dropped to her knees, palm braced on the freezing ground. She could get up. Maybe she could get home. But that would be it. The only question from there was whether she froze or starved. She hung her head. Footsteps crunched in front of her. Rasha opened her eyes, expecting a beating from a city watchman sick of yet another of Narashtovic's fleas falling in the middle of a public street. Instead, she saw another girl, a year or two older, too dirty to be from anywhere but the streets. Take these. The girl held out a pair of shoes. Rasha frowned. Trap. But it didn't matter anymore, did it? She reached out, took the shoes. They were worn and cracked, but they were only a little bit loose. She smiled and tried not to cry. The girl's name was Alna. She helped Rasha until Rasha's feet healed up. Like that, they were best friends. For a year, they roamed the city together, fishing coins from pockets, nabbing broccoli and apples and squash from stalls, ducking the older kids. Alna was keen-eyed, fast to make a decision. She could read the mood of the street like a farmer read the weather. The day had happened was sunny, warm, a day and a season after Alna had saved Rasha's life. Rasha had only been away for a minute, running back to one of their stashes to pick up their fishing hook to try in the bay. But when she jogged back to the alley where Alna was waiting, it was empty. She ran into the street. Her eyes leaped at once to a tall man striding down the street, a young girl held limply in his arms. Rasha sprinted after them. She hadn't gotten three steps before another man turned. His face was as cold as all the other takers. He strode toward her, hands open by his sides. Rasha turned down a side street, empty except for a few vacant stalls merchants had parked out of the way. The man was almost on her. He lunged for her. His sleeve pulled back, revealing a tattoo of a spider on his wrist. She dived behind a stall. Footsteps moved around the side of the stall. A shudder racked Rasha. A shadow and a shimmer seemed to pass over the world, dimming it. 
The man swung around the side of the stall. He seemed to look right through Rasha, then swore and ran further down the alley. As the world brightened around Rasha, the man's steps faded to nothing. She edged back to the way she'd come in. Alna was gone. Rasha never saw her again. Alone, she grew reckless, stealing coin purses, whole meat pies, packets of spice. She knew the city well enough to get away, most times. Other times she caught a beating, but it almost felt good. And now and then, when she was running or hiding, the dimness came over her, and it was like they couldn't see her at all. She was jogging away from one such escape when she bumped right into a pair of legs, a woman stood over her, tall and tanned, looking as calm and strong as one of the statues outside the big cathedral where the monks shooed her away with brooms. Do you like this life? the woman said. Rasha turned to run. The woman made a subtle gesture, invisible hands seeming to grab hold of the bottoms of her shoes. The shoes Alna had given her, locking her in place. The tall woman gazed down at her. I can give you a different one. Rasha thought about spitting at her. Different what? A different life. No more hunger. No more stealing. No more being hunted. And what do I have to do for you? The hardest thing of all. You have to learn. Rorschach should have been afraid, but she'd come to hate the city. If she tried to leave it and something happened to her, then maybe that was okay. Maybe that was what was supposed to happen after what she had let happen to Alna. The tall woman's name was Yona. She had a horse. They rode out of the city through fields, pine forests, and hills full of huge, watchful men. Next came mountains, a valley of lakes, and another city. Past this, a grassy plain. Then, black cliffs, like storm clouds, strung across the end of the world. Yona called it Pocket Cove. There was no city, just the cliffs, the beach, and the ocean beyond. A few dozen women and girls lived in the cliffs. For the first time since her dad had died, she was given proper food. Crab soup in salty broth, mussels mixed with crispy brackish reeds, chunks of whitefish on beds of seaweed, mixed with tiny orange eggs that popped between her teeth in salty little snaps. If the food was the best thing, the second best was that she no longer had to look over her shoulder every second she was awake. There was no town watch. No bigger kids looking to rob her. No frozen-faced men with spiders tattooed on their wrists. Why did you bring me here? She asked after a few days. Because I think you can do something special. Yona softened her face, 
in what was almost a smile. You're starting to look healthy enough. It's time to begin. And then she taught Rasha to shadow walk. Rasha had already been touching the fringes of the other world, but only enough to hide herself from view, and only if she didn't move. Under Jonas' tutelage, Rasha learned to enter the netherworld itself, to walk in a land of blazing silver and deepest shadow. Finding it was like finding home. That was almost too easy, Yona said after a few months of honing her skill. But that's only a small fraction of what I think you can do. The nether you follow into the darkness, you're going to learn to wield it. It was nearing the end of the year, the waves lashed by wind and rain. Even so, Yona took Rasha out on the beach and told her things about the shadows. Rasha already knew how to see them, so Yona tried to show her how to touch them. Lesson after lesson, Rasha tried, and she failed. The rains turned to snow. One morning, with the wind biting Rasha's ears, Yona told her to strip down to her skin and swim out into the waves until Yona told her it was okay to come back. But it's so cold, Rasha said. That will bring you closer to the nether. Why? Because it will help you to understand death. Rasha didn't understand any of that. But I don't want to. When you agreed to come with me, you made a vow. Yona stood over her. Now strip and swim. Rasha looked up and down the beach. There was no one to go to. The cliffs hemmed them in. There was nowhere to run. Hating Yona, trying not to cry at the unfairness of it, she took off her clothes. The water was so cold her muscles locked up like rocks. Yona yelled her onward. She paddled into the waves, the breakers smashing down on her head. Salt water flooded her lungs. She turned back for shore, fighting to keep her head above water. Another wave swept her into the icy, swirling madness. Just as she was ready to let out her breath and inhale the cold water, sand scraped underfoot. She heaved herself ashore, bedraggled with kelp. I didn't tell you it was time to come back. Yona's voice was low, the warning of a growling dog. Go inside. She was left alone in the darkness of her room. After three days of solitude, Yona brought her back to the beach. Again, she tried to show Rasha how to touch the shadows. Further down the beach, a young girl swam in the swells, vanishing under walloping walls of grey water. She was watched by a grown woman standing among the kelp, stranded above the tide line. In time, the woman waved her in. The girl crawled in on hands and knees. She was nude. Her sodden black hair was stuck to her face, but Rasha identified her 
as Luru, who had been brought to the cove a few weeks before her. At the woman's orders, Luru stood naked to the wind. She shuddered so hard she fell to her side. The older woman made no effort to help her up. Day after day, Rasha got no closer to being able to touch the nether. Yona, once so optimistic about Rasha's potential, grew puzzled, then short. She sent Rasha out on another swim, then a third. Rasha tried her best to do as Yona said, but the shadows always seemed to be just out of her reach. Two months later, with the worst of the storms behind them and hints of spring in the air, Yona told her she was going to go up to the fingers, the black cliffs above the bay. She would be there alone for three days. It would be tough, and it would be painful. But it was that same fear and pain that would help her understand the shadows. Rorschach thrust out her lower jaw. It's going to be cold and wet, isn't it? How come you make me do these things? Our ancestors were hunted for years before they came to Pocket Cove. Since then, they fought off half a dozen Gascon invasions with no more than a hundred people. We have to be tough, Rorschach. Tougher than anyone who might want to kill us. Rasha lowered her head. They took her shoes, but at least they let her keep her clothes. The fingers were named like that because of the rocky spires that stuck up into the air, slick with moss and mist. Between the mist and the spires, you couldn't see more than sixty feet around you, which was terrible because the banks of moss were full of centipedes as big as rats. Going back to old habits, the first thing she did was try to find food. When her feet started to hurt, scraped by rocks, numbed by cold, she found a place in the lee of one of the spires where the wind-driven mist wasn't so bad, and sat down. It wasn't that much different from winters in Narashtavik, but it was still awful. On the second night, she broke down in tears. Why were they so mean? Were they bad people? Was she? Was that why her aunt and uncle hadn't come for her? Was this meant to punish her? For not saving her dad? For not stopping the man with the spider tattoo from taking Alna away? When the time came, starving and half-frozen, she limped down the staircase to the beach. Well, Yona asked, did you find any answers? Yeah. Rasha accepted a blanket from her. Maybe all I can do is shadow walk. Maybe I won't ever be able to use the nether. Careful, Rasha. This world isn't as firm as you think. Sometimes believing something is enough to make it true. Rasha nodded but she didn't believe that. Adults weren't always right, especially the ones here. They were weird and cruel. She thought they liked hurting kids. 
She hoped a giant wave came and washed them all away. A few days later, while she was outside hanging wet laundry, Luru stole up behind her. Luru's eyes were all lit up like when people had a fever. Rasha. She reached for Rasha's arm. They're sending me to the fingers. Rasha clipped another dress to the line. It's not that bad. Not that bad. I already been up there once. I got stung so many times. She lifted her shirt, revealing a dark crater in the skin below her ribs. It still hurts. When I tried to drink the water, it made me so sick I saw things. I thought I was going to die. But you didn't. You won't die this time either. You don't know that. It isn't just the fingers, Russia. It's making us swim in the cold without any clothes. It's making us work all morning and practice until night comes. I hate it. We have to leave. We can run away together. How? There's no way out from here, you dummy. We can find a way down the other side of the cliffs, or try to swim around them. We have to try. We can't, Rasha said. We agreed to this. We vowed it. Besides, if we try to run away and they catch us, don't you think they'll hurt us even worse? Luru stared at her, eyes awash with some inner fire. She turned and ran away. They sent Luru to the fingers the next day. The day after that, as Rasha and Yona stood on the beach, practicing the same old things for the two hundredth time, something fell from the cliffs to the north. It hit the rocks with a hard smack. Yona's face went as gray as the waves. She took off at a sprint. Rasha followed. And saw Luru's body, bent and bleeding, draped over the rocks. Yona bent over her, nether swirling to her hands and flowing into Luru. As she worked, the red-headed woman who bossed everyone around ran toward them from the caves. Face twisted in a grimace, she drew a knife and cut open her arm, showering the body with blood. Rasha yelled out in horror. Clouds of nether surrounded her, far more than Rasha had ever seen. But when they went away... Luru was still dead. They sent Rasha back to the fingers the next week. She walked to the far end, where the cliffs overlooked the prairies below, then walked north until she found a staircase carved into the rock. And then she ran away. Rasha! Hey, Rasha! Vess snapped her fingers under Rasha's nose. You listening, girl? Rasha glanced at the book spread across the desk. Sure. Then repeat to me the words I just said. Some boring stuff about some boring guy. Vess scowled at her, then chuckled. Not wrong, but if I have to suffer through this, so do you. Vess cleared her throat and continued reading. Rasha quit listening almost immediately. 
It had been sixteen years since she'd left Pocket Cove. She'd only been a child. They'd taught her to enter the world of light and dark. She gave them credit for that much. She'd tried and mostly succeeded to forget everything else they'd done to her. As Vess droned on, Rasha frowned. When the red-headed woman had cut herself, shedding her blood over the body, Rasha had thought it was some perverse ritual, a way to prepare the body for death, or maybe to profane it. She'd never been sure. But a line from the cycle echoed in her mind. Camrates spilled his blood, and the darkness flocked and his foes fell before it. Rasha rubbed her jaw, then got out one of her knives, at that moment she was carrying four, and pressed its point to the back of her arm, same as she'd seen the red-headed woman do. The steel bit through her skin, cold as a winter dip at Pocket Cove. Blood welled from the wound. Vess looked up from the book. What's that? It's a red fluid known as blood. Don't want to alarm you, but your body's full of it. Why get out your blood? Got a hunch, Rasha said. Either that or listening to this book all day has scrambled my brains. The blood slid down her arm, gathered and fell, hitting the floor with a sound like a finger, tapping at a door. Tap, tap, tap. After returning to Narashtivik, it hadn't taken her long to realize how useful her pocket-honed talents were. Moving in and out of the shadows, she could steal as much bread and vegetables as she liked. When she got a little older, and tired of the simple food they sold at the markets, she started to sneak into homes and churches to steal pastries and fresh-cooked slices of venison and beef. One day, coming out of a cobbler's with a new pair of moccasins, one she'd paid for, not stolen, though if you wanted to get technical, the money had come from stolen goods, she bumped into a tall man with a grim face, his hair tied back behind his head. Casually, wordlessly, he cuffed her knocking her down. The blow gave her a good look at his wrist. And the spider, tattooed there in black. She waited for him to go on his way, then followed, heart beating hard. There was fear in it, but there was something else, too. The man had a club on his hip. People got out of his way without seeming to know they were doing it. He headed for the Sharps, one of the neighborhoods Rasha tried to stay away from. He took long strides, and sometimes she had to run to keep up. In a square that smelled like pee, he stopped to watch the people come and go. After a while, his eyes set on a young girl. Dirty-faced and stringy-haired, she couldn't have been more than five, and was trying to use that to pry loose a few iron coins from the people going about their business. After scoring a handout, she smiled and ran into an alley. 
The man with the spider tattoo followed. Rorschach trotted after him, entering a tight space carved between two tenement buildings. She'd only meant to watch him, but as the man drew the club from his belt and closed on the little girl, anger clapped through Rorschach like thunder. She speared into the nether and broke into a run, silver motes winking past her face. The man was almost upon the girl. As he reached out and grabbed her blouse, she broke back toward the mouth of the alley, spinning him around. Rasha leaped into the air and back into the plain old world. She had a knife in her hand. Iron, nothing special. It punched his chest all the same, sticking in his heart. He gawked at her, tried to say something. The knife twitched once, twice, a third time. With a rattle of lumber, the man collapsed onto a pile of scrap. Blood leaked from his chest, hitting the boards beneath him. Tap, tap, tap. Girl, Vess said. Rasha heard her, but it didn't register. She was still in the alley, watching the man's blood drip from his chest and onto the boards. It was scary, and it made her want to faint. But it also made her feel like maybe she could be scary, too. Girl! Rasha nodded vaguely at Vess. The man with the ponytail had been the first. He hadn't been the last. She followed the next one she saw back to an old building deep in the shops. Everyone there had the spider tattoos. Later that week, in the middle of the night when they were too drunk to wake up, she burned the place down. That got rid of most of them. The survivors went to ground. It was a couple of months before they turned up again. Rasha hunted them down, one by one. After five deaths, they left the city. It had been twelve years since then. She hadn't seen a spider tattoo since. Rasha! Vess shoved her so hard, Rasha staggered to the side. The other woman was on her feet, jaw dropped. The room was so dark that, for a moment, Rasha was afraid she'd walked into the shadows without meaning to, exposing her secret to Vess. Nope, wasn't the nether world. The nether was in their world, flocking around her blood like bees on honey or flies on shit, climbing up her arm to reach the blood still trickling from her vein. Look at that. She smiled at Vess. The Citadel's got a problem on their hands. Chapter 10 Itiego's words hung in the air, as final as the turning off of a hanged man. Boggs rose, eyes as hard as flint. You can't take it with you, Itiego. All that money won't do you no good on Aron's grassy hill beneath the stars. Aron takes us all, Itiego said. 
But Carvajal finds those who spent their lives to spread the light. The members of the hand filed out of the room. Dante gave Blaze a small nod, stopping at the door. Alone, he turned on Itiego. I get why you're not interested. For all the times that Collins rebelled, it's never held on to its independence for more than a few years. Why would this time be any different? And when Malin brings them back into the fold and sees you gave them a hand, why wouldn't you be next? The prime navigator of Cavana gave a small shrug. There are many reasons I have declined your deal. That is among them. A good leader protects his people. Always. But what's happening now will be different. Just as it was for Galador, the Noran territories, and for Narashtovic. I know your record, Galand. Then you know what happens to those who cross swords with me. Itiego's grey eyes stared into his. They say that you summoned the sea against the malice. Drowned them all. I wonder the terror they felt. The pain of it. Crushed under so much water. Helpless to swim back to the sunlight. If Despot Boggs truly cared for my soul, he would not have brought you into my home. The merchant prince bowed over his knee, drawing his right hand to the side. Dante walked away. Well, Blaze said, once Dante caught up in the courtyard. Any luck? I might as well have asked him if he wanted to gargle into each other's mouths. Garena angled toward them, smiling broadly. He expressed disappointment that their business was over so soon, but informed them that Itiego would be happy to house them on the grounds until they were ready to depart Cavana. As soon as they were shown to their lodgings, they convened on the balcony outside Dante's room, where afternoon sunlight dazzled yellow from the blue sea. So, Blaze said, that was a disaster. He is a coward. Cord glared at the dome rising above the rooftops of the compound of House Itiego. Money's made of metal, but it's so fragile it should be spun from gossamer. That's why men like Itiego love it. Even the threat of war can smash it like crystal thrown on a stone floor, and the fear of its loss gives them the excuse to throw away their principles the instant they get too dangerous to follow. To him, his money is his faith, the keeper said. What principle can be stronger than faith? Honor, duty, the righteousness of planting your spear against the giant and shouting, no more. Dante folded his arms on top of the table. Going into this, were any of you aware that Cavana follows the gold road? Or are you that ignorant of your neighbors? The keeper looked appropriately sheepish. I was unaware that they were so strict. This is a bad sign. If his reticence stems from his faith, then his resolve will be unbreakable. Dante broke into laughter. 
You really didn't get out of your shrine much, did you? People betray their faith like it's a sport. If you want to be charitable to them, you can argue that they fail because the gods make too many demands of us for anyone to follow. And if I am not prone to charity, then we fail because we're corrupt, and every last one of us has our price. That is a sad thing to think. Oh, sure. So our souls might be damned forever, Blaze said. But right now we should be thrilled, because it means Itiego's got a price, too. Dante nodded. He said no. But that doesn't mean he hates the idea so much that he'd rather eat his own children with applesauce than to strike a deal with us. It only means our initial offer wasn't good enough. How do we make it more appealing? Bribery, Collins broke. And you're so cheap that when your old boots start to fall off your feet, you'd rather give up walking than buy new ones. I bet the thought of coughing up enough cash to bribe a merchant prince makes you break out in hives. Etiego would never risk being funded by Narastovic. If Malin found out, they'd stomp him into a well-dressed paste. Blaze grew thoughtful. Blackmail? He probably has mistresses. Then again, hearing a noble's having an affair is about as shocking as hearing a fish has wet skin. Boggs sniffed. How about threats? Do like we say, or we'll annex your borders. Threats are counterproductive, Dante said. You might strong-arm Itiego into doing what you want for a while, but it'll only make him resent you. As soon as you turn your back, he'll find out how many knives he can stick in it. We should shame his honor, Cord said, and if that fails, we should show him the color of his own blood. I just told you threats won't buy his loyalty. Who says it's to buy his loyalty? I just want to hurt him. Blaze gestured to the high towers, the view of the ocean. Diego's already got so much money, he got bored with it. We won't be able to buy him off. Not with silver. Of course, Dante said. This is the man who united all of Alebolgia underneath him. The only way to reach him is by offering him more power. Boggs smirked. What have you got in mind? It's your land. What can you afford to give up? Could do like we were thinking and expand the canals. Not just a path. To the strip, too. Sign him access to both the basin and path. Make it clear he can divvy up his rights to the canals, too. No better way to buy influence with the other houses and cities than to give them special trade rights. He'll realize he can use that to play the other cities against each other, too. Blaze kicked his feet up on the table. Now you're thinking like a manipulative bastard. They drew up plans for the new canals, then a proposal for the division of their rights of way. In the morning, they asked Garena to speak with Itiego again. Garena returned to tell them Itiego would grant a second audience, but only to the despot. After Garena left, Boggs grunted. I get the impression he don't trust you all, 
Could be, Blaze said. Either that or he thinks you're particularly stupid. Boggs grinned. The following morning, he went off to make his case. He returned within forty minutes, looking rather less amused. He heard me out. The despot dropped into a chair, expelling a hard sigh. But he didn't ask more than three questions. Doubt if he'll bite. Boggs's skepticism proved right on the mark. After lunch, Garena returned with word that that proposal didn't suit Itiego's current needs. Lord Itiego wishes to know how much longer you intend to stay. Garena smiled, the model of politeness. So that he can continue to make proper arrangements, of course. Of course, Dante said. We won't trouble you more than another three days. The servant smiled again, bowed, and left. Cord swore. I told you he needed to insult his honor. When you tell a man he has no balls, he lacked so fast to prove you wrong he'll drop his breeches in the middle of the town square. The keeper shifted her legs, rubbing one knee. What now? Dante met her eyes. Unless you're willing to offer Itiego the entire basin, he'll never work with us. If he won't, we'll have to find someone who will. She leaned forward, dropping her voice. You mean to depose him? I mean to explore our options. A man like Itiego will have enemies. They might be able to pressure him in ways we can't. To provide lodging for their retinue, they made arrangements to hire out an entire inn down near the docks. The marine air smelled like kelp and salt. Sea lions barked from the rocks. As soon as they settled in, they went over a list of the city's other major houses, deciding on seven that had the strength and wealth to make a legitimate challenge to Itiego. Boggs's messengers dispersed throughout the city. One response came back that same day. Regretfully, the house's master was indisposed. It wasn't known when he would be available again, but it was implied that it could take weeks. Two others replied the following day, stating they had no interest in such a meeting. The other houses gave no response at all. Itiego's gotten to them, Dante said. He's poisoned the entire city against us. That's a bit of an extreme move, Blaze said. Your reputation must have preceded you. Gavana ain't the only city in the Strip. Boggs fetched a map from his trunk and spread it over the table, standing over it. Could try Himalio. Word is, they had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the Confederation. It's as good a start as any. Dante stared glumly at the map. But whatever promises and threats Itiego made to the houses of Cavana, he'll do the same in Himalio. Bog set to penning another slew of letters. While the servants went to the work of settling their debts and restocking their provisions, Dante went for a walk around the town, hiking up its steep streets, grateful for the coolness of the sea. He'd badly hoped that sealing off the strip would be quick and clean, requiring no killings or fracturing of political schisms. 
What if protecting Colin required sparking a war in Alebolge? Did he have it in him to fight another battle for a land that wasn't his? Did he even have the time for that? The snows would be falling in Colin any day. This time, if he stayed longer than he'd promised, he couldn't blame the coloners. The fault would be no one's but his own. He returned to the inn without any answers. As he opened the door, he nearly slammed into a trim young man dressed in subtly expensive knee-high boots. The young man bowed and stepped aside. Upstairs, Blaze stuck his head out of a doorway. There you are. You're going to want to see this. Dante entered, shutting the door behind him. The other four members of the hand were arrayed around the room's only table. Now it came in, Bog said. Somebody wants a meet. Really? Which house? It don't say. Don't even know for sure if it is a house. Brow creased. Dante read the note. It was a request for the delegates from Colin to show up at one in the morning at a place called Doches Point. The opportunity would only be offered once. Dante shrugged. So we go meet the mysterious stranger. We're leaving tomorrow anyway. Not if the mysterious stranger is a malish ambush, Blaze said. Would be a fine opportunity to behead Colin and Narastovic in one blow. Cord stood, the tallest one of them. Then I will go. We'll all go, Dante said. But we'll do it in a way that minimizes the chances of us all falling victim to a predictably sudden death. Doches Point was a spar of rock a short way south of town, accessible only via a shepherd's trail, and with the steady boom of surf and hoots of sea lions drowning out any other sound, it would be a fine place to murder some of your enemies without drawing attention. They struck out for the point at midnight. Cord and Blaze walked out onto the damp rocks, black crabs scattering away. The keeper and Boggs were stationed on the cliffs above. Dante killed a pair of crabs and sent them scuttling down both sides of the trail, then climbed up to join the keeper. The air was frigid. Mist streamed inland, dampening Dante's cloak until it hung on him like an anchor. As one o'clock neared, three silhouettes appeared on the southern trail, they carried swords, but seeing no army backing them up, Dante deemed it safe to join Blaze and Cord on the rocks. There, he bit the inside of his cheek, keeping the nether close. The trio of strangers moved out onto the rocky arm and stopped in front of the members of the hand. Two of the figures were bulky, clearly soldiers, but the figure between them was as slender as the saber she carried at her hip. You came, the woman said. Brave, stupid, or just desperate? It's quite obviously brave, Blaze said. If we'd been stupid, we wouldn't have thought to rig the rock you're standing on with bear traps. The woman looked down sharply, jerking her right foot from the ground. As her bodyguards went for their swords, she relaxed and chuckled, lifting her hooded head. You would be Blaze Butler, the necromancer's pet clown. 
I prefer to think of myself as his wrangler. Who are you? Dante said. Me. Her rapid staccato accent was a match for Tonello Itiego's, making Dante feel like he needed to lean forward to keep up with her. I am the only person in this rotten city with the guts to stand up to the Itiegos. Do you have the blood to do the same? Yes, Dante said hurriedly, cutting off Cord, who'd thrust her fist in the air in preparation to launch into a declaration of their unyielding courage. But you still haven't told us who you are. The woman flipped back her hood. The face she revealed was as smooth as glass. Her dark hair was swept behind her head, held in place by a silver pin. Her high cheekbones were an artist's dream. She looked no older than twenty, but her dark eyes bore the authority of an executioner's axe. I am Vita Osedo, House Osedo. The houses of Cavana turned away your requests to speak because Tonello owns them as firmly as he owns the spices within his ships. But he does not own me. And you speak for your father, Dante said, or mother. If I am too young for you to trust, I will be happy to find someone closer to your age for you to do business with. Shall we head to the cemetery to find a proper candidate? A tall wave disemboweled itself on the rocks, spattering Dante with cold spray. That won't be necessary. How can we help each other? Her expression warmed, however slightly. Itiego can buy the other houses because he has the fortune to do so. Do you know how the Itiegos made this fortune? Bog shrugged. No secret about it. Sparse trade. Every house trades spice. So how is it Itiego can buy so many other houses? Because his family is the only one that trades this. She tossed a tiny glass jar at Boggs, who fumbled it, dropping to a crouch to catch it before it shattered on the rocks. He unstoppered it, sniffed, then cocked his head. Talus. Dante blinked. Talus was the most expensive spice in Narashtovic and, as far as he knew, everywhere else. A pale blue powder that tasted something between pepper and cinnamon, it was worth more than its weight in gold. The Itiegos are the only ones who know where it comes from, Vita said. With the wealth it brought them, Tanello's grandmother bought Cavana house by house. Fifty years later, Tanello swept all of Alibolgia under his cloak, Dante nodded. You want to end his stranglehold on your city? I want to know where to find the talus. Blaze folded his arms. Crazy idea, but have you tried following his ships? Vita gave him a brief glance. Theirs are the fastest on the seas, and they have the wealth to hire their own sorcerers. They destroy anyone who tries to get close. Ask one of their sailors, then. If they won't talk, apply rum and repeat as necessary. The sailors of the Telus route are chosen as children. Once they join their ship, they're never allowed on these shores again. When they finish their term, they retire to a southern island. She took on a wry look. Oh, that is what they're told. I assume it's easier and safer to kill them. 
Well, that sounds like the strongest retirement you can give them. Dante was looking out to sea. He turned to find Vita staring at him. We can get you the route, he said. She lifted the outer corner of one brow. How? Leave that to us. Do you know what we wanted from Itiego? You come in the company of colonists, so you want one of two things, either for Kavana to turn away any malish warships that come to port, or to learn everything we know about how to remove dust from one's clothes. This drew a snort from Boggs, a bray from Cord, and a low chuckle from the keeper. Correct, Dante said. Itiego won't agree to stop the Malish from landing here. We have to change his mind, or break his power. You think finding the source of the talus will be enough to make that happen? Vita gestured to herself. If I am the only woman in town, every man will fall to his knees if I so much as wink, utterly beholden to the rarity of my presence. But if the town holds as many women as men— who, in his right mind, will devote themselves to me like he is a slave. No one. Dante wasn't sure that was strictly true, but he had the impression that, if he said so aloud, she might push him into the waves. We'll give you the talus route, and you'll dethrone the Etiegos. In exchange, I close the port to Malin? Just their soldiers. Call it a threat to the sovereignty of your new and fragile confederacy. If you tried to shut their ships out completely, you might find yourself bludgeoned to death by copies of the Gold Road. Vita smiled. The light it brought to her face didn't seem fair. We have a deal. I wasn't done. One more thing. I want a cut of the talus for Narashtovic. Three percent of whatever you bring back, sold to us at the cost of its acquisition. And another three for Colin. She looked him up and down. You speak like a malisher, but you bargain like an alebolgian. I will offer you two percent each, and in coming years you will marvel I was so generous. He looked into her eyes and judged them unyielding. Agreed. They hashed out the details of how to stay in contact with one another, then went their separate ways. Dante sent his undead crabs up the trail to make sure no one was spying on or awaiting them, but the way was clear. As they neared the city, a dense fog rolled in from the sea, smothering the town's lanterns, and making everything feel vague and unreal. For half a moment, Dante's mind was certain there'd been an ambush after all, that he'd taken an arrow in the brain and died before he knew what was happening. And he was now in the mists, the gentle afterlife where you made your peace, before continuing on into the forever expanse of the world sea. Except if that were true, he'd skipped right past the past lands, meaning these weren't the mists, but just an everyday, if pleasantly mysterious, fog. Dante stopped, turning to the colonists. Did you agree with all of that horse trading back there? Boggs shrugged. 
If I'd have had a problem with it, you would have heard about it. I heard nothing but politics, Cord grinned. Your responsibility, not mine. Wake me the next time there's a war to declare. Thought I'd better check, Dante said. You guys didn't talk much. The keeper made a noise that might have been a laugh. That is because you seem to like to speak for us. Vita seemed most comfortable negotiating with me. Besides, this is a good thing. If word gets out that you're meddling in Alibolgian affairs, you can blame it on Narashtovic. This is so, but the leaders of the newly free Colin will need to learn to handle their politics on their own. This seemed so self-evident, Dante didn't bother to respond. The streets of Cavana were damp with mist. Water condensed on the bare branches of trees and fell to the cobbles in a heavy and irregular rain. By morning, the fog remained, slipping between houses and tumbling over roofs in little streams. Dante was going to eat in the inn's common room, but Blaze had chatted up the locals and been bewitched by rumors of a legendary bakery and coffeehouse down by the piers. The two of them ventured down the steep, slick streets. They could have found the shop by smell alone. The rich, almost scorched scent of coffee was even thicker than the fogs. Most of Elibolgia was built in pale stone, but the coffeehouse was constructed with dark brown bricks. Its roof was shaped into three thick cones. The interior was an unusual mix of raggedy sailors, local merchants in respectable but unspectacular trousers and jackets, and nobles in their high boots and higher collars. Blaze approached the bar and ordered two of their strongest brews, spiked with a dollop of cream— the coffee right turned to the stove and removed a pot that resembled a chunky copper hourglass. He poured two cups that were irritatingly small for the price Blaze paid. They took their cups out to the patio. It was nearly freezing, and the fog spoiled the view of the ocean. But that meant they were alone. Blaze took a seat, and then a sip. He immediately slapped his hand to his mouth. Too hard, Dante said. Stopping myself from drinking it all at once. This is the best thing I've ever tasted. We have to buy this. Are you drunk? We just did. Not the coffee. Blaze motioned toward the building. The house! For a minute, the mist thinned enough to see the ships bobbing in the harbor. Blaze nodded to them. Speaking of consumables so delicious they'll drive men mad, how were you intending to find the talus route? How the hell should I know? My mistake. When I heard you telling Vita you knew a way, I assumed you meant you knew a way. I had confidence in our ability to come up with one, Dante said, so let's not tarnish our reputations by screwing it up. I figured you'd follow them with one of your moths or something. Won't work. If I tail it with a moth and we fall more than fifty miles behind them, I'll lose my connection to the bug. If we stick close enough to maintain connection, they'll be able to see us. Although it sounds like their ships will be too fast for us to keep up with anyway. 
Blaze took a contemplative sip, slurping much more loudly than was necessary. Bugs are out then. So do what you did to find me. Get some blood from one of the sailors, and you can follow him all the way to the end of the route. Got a suggestion for how to acquire that blood? Sure. Go up to a bar and punch one of their crew in the nose. Vita said they never let their sailors off the ship. Gods damn it. I'm getting tired of all my brilliant ideas getting slain by these peasantish facts. Vita said these sailors are trained as youths, right? Right, so here's what you do. Collect the blood of every child in Alabolgia. Eventually, one of them will be chosen to crew on the route. You'll already have his blood, hence you'll be able to follow him. Dante swirled his cup. What a wonderful plan. It will take a minimum of ten years to unfold, and it will give me the reputation of someone who sucks the blood from little children. Like that's any worse than the stories they tell about you now? What stories? Don't worry about it. Blaze stood, brandishing his empty cup. I require another. You just got that one, and I depleted it in the service of our work. If you want more ideas, I need more coffee. He went back inside the building, returning a minute later with a refilled cup. This time, he sipped like a reasonable person. You're okay with this? Dante glanced at the patio door to make sure they were still alone. Overthrowing the Itiegos. Yep. You're sure? If I wasn't, rather than saying, yep, I might say something like, no, or, your idea is so dishonorable, I demand satisfaction in the form of a jewel. Are you okay with it? Why wouldn't I be? Blaze eyed him. We're supporting the coloners in order to win their freedom, right? Particularly the religious freedom that Malin's always denied them. And in support of that cause, you'll happily subvert the religious freedom of the Alabolgians, whose holy scriptures insist on keeping the port open. Yes. And? And some people who aren't you would consider that hypocritical. Gladick wants to exterminate everyone in Colin for believing in something that Malin doesn't like. If we can stop him from doing that by twisting one small tenet of Alabolgian belief, it would be cruel not to intervene here. I'm starting to think the most important skill a leader can have is the ability to rationalize anything. Blaze took a drink of coffee. Here's a different tack. We cut out the middlemen altogether. If we can find some talus seeds, you can harvest them into a full crop. That's not totally crazy, but I don't think I've ever seen a talus seed. Even if we could find some, Vita wants a regular supply. They won't grow here on their own. That means I'd have to keep harvesting them for her. But the whole point of all this scheming is to untangle us from this region for good. There's no way they can keep the entire crew confined to the ship when they come to port. The sailors might tolerate that, but what about the captains? 
Are young Itiego nobles assigned to sail off and check on the family investment? Should be able to nab a bit of their blood. Dante tapped the rim of his mug. Could put the house under observation. I'll slip a moth or three into their villa. Though Vita made it sound like the Itiegos have their own sorcerers, so maybe I'll try something sneakier. Blazer's eyebrows lifted like canoes on a swell. Mosquitoes! People hate mosquitoes. They'd only draw more attention. Not to spy on the house. When the next teller ship comes in, you send over the mosquitoes. To bite the crew. And bring back their blood to me. Dante laughed. Time to ask Vita if she knows when the next ship's coming in. They returned to the inn to send a message to their contact in House Osedo. The messenger returned, stating that while the arrival of the Talus ships wasn't known with precision, the first ones always arrived early in spring. Dante thanked the messenger, feeling disappointed they hadn't another chance to speak to Vita in person. He was right about to summon the hand and explain the situation when his loon pulsed in his ear. He expected it would be an errand updating them on the situation in Colin, but it turned out it was Nack, contacting him all the way from Narashtovic. No need to berate me, Dante said. We've been delayed a little longer than I intended, but we're almost through here. We'll be back in Narashtovic before the summer. I have a feeling we'll see you well before then. Nack's usually cheerful voice was tight with stress. The first copy of the cycle. It's been stolen. Chapter 11 Dante touched his loon, uncertain he'd heard right. The first copy of the cycle. Correct, Nack said. Not the false copy. Indeed. But the original was hidden, inside a stone wall. How could they have found it? We are as perplexed as you are, mighty commander. One of the guards noticed that the chapel study looked like it had been disturbed. When I investigated, it didn't look like anything was missing besides a few curtains. However, you will be pleased to hear that I am as thorough as I am insightful, and withdrew to reflect on my suspicions. Get on with it, Knack. Which, in turn, led me to mount a more thorough search of the chambers, at which point I discovered a boot lodged in the wall. A boot? Yes, sir. In the wall. I was as confused as you are, sir. There was a boot. Lodged in the wall. And you didn't notice this the first time? Well, it was hidden under a cloth, you see. May I move on? Dante grasped his temples. I'd like nothing more. This curious boot was stuck in the wall concealing the original cycle. Being a man of great reason, I deduced that I should look behind the wall. Short of a sledgehammer, I had no ability to check on the original myself. However, I knew that Min was in the citadel. She's waiting on Blaze, incidentally, and is growing rather annoyed. And inquired if she would open the wall for me. She obliged, 
and I found that the book was gone. Dante's head spun. The original copy of the Cycle of Oron held an immense and largely mysterious power. He knew firsthand that if someone with latent skill in the nether read its pages, the book would somehow unlock their abilities. Before Samarand had been sent off to Oron's starry hill, she'd claimed the book could be used to open a portal that the god himself could step through. Dante doubted that strongly, and wasn't entirely sure that it was a good idea to find out if it was true. But there was no denying the potency of the book, which he'd intended to spend more time studying at a time in his life that was less interesting. Aside from whatever magical properties it possessed, its value as a cultural and religious artifact was second to nothing in the Aronite faith. Which was why he'd sealed it up behind a stone wall for safekeeping. Other than the boot, the wall was intact, Dante said. No sign of entry. None. Its floor and ceiling were undisturbed. I checked it as thoroughly as an empty closet can be checked, which is to say with extreme thoroughness. I found no evidence of the burglar, excepting, of course, that perplexing boot. Dante's mind spun in circles. I'm coming back. We'll leave today. Uh, you are? Aren't you in the middle of terribly important business? That business can be left on hold until the spring. In the wrong hands, the original cycle could be a lot of trouble, and anyone capable of stealing it definitely counts as the wrong hands. I regret the circumstances of your return, Nack said, but it will be good to see you home again. Dante shut down the connection, then gathered the hand, explaining the change in circumstances. My goal will be to recover the book and deal with the perpetrator as quickly as I can. Even accounting for travel time, I expect we can be back here before the first ship arrives from the Talus route. We? Blay said. You're volunteering me for all this travel? You're free to go back to Pocket Cove if they need you. They've probably been overrun by crabs without you there to eat them all. But you will return, the keeper said. Dante ran his hand down his mouth. I don't like to make promises I'm not certain I can keep, but as soon as I've dealt with this, I'll be back here to complete our deal with Vita. Maybe this is for the best. I can clean up a few messes in Narastovic without compromising matters down here. Then let us depart. The sooner you leave, the sooner you can see to your affairs. They set about packing their things and gathering up the caravan. Some of their retinue was out in the city running errands, trolling for gossip, or simply enjoying themselves. While servants went out to gather them up, Dante headed for their contact in House Osedo. The man was perturbed that Dante had come in person. Quite understandably, Lady Vita didn't want to be seen working with the coloners, but agreed to go see her. As soon as he left, Dante slew a nearby bee and sent it after the man to make certain he wasn't being followed by any Cavanese spies. The contact returned in half an hour, providing Dante with a set of directions. 
Dante followed them to the rear of a small church. It was a cold day, and the scent of wood smoke mingled with the fog. After waiting long enough that Dante was starting to wonder if he had the right place, an old woman shuffled up to a statue of a pious-looking man, supporting herself with a cane. A heavy wool shawl warmed her against the chill. She kneeled before the statue. Without looking up, Vita said, What is so important that we have to meet in such a reckless way? We're leaving, Dante said. We'll be gone by day's end. Is your word that worthless? We had a deal. We still do, and we know exactly how we're going to fulfill our end of it. Something's come up in my homeland that I have to see to myself. I mean to be back by spring. This news couldn't have been brought to me by a messenger? I thought telling you in person would make it clear that I'm serious about honoring our arrangement. Hmm. Vita touched the statue's feet. Then I will see you in the spring. That afternoon, they headed up the road to the top of the cliffs overlooking Cavana. Dante was hoping for a last look at the scenic coastal city, but the fog blurred everything to gray shapes. They rode forward. As they crested a line of hills, a few miles north of the city, the temperature dropped abruptly, along with the coastal humidity. Ahead, the fields were dusted with snow. In the basin, fields of snow glittered under a distant sun. Buttes thrust from the whiteness like unfinished blocks left behind by a forgetful sculptor. They'd made good time, and with a rider ranging ahead to the city to make preparations, everything was set for Dante and Blaze to continue to Narashtavik at once. Colin provided them with four horses, Asties weren't suited for the brutality of northern winters, so they went with raggies instead, shaggy and hardy beasts like oversized ponies. Stay on your toes, Dante told the hand, as the provisions were being loaded onto the raggies. Malin won't be able to launch another invasion until spring, but snows won't stop saboteurs. Bog smirked. You think you're telling us something we don't already know? I have to say something before I leave. It might as well masquerade as wise advice. The three coloners dispersed to go about their own business. Neron replaced them, crunching up through the thin snow. Did you intend to depart without saying goodbye? Blaze tightened a strap on his saddlebag. Maybe we're smart enough to know that you would come to us. You asked me to stay in Colin while you're away. I've decided to leave as well. Dante looked up. But we need a set of eyes here. Why? If something happens, will you snap your fingers and teleport to the reborn shrine? While you're in Narashtavik, you can't do anything about what transpires here, so what does it matter if you know every detail? It would still be much more helpful than if you're in Narashtavik. Neron gave him a dubious look. 
I don't have any desire to fleece my unmentionables in your blizzard-wracked wasteland. I want to go to Tanara Tane. To hunt Gladick. That would be my main motivation. Blaze put his hand on Neren's shoulder. Captain, is your mind that troubled? Suicide is never the answer, my friend. Neren snorted, shrugging off Blaze's hand. Did I say anything about looking to assault him? My intention is to find him. I leave the matter of dying against his wicked sorcery to you two. Dante tapped his chin with his thumb. There's no guarantee he's down there. That's only the rumor. I appreciate that. However, my crew's growing restless and light in the pocket. If the Sword of the South doesn't start earning money, my tenure as captain will be short-lived indeed. Fair enough. But take a loon with you, and leave someone you trust in Colin to act as a relay between us. If you and I try to share a loon when you're heading that far south, I'm afraid the connection will be stretched until it breaks. They decided to leave two loons with Neren's trusted crewman, Jonah, who wasn't happy to be stuck in Colin while the Sword of the South would be out making cash and visiting fun new ports, but he was mollified when Neren doubled his regular earnings. With this and everything else settled, or at least as settled as it could be, Dante and Blaze rode out from the city. The first few days were spent traveling overland through the desert of Colin and into the Malish woods on the other side of the hills. The snow and lack of roads made it slower than Dante would have liked, but with two horses apiece, they still managed to keep a fair pace. Once they'd bypassed Bressel, they intercepted the Chancet River and struck north. Under the overcast skies, the mile-wide river was the grey of hammered iron. Though they were travelling through enemy lands, within a few days Dante felt more carefree than at any time since they'd first left for the plagued islands. Some of that was the act of travel itself, which he always enjoyed, but putting physical distance between himself and the Colin Basin allowed him to get some mental distance from it as well. His anger at the Keeper's betrayal wasn't only about the act of manipulation. He'd done similar things in the past, and expected to do more of them in the future. At least when you were manipulating someone, that meant you weren't killing them. Instead, he was angry because he'd thought they were friends. Untrue. To her, he was a game piece. This was disappointing, but it simplified his relationship with both her and Colin. Once his objectives were achieved there, he could walk away and wash his hands. He'd have no further reason to ever get involved there again. The Keeper played us good, didn't she? Blay said. He smiled wryly. Just like the Kandayans. Funny. I was just thinking about that. Oh, no. Please tell me your thoughts aren't a communicable disease. Is being taken advantage of just the natural risk of trying to do good? We could test that theory by doing evil instead. Have you ever been tempted to walk away? I'm tempted right now, Blaze said. 
If we never went back to Colin, I wouldn't blame us. What's stopping you? For one thing, the thought of leaving all those innocents in the lurch isn't my favorite idea of all time. For another, what if this sort of thing is like our calling? Dante twisted in the saddle. I thought you'd be getting cranky about getting dragged into everyone else's business. I am, in large part because other people's business never seems to end. But when I saw what Gladick had done, those people in the cave... Dante nodded, gazing blankly through the leafless forest. Finding Gladick's stash of bodies had troubled him, too. It wasn't so much the quantity of the dead. He'd seen many more during the war with Gask, but rather the methodicalness of it. Gladick had stacked the corpses like the proverbial firewood, like salmon packed in salt. The deaths on the battlefield make a certain sort of sense, Dante said. War is a storm. When a storm hits, people die without reason. But what Gladick did was different. It was deliberate, precise. The murder was the entire point. Blaze grunted. It's like he was a farmer of lives. How many people out there do you think could have stopped him? How many people could have destroyed the Andrak? Not many. The council together might have been able to. Modigan's sorcerer school could. And there are more than enough ether mansers in Bressel to take them on. In other words, if we hadn't been there, the entire city of Colin would have been slaughtered. There are horrors out there. People who act like monsters and monsters that are monsters with big sharp claws and fangs that could rip a pig in half. Maybe we were put here to smite them. I don't think we were put here to kill the wicked. Oran doesn't care about saving lives. He knows we're all his, sooner or later. Wherever we are, we brought ourselves here. That makes it all the more important. Blaze ducked under a reaching bow. If the gods aren't putting anyone here to kill the monsters, then there's no guarantee that anyone will fight them at all. As they neared Wetton, they left the road to ride around it. They were still telling stories about Blaze and the city. Miles later, Dante considered detouring to Shea to check in on the Norrin monk Gabe. But it wouldn't be more than a pointless social nicety. Anyway, according to Nack, they still hadn't found any trace of the true cycle in Narashtavik. Every day they lingered, was another day for it to get more lost. The towns gave out, and the farms too. And there was nothing but wilderness. Forests, hills, blue mountains beyond. The only sound was the thump of the horses and the snow sifting through the branches. They entered the mountains. The pass was ugly. It took Dante two days to alter the rock enough to where the horses could make it through. When he'd first seen the blue glaciers and searing green lakes in the heart of the Dundons, 
He'd thought they were the starkest, most beautiful things he'd ever seen. But after their crossing of the Wodens, a range that had been designed to be impassable, the mountains of his childhood homeland felt rather tame. The Raggies handled the heights well, delivering them to the endless hills that had once been southern Gask. The grass was buried under two feet of snow, boulders and haggard trees poked from the white blanket. Look! Blaze nodded. Dante followed his gaze across the hills to where a pair of towering figures stood underneath a copse of trees, spears in hand. Norrin. The two figures watched them for a minute, then turned and vanished over the hill. Dante didn't expect any trouble from the Norrin. After all, Narashtivik had helped liberate them. But Norrin were nothing if not unpredictable. Fractious, too. It wasn't out of the question that a clan would assault them simply because they were enemies of another clan that was friendly with Norashtovic. Unfortunately, winter had killed all the bugs, leaving Dante nothing obvious to scout with. As they entered a small forest, leading the horses by the reins, he kept his eyes open for field mice, getting so absorbed in the hunt that he nearly walked right into the waste of a Norrin warrior. The man gazed down at him from a height of seven feet. He wore a long cloak over weather-beaten buckskins and carried a spear with an oval-shaped point the size of a human man's hand. Behind him, a score of others emerged from behind the trees. Dante pulled the nether close. The Norrin looked disappointed. You got older. Blaze laughed. Morn, what are you doing out here? Speaking to you, and wondering why you didn't recognize me. Come on, man, between the hood and the beard, I wouldn't be the wiser if you were a talking dog. Blaze strode through the snow and wrapped Morn in a hug. Morn appeared to tolerate this. At any rate, he didn't look any more perturbed than he usually did. How long have you known we were here? Dante said. Since we saw you. Morn glanced up at the snowflakes trickling through the branches. This wasn't a very good time to choose to go through the mountains. It wasn't much of a choice. Then I'll have to have my scouts beaten. They must have missed the hostile army marching you through the Dundons in the dead of winter. Ah, how I've missed you, Blaze said. Morn invited them to the Nine Pines wintering grounds, which, it turned out, were only a few miles northeast. The clan had set up its yurts in a stand of pine trees on the south face of a hill. You look at least a hundred strong, Dante said. The clan's recovered nicely. No wonder they won't let you step down as chief. I know, Morn muttered. I need to trick a few of them into walking off a cliff, or hunting cappers. See how long they tolerate that. Blaze waved to a few of their old friends. Is it really that bad, leading these people? It's awful. The only thing worse would be if one of them was leading me.
They found seating on a line of logs encircling the camp's central fire. Around them, many of the Norren were casually working away at their Nola, the life craft they dedicated years to perfecting. Some were carving wood or bone, two were dabbing black lines on a canvas, arguing after every stroke. Some were carefully stretching hides into bosson, the seamless clothing that remained popular with humans across Gask. There was nothing hurried about their efforts. Presumably the clan had already done the bulk of the work needed to see itself through the winter. They didn't depend on selling their work either, although that did allow them to purchase weapons-grade steel, which was still rare in the Norren territories. Yet bit by bit, and day by day, they all became skilled enough that the least of them could turn their talent into a trade. Meanwhile, the best of them created art and artifacts that looked like they'd been handed down from another age or burgled from the houses of the heavens. Warmed by the fire, enjoying the smell of the smoke, they caught up with Morn. The Nine Pines had been rather quiet for the last few years. The occasional skirmish with another clan, but otherwise the most exciting thing to have happened to them was the discovery of an ancient Norrin cave system loaded with stone statues of such quality the Nine Pines masons were still trying to reproduce their techniques. Behind the curtain of clouds, the sun moved toward the horizon. As the light began to dim, most of the Norrin who'd been at work on their nulla packed away their projects and set to work preparing dinner or tightening up the yurts for the night. As they set to their chores, others who'd been laboring earlier, chopping wood, cleaning a deer, cleaned themselves up and got out flutes and small drums. As they began to play, practicing their nola, those working smiled, humming along with their favorite bits. The rhythm of the clan's actions felt as cyclical as the comings and goings of the tide from day to day and season to season. It was as if they were all players in some great symphony, yet they moved without a conductor, or any orders at all. They ate, talked more, fell asleep in the warm comfort of the yurt. In the morning, after a leisurely breakfast, Dante went to prepare the horses to continue their journey. Morn crunched up behind him through the snow. What are you doing? Preparing our dragons for the flight to Narashtovic. You're leaving already. Trust me, if I could spare the time, I'd stay here for a month. It would be a thousand times more pleasant than what I'm off to do. You should stay for another day. It will improve your mood. When you lighten your heart, you lighten your responsibilities. Dante gave Morn a sidelong glance. Don't tell me you've missed us that bad. Morn sighed, breath steaming from his mouth. Go on, then. I'll just tell Son he won't be able to play Nulladoon with a human after all. You have a Nulladoon set. Would I lie to you? Have you forgotten how we met? Behind his beard, Morn might have blushed. The hunt for the quivering bow, 
led to every Norrin in Gask throwing off their chains. If every lie could accomplish that much, only sadists would tell the truth. One more day, Dante said, but Son better be good. Son turned out to be a fifteen-year-old girl, though being Norrin she was still taller and heavier than he was. Seeing how young she was, Dante felt mild disappointment in his prospects for a challenging match. But as long as she wasn't a complete pushover, he still expected to have fun. As they laid out the board and selected their pieces, half the clan dropped what they were doing to come watch. Bets of Nulla flew fast and furious. The action was mostly on Dante, but the bets on Son were large enough to make him suspect the game would be better than he'd thought. They began. Through the first few rounds, both Dante and Son played cautiously, until a minor skirmish of slingers turned into a wholesale slaughter of drakes, swordsmen, and sorcerers. Both sides withdrew in tatters. Dante consolidated his forces on favorable terrain, then advanced with methodical precision. Son arranged her defenses with impeccable strategy until Dante played a run of three cards that allowed his cavalry to ford a river and rush her flank. The attack should have been crushing, yet Son fought back so hard that Dante wasn't certain he'd win until six rounds later when he claimed her last pieces. Son pressed her lips tight, face going red. You got lucky. You should have lost the first battle. Strange, considering I didn't, Dante said. Then again, you got lucky is about the level of analysis I'd expect from someone who thinks you need to keep your sorcerers hidden in the rear. Suddenly aware he was taunting a teenager, he stuck out his hand. Thanks for playing me. It's been too long. She shook his hand. After a moment, she returned his smile, too. She'd said her nulla was sculpture, but it took a form he'd never seen before. The skeletons of mice, glued together and equipped with tiny spears, bows, armor, and little tiny bosson, all of which she'd also made. Son presented his figurine with her eyes downcast, blinking rapidly. Are you embarrassed? He lifted it for a closer inspection. The craftsmanship is great. Yeah, but it's... She risked a look up. Silly. You're right. It's a mouse with a spear. Her voice fell to a whisper. I'm sorry. But that's part of what makes it great, he said. Life is serious enough. We need songs and stories and armored little mice to remind us it can be silly, too. Son lifted her eyes to his, blushing harder than ever. She made a small noise that might have been gratitude, then bobbed her head and walked away. Blaze ambled up beside him, watching her go. You do realize you essentially just stole from a child. It's not stealing if you earned it. He leaned closer to Blaze, sniffing. How much beer have you had? Lots. 
They've got a guy whose nullah is brewing. This was interesting enough to occupy them through the afternoon. It likely would have held their interest throughout the night, too, but they were interrupted late in the day by the arrival of another clan. In most cases, this would involve the hoisting of weapons and the preparation of threats, but the Nine Pines looked completely unconcerned. As the other clan neared, Dante found Morn hanging around at the fringe of the camp. He stood beside the Norrin. Expecting guests? Bet you'll recognize them. As the other clan drew near, Dante thought he recognized the gait of the man in their front. Seeing him, the man gave a cheery wave. The broken herons? Dante's jaw fell open, then lifted in a grin. Was this why you wanted us to wait another day? Why didn't you just tell me Hop was coming? Morn gave him an affronted look. If you had a good reason to stay, then what would it prove if you did so? The two clans met, exchanging handshakes and hugs. Once Hop had done some chatting, he made his way to Dante and Blaze. He was starting to sport some silver around his temples and in his beard, which he'd finally allowed to grow long enough to cover the R branded on his right cheek. Once he'd kept it shaved to remind the world he'd once been a Gascon slave. It seemed he no longer felt the need. Are the rumors true? Hop said. Blaze tilted his head. You'll have to be a lot more specific than that. That you were going to go straight to Narashtavik without so much as saying hello to your own clan. What have we done to earn such disgrace? You made the mistake of not causing a disaster worthy of Dante's attention. Sorry about that, Dante said, meaning it. There's trouble in Narashtavik. It could be bad. Hop studied him. Have you ever noticed that there seems to be trouble everywhere you go? So just imagine how much more there would be if I didn't show up to deal with it. Hop went to greet a few of the other Nine Pines, who'd remained on relatively terrific terms with the Broken Pines ever since the war. In time, Hop joined them outside Morn's yurt, where they were continuing to appreciate the craftsmanship of the Pines Brewer. Hop took a tankard and then a seat. For close to an hour, he rambled on about the particular coldness of that winter, his recent squabbles with nearby clans, and an expedition into the Wodens he was planning to make during the coming summer. After asking several dozen questions about the cappers that infested the mountains, he fell silent. Blaze and Morn excused themselves to find more beer. Once they left, Hop's eyebrow perked up. Did I tell you why we're here? No, of course I haven't. Or why wouldn't I remember it? He twisted in his chair and rooted around in his pack. With a noise of satisfaction, he turned back around and extended his palm. An empty Chardon shell rested on his broad palm. Do you know what this is? Dante blinked. Do you? Is it the former home of a snail? And this is remarkable to you? 
It's a large, fine shell, isn't it? Hop ran an oversized finger over the shell's black swirls. Very pretty. Why don't you tell me what you know? Why don't you ask the right questions? Dante pressed his lips together. Where did you find it? Hop waved a hand at the low hills. Oh, somewhere out there. Which is strange, right? I know I've been gone for a while, but I don't think it's been long enough for a new ocean to form in the Norrin territories. The older Norrin smiled, fox-like. That's what led me to ask our clan about it. Then when they didn't know what it was, to start asking other clans. You were that interested in an empty shell. I should see a strange thing, say, how strange, and think nothing more of it. If you found something unusual in your house, someone else's shoe, say, would you wonder how it came to be there? At this moment, the only thing I'm wondering if this conversation could be any more baffling. Hop gave him a crooked look. What do you think matters more? The point, or how you come to reach it? No matter how widely I asked, no one knew much about the shells, but I did hear that you'd know about them. Dante blinked. How did you hear that? With my ears. You Norrin gossip worse than fishwives. Do you humans think you're so clever that no one else will notice what you're up to? Don't answer that question. Answer this one. Should I be concerned to find the shell inside the Norrin territories? Dante took the shell, turning it over in his hand. They're called Shorden. They come from an island far to the south. The meat is like a warehouse of Nether, exceedingly useful to people like me. Until very recently, the Malish priesthood was gathering them in great numbers. Am I to infer this practice stopped when you arrived? More of that trouble you were referring to earlier. Hop's face had been sobering rapidly. Why would Malish priests be using the Nether inside the Norrin territories? I have no idea. Could be they were just passing through on their way to Narashtavik. If so, these people might be the same ones I'm on my way to deal with. But we can't assume it'll be that easy to settle. It could also be an arm of something far more sinister. Will you and the Herons keep watch on the pass? What are we to watch for? The aforementioned Malish priests, for a start. And anyone else who looks suspicious. What if all humans look suspicious to me? Then only tell me about the ones I'd think were suspicious. Hop nodded, satisfied. What brought you to this island of nether snails in the first place? Dante took a deep breath and began to explain. He hadn't meant to say more than a few vague sentences, but before he knew it, he was relating a detailed account of the last half-year since being called away from the tunnel he'd built for Galador. 
the note from his father, the business with the Candaeans, the pursuit of Gladick, the warring in Colin. It took some time. When he finished, Hop was frowning. That sounds dreadful. Why take on so many worries for people you'd never met before? It seems more polite than letting them get slaughtered. And it sounds like you're sick and tired of it. Hop snapped his fingers. You know what you should do? Join the Broken Herons. In case you've forgotten, we already did that. Blaze nearly drowned himself in the effort. I'm suggesting you join us and stay with us. Don't you want to walk the prairies, explore the mountains, see the sun touch a new hill every morning, set down your concerns, pick up your bow, and hunt the deer with us? Dante was about to reject this out of hand. Instead, he found himself gazing across the trampled snow of the camp, envisioning himself out in the wilds, in the company of a hundred brothers and sisters, with no worries beyond what they'd catch for the night's meal. He could still practice the nether. Clearly, it would be his nolla. But from then on out, his pursuit would be purely for himself. If he wanted, he could even resume leading, to whatever extent Hop would welcome. It would be far easier to take care of a clan of a hundred than a city of a hundred thousand. It's tempting, he said. Genuinely. But I can't. Why not? If you leave, will the walls of Narashtivik come crashing down? Will the townsfolk fling themselves from the bridges in despair? Will Aron get so angry he'll smash his fist down on the city, leaving nothing behind but a crater? If I left, no. But what if everyone tossed aside their responsibilities? Do you always worry about things that aren't happening? Do you know why Norrin don't build towns? What are you talking about? Plenty of you do. Do you think I'm talking about them? Why don't Norrin build towns? Hop opened his hand, as if releasing a trapped bird. So we can always walk away. It would have sounded self-congratulatory, if not for the fact it was true. The Norrin looked after themselves and their clan. Other than the occasional scuffle with a foe clan, their lives were more or less open to do whatever they wanted, which they took full advantage of. If the Norrin acted like this and were perfectly fine people, why couldn't humans do the same? Why couldn't he? Abruptly, he realized that he hadn't had someone like Hop to talk to in a long time. Callie, and briefly Larimore, had served that role in Dante's early years, and Ollivander sort of had for a few years after that, when Dante had been easing into his role of leader of the council. But he was Ollivander's superior, and over time, any type of mentorship had ceased.
Anyway, Ollivander wasn't exactly sage material. Competent, yes, and as dependable as a sunrise. But he lacked the mischief of a truly effective sage. Dante missed having such a figure in his life. He would probably never have one again. Getting too old. And definitely too high up the hierarchy. If anything, people would look to him to be the mentor, the sage. Now there was a scary thought. He gave himself permission to quit worrying for one night. Instead, he ate, drank, and bullshat with the Norrin. In the morning, mounting his horse to leave took far more willpower than he expected. A handful of Norrin had gathered to see him and blaze off, but most were busy with the slow rhythm of their lives, little currents within the tide. Narashtavik grew ahead, a great sprawl of buildings on the low hills before the bay, its outskirts hazed with wood smoke, its center defined by the spear of the cathedral and the upthrust fist of the citadel. He had been to many places, and would admit that some of them were more beautiful. Even so, the city was his, and the sight of it made him sit taller in the saddle, shoulders pulled back with pride. He didn't announce their arrival, but the word of their return beat them to the citadel. The gates creaked, opening before them. Among the battlements, soldiers in black and silver saluted. Dante and Blaze clopped into the courtyard, a legion of grooms assembled to tend to their horses. Gant resolved from the scramble of activity. The majordomo was approaching old age, but remained as hard and thin as a nail. He was normally cheerful, and lightly, almost formally mocking of them. But that day, there was no humor in his eyes. He gave them a deep nod. Sir Galand, Sir Buckler, the air always seems clearer when the lords have returned to their home. You sure you're happy to see us? Blaze said. You look like Gashin got a little too drunk and mistook your house for his chamber pot. Ollivander wishes to speak to you. He is currently within the council chambers. He will explain. Dante and Blaze exchanged a look. They hustled upstairs to the chambers near the top of the keep. There, Ollivander stood alone next to the round, sprawling table. Ollivander was a lifelong military man, and Dante expected his stiff posture was so thoroughly ingrained in him that they'd be able to use his corpse as a cloak rack. Yet on that day, he looked shorter, somehow smaller. It's C he said without preamble. She's been looking into the theft of the book, and last night she was attacked. Chapter 12 She lay in bed, wan and deflated, like a butterfly that's just left its cocoon. As far as Dante could tell, she was fine, They'd healed her whole. Her throat didn't show a scratch or a scar. But she'd been in a deep sleep since the attack. 
There was no telling when or if she'd wake up. Dante sent the nether within her, questing for damage the others hadn't noticed, but found nothing substantial. He withdrew from C's chambers and summoned the one who'd been with her during the attempted murder, an acolyte named Sorowan. Dante didn't know Sorowan personally, but Ollivander had already briefed him. Growing up in Farning, a village in the Malish earldom of Wix, Sorowan had shown a knack for the ether when he was just six years old. He'd quickly been inducted into the priesthood at Wix, with expectations he'd be sent to Bressel's primacy school by the time he was ten. For years, he remained in Wix, making little progress with the ether, his promising start stalling to a standstill. As it turned out, this was because he just wasn't very good at it. His true talent lay in the nether. Initially, he'd refused to practice at all. Smart, considering that in Malin, the practice was punishable by death. But over the years, his curiosity with the shadows and his frustration with the light had eroded his resolve. So he'd begun to practice in secret. Realizing that if he stayed in Malin, he would at best never progress beyond an amateur and at worst be executed by the ethereal rite of the piercing of a hundred stars. He'd snuck out of his temple and made the long pilgrimage to Narashtavik. There, he'd been allowed to become an acolyte at one of the lesser cathedrals. He'd made progress with the nether, changed his name from the obviously malish Sorley to the upstandingly Gascon Sorowan. Following some testing of his skill and an investigation into his background to make sure he wasn't a spy, he'd been elevated to the monastery within the citadel. At that point, he'd been fourteen. Now, four years later, Sorowan was skilled enough to become a proper monk, but was being prevented from doing so by some kind of bureaucratic logjam that Dante couldn't resolve without alienating one half of his monks so he'd left them to solve the dispute for themselves. Needless to say, the logjam wasn't being received well by the acolytes being held back. Knack, who still thought of himself as a simple monk mistakenly promoted to the heights of the council, continued to take an interest in the monastery's affairs. It had been his suggestion to assign Sorowan to see, as she investigated the theft of the book. Paired up, Sorowan would provide magical muscle for C. Meanwhile, as Sorowan waited for his official promotion, the task would give him something to do and provide him real experience out in the field. Dante awaited the acolyte in the council chambers. Sorowan arrived looking perfectly anxious. Ten years the boy's senior, Dante thought Sorowan looked absurdly young. Sit down. Dante said. The boy's eyes darted from chair to chair as he attempted to decipher which one he was meant to occupy. He glanced at Dante for a sign, found nothing, then shot a look at Blaze, who was leaning against the wall, arms folded. Looking as though he might spontaneously shatter, Sorowan simply chose the chair closest to him. Tell me what happened last night, Dante said. 
Sarwan frowned. I've already told Ollivander, but you're not Ollivander, he added quickly, and you're giving me an order, so I should probably shut up and talk. Dante hadn't bothered to light a fire, and the room was cold, but sweat dewed Sarwan's forehead. He spoke with a moderate Malish accent. I was out with C, obviously. She was supposed to meet someone named Waller. This was after midnight. I remember because the bells had made me jump. Who's Waller? I don't know. There was a lot C didn't tell me. Sometimes I felt she didn't like having me around. Hard to believe. Where was the meet to be held? A rooftop on Flinders Street, next to the Green Beetle. C had me get up onto the roof across the street and hide behind the water barrels. Everything looked fine to me. I mean, there were a lot of dirty-looking people around, but that's Flinders Street for you. So I signaled C the okay. Well, she started to climb up to her roof. I remember I didn't have any blood on hand, so I poked myself in case I needed to call the nether. Where? Sarwan furrowed his brow. To my hands? Where do you cut yourself? Right here. He tapped the left side of his chest. I know they recommend the back of the arm, but sometimes it leaves a bit of a scar. I got to thinking, what if I ever go back to Malin, and one of the priests sees me with a bunch of cut-up arms and thinks, hmm, that fellow looks like a nethermancer. Dante nodded, mildly impressed, and made a note to mention the idea to the monks who trained the acolytes. Did C make it to the roof? Yep. There was some moonlight, so I had a clear view of her. She was all alone on this flat part of the roof. Then this guy in a cloak seemed to step out from nowhere. You mean it was hard to tell where he came from? Sorwin shook his head. I mean that one second C was the only person on that roof, and then it was like someone walked out of an invisible door. Dante twisted to raise his eyebrows at Blaze, who nodded. And then he just stabbed her. Sarwan's eyes were wide. He drew back a knife and was going to stab her again, but I threw a shudderbolt at him. Right before it hit him, he vanished as fast as he'd shown up. You reacted that fast, from across the street. I was supposed to be looking out for her, wasn't I? Then what? She was bleeding. Bad. So I closed her up as best I could, yelled for help, and stood watch. Nothing else happened until Nack and the monks showed up and got her down from the roof. Dante leaned forward at the table, pinching the bridge of his nose. Anything strange leading up to the attack, or during it? That's all I can remember. Question, Blaze said. Are you sure the attacker was a man? Sorrowin shrugged his shoulders tight. I guess not. He, they, were wearing a cloak, and I couldn't see their face. Thank you, Dante said. Close the doors behind you. The boy stood, bowed to Dante, then seemed to think he should bow to Blaze, too, which apparently required a second bow to Dante. He walked quickly from the room, clicking the door shut behind him.
Dante waited for the boy's footsteps to fade down the hall. He turned to Blaze. Shadow Walker. Absolutely. Does that disturb you as much as it does me? Because the next question is whether this was one of the people of the pocket. Dante nodded. Is there any chance we've done something to offend them? Well, we have kept one of them away from her husband, who the rumors hold is as dashing as he is brave. Such an offense is truly worthy of death. But the real answer is no, right? They don't get involved in outside affairs. They're not even supposed to leave Pocket Cove. And we haven't done anything to them in the first place. I'll check with men. Blaze folded his arms. But if they are involved, they might hide it from her, so she wouldn't tell me. If she did know, are you sure she'd tell you? I'd like to think so. Blaze headed for the door. But I'd like for a lot of things to be true. While he went to find Min, Dante headed for the chapel where the theft had taken place. At his request, they hadn't changed anything since then, not even to replace the drapes or sweep the floors. The only major thing they'd done before Knack had contacted him was to remove the boot from the wall. As such, after weeks of intentional neglect, the place was a colossal mess, full of grit, dried leaves, cobwebs, and mouse droppings. Dante went over it, bit by bit. Nothing stood out as suspicious. He picked his way across the dingy floor to stand in front of the sealed rock wall. As far as he could tell, the stone was undisturbed except for the small triangular divot where the boot's heel had been captured. More evidence they were dealing with a shadow walker rather than someone capable of moving the earth, although most of the people of the pocket were both. Just in case someone was playing a bizarre trick on him and hiding the book right under his nose, he moved his mind through the rock, feeling for empty pockets or hidden compartments. Nothing there. He hadn't expected to find anything. It had been over a month since the theft, and Somber, Knack, and C had already been over the room multiple times. Yet his failure was still disappointing. Every failure took them one step closer to running out of options. Lastly, Dante inspected the boot. It seemed worn and ordinary. If the wearer had left some blood on it, or even a stray hair, Dante could have tracked them down with a quickness. But the only hairs he found on the boot belonged to the people who'd handled it. He severely doubted any of them was a secret shadow walker, but he had them try it on anyway. It was too small for all of them. All of this took Dante close to three hours. Even so, he still had to wait for Blaze to return from his conversation with Min. When Blaze finally arrived, he sprawled in a chair, putting his feet up. Min says she doesn't know of any schemes from Pocket Cove. Hmm. Come on. Why would they steal the cycle? Think they got bored of staring at the ocean and decided they need some new bedtime stories? 
Maybe they want to use it to identify new recruits, same way Samaran did. Blaze considered this, then shook his head. The people of the pocket don't have any interest in growing their numbers. The only thing they care about expanding is the freshness of their fish. Even if it wasn't them as an institution, that doesn't mean it wasn't one of their number acting on their own. Ask Min if she knows whether anyone's left recently. Min didn't, but she promised to ask. With the people of the pocket lacking loons, unless they were deceiving Dante about that too, that meant dispatching a messenger, meaning any answer was weeks away. Still, that was all the more reason to set it in motion at once. The rest of the day was eaten up by council business. By the time Dante finally got to his own room, he was so tired that he almost didn't notice that his sword was missing too. He sat on his bed and thought about screaming. The theft of the sword was somehow far more personally humiliating than the stealing of the cycle, to the point where he was almost tempted not to say anything about it to anyone else. That, however, was stupid and completely at odds with his overall goal of getting it back. Somber was off spying in Setevan, and C remained unconscious, meaning the active head of security was, well, he didn't know. He'd been gone too long. He decided to burden Ollivander with the information, trusting his second would deliver it to the appropriate parties. After that conversation was over, Dante was so tired, he was starting to regret turning down Hop's offer to wander away with the broken herons. Still, in the morning, it felt good to wake up in his own room, in his own city, to be surrounded by familiar faces in a familiar building. He ate breakfast, then returned upstairs to head a formal meeting of the council. Dante gave them a full account of Colin's rebellion against Malin, including the particulars of his and Blazer's involvement in it. There were questions, lots of them. Dante answered without flinching, satisfying them by making it clear that Narashtivik's involvement would end as soon as they'd secured the agreement between Alebolja and Colin. Dante glanced around the table. Anything else? One small matter. This came from Tarkon, the oldest member of the council, and one of the few remaining from Samaran's time. Like many old men, he no longer cared about being polite, or, maybe, had forgotten how. Why in the shrieking hell do you think this is a good idea? Dante laughed. If you'd told me from the beginning where this was going to lead... I might not have gotten involved, but if you knew what was going to happen before it did, I'd do whatever you say, because you must be a god. As for me, I'm still a human, despite your best efforts to join the Celeset. And as a human, I didn't know what was to come. I had to make my decisions as things played out. It got messy. But if I'd walked away, it would have gotten even messier. That made it hard for me to pretend I had no responsibility to the people in need. Tarkon stroked his beardless chin. 
There are troubles here, too. If we'd cleaned up every mess that happened a thousand miles away, we'd never have any time to deal with our own. Dante didn't try to argue with that. He wrapped up the meeting. As soon as he entered the hallway, he was intercepted by Gant, who looked much sunnier than the day before. With good reason. C was awake. Blaze accompanied him to the mending chamber at the monastery. C was sitting up in bed, arguing with a bald old monk. Seeing Dante, the monk bowed and left the room. Dante moved to the side of the bed. How are you feeling? She rubbed the faintly visible line on her throat. Better than most who take a knife to the windpipe. How did I make it out of there? Sorrowin drove off the assassin before they could finish their task, then healed you enough to hold on until the monks arrived. C grunted. Sorrowin did all that. Talking to him, he comes off like he couldn't talk to a girl without breaking into full-fledged retreat. But he's quick on his feet. Hard to teach that. What about the assassin? Did you catch her? Dante nearly smiled. C always got straight to business, tossing all the social niceties aside like the froth they usually were. She got away, but we're going to find her. You know it was a woman. Did you get a good look at her then? Couldn't see. It was too dark. And then I was too stabbed. Nothing at all. The color of her hair, whether she was younger or older. Nothing. C smiled weakly. But I could tell you her name. Blaze cocked his head. You know her name? What, did she write you a signed apology? I've been hunting her for weeks. Ran into her once before, but it was down in the dungeons. Too dark then, too. Her name's Rosher Dawes. She works with an outfit called the Order of the Alley. Typical thieves' guild. The word on the street is that Dawes comes and goes as quietly as a shadow. What they don't understand is that she is one. Dante added the name to his notes. Is this related to all the thefts from last summer? Right. Seems like they were robbing a different noble every week. Hit us, too. Took the Gerilek collection. And my sword. C swung up her head. They took that, too. I'm sorry, sir. I swear to you, I'll get it back. Wrong. You're staying here. Don't trust your healer's own work. Finding things is my job. That's why I'm here. I don't remember hiring you to fight sorcerers and volunteer for impromptu throat surgery. This woman is insanely dangerous. It was your job to find her. You did that. Now it's our job to take care of her. C gave him a hard look, then relaxed into her pillows. Isn't fair to be born like this? Like what? Normal. Trying to compete against people like you, who can tear me apart with a thought. Dante made a thinking noise, 
Am I supposed to feel guilt for that? It's the way I was born. I know that. C smiled grimly. Nothing's fair. That's why I work as hard as I do to keep up. Why was Dawes trying to kill you? Blaze said. Because she knew you were coming after her for the book, or did you forget to invite her to the last cotillion? After the Order robbed the Citadel, I turned one of them traitor, guy named Gates. With his help, we set up an attack on the Order, pinned it on their rivals. The idea was they'd wipe each other out and we'd mop up whatever was left. Nice plan, Dante said. Thought you'd like it. At first, it went great. Thieves, thugs, and killers were cutting each other down every day. Meanwhile, the citizens were safe. So were our troops. But Dawes bit her teeth into investigating the attack and wouldn't let go. When it looked like she was closing in on the truth, Gates came up with a plan. C paused, lowering her gaze, then made herself look up at Dante. It wasn't pretty. Dawes has these kids. Gates wanted to put them somewhere she couldn't get to them, and use the threat of hurting them to make sure she wouldn't try to hunt him. Blaze bit his lip. You helped him to kidnap her children? If it matters, I don't think they were hers by blood. Gates made it sound like they were street urchins. She was looking after them or something. I didn't like it, but Gates thought she was too dangerous to go after unless he had a trump card. He was more right than he knew. He never came back, and she headed straight for the kids. She must have tortured the answer out of him, then killed him. If she hadn't rescued the urchins, would you have hurt them? What would that have accomplished? Blaze shrugged. People do all sorts of unpleasant things that don't accomplish anything besides satisfying their spite. C stared him down. Do you think I'm one of those people? Oh, we all are. But I'm glad you weren't in this case. Even so, it's no wonder this woman's hot for our blood. Dante pressed a knuckle against his temple. Do you know where we can find her? That's been tough, C said. A lot of her people went underground during the fighting. Isn't easy to get the people who know about them to talk? They're afraid of getting knifed, or they just hate us. Most of the info we get turns out to be a wild goose chase. We can't let this woman go. If the streets are too afraid of her, we might have to teach them to be more afraid of us. We do know some of the Order's buildings. I can get you the addresses. One of your people can do that. I want you to rest for another day. We'll have work for you tomorrow. Doubt it. Now that you're here... She'll be dead by dawn. Dante and Blaze walked out. The bold monk walked in and resumed his argument with C, right where they'd left off. Blaze closed the door. What's our move? Deploy the moths and wait for one of her people to lead us to her? We'll try that. 
Dante said. But if she's at all smart, she'll be insulating herself. I think we need to hit the streets. Just stroll up to the den of villainy, knock on the door, and let them know the high lord of the land would like a chat? I'm not going to send anyone else out there. Not after what happened to see. It was the dead of winter, and bugs of any kind were in short supply, especially the flying kind best suited for reconnaissance. Fortunately, Somber had foreseen this eventuality long ago, and had tasked one of the monks with setting up a creche of darkling beetles. This was a small wooden structure attached to the stables. The air inside was warm and smelled a little foul and a little sweet. Dante slew a dozen beetles, reanimated them, and sent them buzzing over the walls toward the addresses in C's logs. He was still dressed in the formal garb of the high priest overseeing his council. He changed into dark trousers and a long wool coat. The coat's hem hung past his knees, but that was the only thing about it that adhered to proper Narashtavik style. Otherwise, it was as plain and shabby as the mugs in the public house in the shops. Similarly attired, Blaze joined him, and they struck out for the city's livelier neighborhoods. It was near noon, but the sun was blocked from sight by a thick tarp of clouds. Snowflakes scurled from above. The temperature likely hadn't been above freezing in weeks, and the streets were bedeviled with hard-packed patches of ice. An icy wind gusted from the bay on the north end of the city. But people still required food and homes and so forth, which meant they required the money to buy them with, which meant they required forms of employment. And so, for all nature's efforts to convince people to stay indoors until the outdoors wasn't actively trying to kill them, the streets bustled with people going on about their business. Though the city continued to grow with each year, Dante still knew most of it. He headed for a public house near the inner wall of the Pride Gate. Years back, with Narashtavik's coffers growing fat, following the surge of trade from their allies following the war, Dante had funded a project to invest in those who wanted to start businesses, but lacked the coin for the initial costs. With the aid of a pair of monks, who'd been trained as interrogators by Samarand, the project's choice of partners had hit the mark often enough to make the program self-funding. For a while, at least. Recently, it had been struck with increasingly cunning forms of fraud. During the salad days, though, when Dante had been personally involved in the selections, he'd approved the city's investment in a public house called the Stagger Home, run by one Lanina Ock. The Stagger's emblem was a man leaning so heavily that it looked like he was about to tumble off the sign. Icicles the size of a man's arm hung from the eaves. Inside, the main room was welcomingly warm, dense with the scents of beer, damp wool, and leather, and the beef stew that seemed to exist in every land that had a proper winter. Several of the patrons stared at the two of them, trailing off mid-sentence. For a moment, the only sounds were the crackle of the fire and the clink of crockery on a serving boy's tray. As Dante headed for the bar, conversation resumed, though more softly than before.
The man behind the counter hustled to the back, then returned to tell Dante that Lanina would be happy to see them. They walked to her office. Seeing them, Lanina rose from her chair, grinning. She ran her eyes up and down Dante's frame. Where have you been off to this time? The arse end of the world and back? You look ten years older. You'll want to talk, he said. You're grayer than Blazer's face the morning after you tell him drinks are on the house. That's what happens to you when all your customers are drunks. Did you want something, or did you just come here to insult me? We're looking for someone. Rorschach Dawes of the Order of the Alley. Do you know her? Do I know about the woman who pulled a heist on the sealed citadel itself? They're probably singing songs about her out front as we speak. Know where we can find her? Lanina knitted her brows. I don't. And I'm glad I don't. Blaze folded his arms. Bit of a terror, is she? I've never heard so many rumors about one person. Some say she's a vampire, turns into a bat and flits into the place she wants to rob. Others say she can fly by flapping her arms, or that she's got a blade that can cut through solid rock. I believe about one word in a hundred, but what I do believe is that she's got more bodies on her than that carnitarium of yours. That's exactly why we need to find her, Dante said. Do you know anyone who might know more? Lenina rolled her lips together. There's a person named Thumbs that comes in here most nights. Around his fifth cup, he likes to brag about how he used to run with the order. Normally, I'd say it was no more than drunk talk, a way to puff himself up for his fellow souses. But Thumbs seems to know just enough that I might believe him. Then we'll find out tonight. I'll consider myself warned. But if you plan to beat it out of him, do me a favor and do it outside. Think we'd need to? I thought he was a braggart. A most annoying one. Lanina met his gaze, but there was something guarded in her eyes. Just don't be surprised if he suddenly acts like he'd rather swallow his own tongue. She promised to send a runner to the Citadel if Thumbs arrived that evening. Dante and Blaze moved on to their next potential source, a pawnbroker Blaze sometimes went out drinking with. While Blaze spoke with his man, Dante cycled through the eyes of the beetles that had arrived at the Order's known haunts. With no idea what Rasha looked like, he had to listen to each conversation carefully. Her name cropped up now and then, but always in the context of speculation or gossip, and never as though they were sitting there in the room with her. The pawnbroker gave them nothing of note. Neither did their next three sources. Snow continued to fall. The night joined it. Knack looned Dante to let him know that Thumbs had arrived at the stagger home. Whatever any of that meant. Dante and Blaze beelined for the pub. Inside, Lenina commanded the bar. Seeing Dante, she shifted her eyes to the right end of the counter, where a man in a disintegrating fur hat jabbed his index finger in all directions, punctuating his loud speech. Soon enough, the man in the hat stood and walked outside to use the latrine. Blaze moved behind him, smiling.
Mr. Thumbs? Thumbs spun, jaw tight, and head tipped back. Seeing the two armed men across from him, he eased back. What do you want? To watch a grown man take a piss? Better to take care of that first. Otherwise, when you hear what I have to say, you'll wind up wearing it. Thumb scowled. There was a latrine around the rear of the building, but he turned his back on them and urinated into a snowbank. Dante knew that countless people did it every day. In moments of desperation or over-inebriation, he'd done so himself. But the sight of someone pissing on his city made him want to drag the man off to the dungeons. Thumbs finished and walked back toward them, keeping his right hand in the pocket of his long coat. Get on with it before someone steals my drink. The other night, I heard you say you used to belong to the Order. Blaze tipped his head to the side. Is that true? Damn right. One of their top men. Raked in so much silver, I could retire by an age when most men are still learning their trade. Did you ever know... her? The shadow who calls the shots? Of course I did. A man like me knows everyone. Thumbs smirked. But if you're angling for an introduction, well, that means you don't got what it takes to deserve one. I think you'll tell me how to get in touch with her. You see, my name is Blaze Buckler. I work in the employ of the Citadel. Or maybe it'd be more accurate to say that I've agreed to lend my talents to the Citadel because I'm fond of it and the people in it. In either event, I need to speak with Rosha Dawes. You can help me find her. Or I can give your friends reason to call you the man with two weird little nubs where his thumbs used to be, and then you can help me find her. Over the course of Blazer's speech, Thumbs's face had frozen as fast as the ice in the streets. His right hand twitched in his pocket. Dante drew on the shadows. Thumbs went perfectly still. It was lies. All of it. I was never in the order. Damn sure never knew Rosha Dawes. Then why pretend to be part of a vicious gang? Blaze said. To avoid the horror of ever being hired again? Why else? Make myself look important. Be the one everyone else looks up to. I think it's time to see about those thumbs. The man edged back an inch. You're mad at me because I don't associate with known criminals? I've got nothing against criminals. Used to be one myself. Would probably still be considered one, except I became one of the people who gets to decide who the criminals are. Blaze took a step forward, gazing down at the shorter man. I'm getting mad at you because I think you're lying to me. Thumbs whipped his hand from his pocket. A knife slashed past the falling snowflakes. Blaze stepped to Thumbs's left, grabbing the collar of the man's coat and pulling it over his head. Thumbs yelled out, slashing blindly. Blaze turned with him, yanking the coat inside out over Thumbs' arms, ensnaring him. Blaze grabbed his wrist, located an elbow within the fabric, and bore down with his forearm. The knife fell into the snow. 
Blaze made a few more maneuvers Dante probably wouldn't have been able to follow even in full daylight. He came to a stop standing over thumbs, locked onto an arm that was in imminent danger of snapping. Right, Blaze said. Talk. I was in the order, Thumbs sneered up at Blaze, snot smeared across his upper lip. But I left almost two years ago. I never knew Rosha. Don't know where to find her. Blaze cranked the man's arm another fraction of an inch. Thumbs gasped, then retched. Blaze shifted his grip. You're sure about that? Then take my arm, you jackbooted priest lover. Even if I did know, telling you would write my name on a grave. Blaze looked up at Dante. What do you think? Can't hurt to try it. Dante nodded at the man's arm. Except, obviously, for him. I just have this nasty suspicion he's telling the truth. Your call. Blaze tipped back his head to the falling flakes, swore, and let go of Thumb's arm. The man plopped into the snow and sat up, rubbing his arm. Let this be a lesson about the dangers of vanity, Blaze said. Thumbs got to his feet. Blaze picked up the knife from the snow and underhanded it to Thumbs without any spin. Thumbs tracked it and caught it with a cradling motion. He returned it to his pocket and crunched through the snow toward the pub. Halfway to the corner of the building, he turned and glared at them, eyes icy bright. You call us thugs? Then you beat me, threaten me. Every day your soldiers do the same thing to people like me across the whole damn city. That's why we need someone like her. Who else is going to protect us? He turned and stamped around the corner. Empty-handed, in a grungy alley that stank of urine, Dante headed back toward the distant lump of the citadel. This is a bad idea, Blay said. To call it a night. We've been running down sources all day with nothing to show for it. I need a break. That's exactly what I mean. Everyone we've talked to has stonewalled us, lied to us, or passed us off to someone else. If we were anywhere else, we'd be able to make some progress. But we're trying to infiltrate the same underground that we're constantly arresting, imprisoning, and executing. Worst of all, we're trying to find the only one of them who can stand up to us. You really think they're going to turn in Rasha Dawes, their folk hero? You might as well ask the slice of beef on your plate where to find its brother. Then we put all our power to use. Raid all of the Order's hangouts. Imprison every one of their people until someone talks. Giving Rasha the motive and opportunity to light out with the book and your sword. What else are we supposed to do? Continue spying on the Order's minions, who will probably never step foot in the same neighborhood that she's hiding in. Blaze was quiet for a time, the snow squeaking underfoot as he hiked toward the ingate. We are overthinking this. Put out a reward. Think that'll be enough? Even if everyone loves her, there's always someone desperate or selfish enough to betray what they believe in. Dante tugged his hood forward to cover his freezing ears. But that's what we're searching for right now.
and you're claiming we won't find it. That they won't turn her in to the same authorities who rule them. We can't squeeze the answers out of them. That only makes them want to kick back. But we can coax them into doing what we want. Plant the seed of the idea, and let them grow it. Precisely, Blaze smiled suddenly. Best if we're not even involved. Have whoever comes in to claim the reward speak to a monk or someone outside the higher echelons of authority. If the squealer doesn't have to say it right to our faces, they can tell themselves they're not a snitch. You're getting more cynical as you get older. Hardly. I'm just better at understanding what I'm seeing. As always, the forging of a new plan bolstered Dante's spirits. Yet something chewed at him. Were they missing a key detail, some flaw in the plan? He glanced at Blaze, about to voice his unease. Blaze was staring down the street with a look of such blankness Dante could have believed his soul had departed for the past lands. With that image in mind, he knew the source of his own troubled thinking. Blaze's plot, while cunning, didn't feel like Blaze. At this point in his life, Blaze had seen too much to be naive, but through it all he'd always maintained a certain optimism, that by and large, people were good and worth sparing. This felt colder. The careless knife of truth that cuts as deep as the sea. Blaze seemed to be expressing the belief that everyone was as cracked and broken as Aron's mill, inherently flawed, and that his solution to their problem carried the implied belief that these flaws weren't necessarily a bad thing, because if you accepted the basic meanness of humans, then that granted you the power to exploit them. Dante stepped over a long lump in the snow. The lump was covered in fabric. It was the arm of a beggar who'd frozen to death and been buried in the drifts. What had brought this change on Blaze? The genocide in Colin? The keeper betraying their faith in her? Or were they simply getting old? Whatever the case, Dante had always suspected these darker truths himself. Lighthearted even when he was being cynical, Blaze had always held him back from stepping into that drop of unknown distance. A bitter wind howled from the north, driving powdery snow before it. It was snowing harder now, in slanted, irregular gusts that made the buildings look as though they were fading away into another world. Like the turning of a page, or the clicking of a gear. Dante's mind shifted, too. And he didn't think he liked what he saw. In the end, it took just two days for someone to collect the reward. The someone in question was a young and angry-looking man who refused to give his name. They'd had any number of false reports from drunks and saboteurs, but there was a spiteful intensity to the young man's words that made Dante all but certain he was telling the truth about Dawes. According to him, Rochard Dawes was operating out of the upper floor of a tenement deep inside a part of the city where a respectable person would, in fact, be caught dead, 
but only because someone there had killed them and used the body as a bridge over the nearest puddle. The monk handling the conversation thanked the young man and made arrangements to pay him if his information led to anything useful. The tenement was only two blocks away from a pub where one of Dante's darkling beetles was currently crawling around on the ceiling, spying on the overly loud blather of the crooks beneath it. He guided the beetle outside and directed it toward the tenement. On the way, the fierce winds knocked it down half a dozen times. They had the shutters closed against the storm. Dante landed the beetle on a windowsill and directed it to search for a crack. This process took several minutes. Apparently, they'd weatherproofed the upper floor for their princess of thieves. But he finally wiggled his way inside. He was in a dim room with four pallets on the floor. He crawled to the ceiling and out the door into a common room. There, two men sat at a table playing dice. They'd put a cloth over the table so their rolls wouldn't rattle. They had scarred arms and faces, and the unnaturally calm look of enforcers. A third man stood beside the door to the hallway, hand resting on the hilt of his sheathed dagger. Other than the beeswax candles burning on counters and shelves, there was nothing in the way of luxury, just places to sit and places to sleep. It could be abandoned as quickly as they could get out the door. In a back room, a severe-looking woman sat at a writing desk reading a book. Her grey-streaked hair was bunned behind her head, and she was frowning vaguely. She looked to be about forty. For some reason, Dante had thought she'd be younger. The woman was probably Rasha, but he needed confirmation before he did anything crazy. While he waited for her to talk to someone, he brought two more beetles in from elsewhere in the city, using them to explore the apartment. They found no sign of the book or the sword. Wonderful. They were going to have to take her alive, then. As he was angling for a closer look at the book the woman was reading, curious about whatever she was so interested in, someone knocked on the door in a complicated code. The guard standing inside the door knocked back and was answered with another code. Satisfied, the guard opened the door, allowing in a burly man with a dense beard and a young woman with wide-spaced eyes and shiny black hair that hung to her shoulders. They hung up their long coats and headed for the back room. The big man leaned his head through the doorway. Rorschach, ready to report in. The severe-looking woman continued to read for another few seconds, then marked her place and closed the book. Enter. He obliged, followed by the other woman. He clasped his hands in front of his waist. They're ready to meet, practically starving for it. They want to see you this same night. Rorschach nearly smiled. Where? There's a stable on Aladdin Street, next to the old temple, the one that got smashed up in the war. They want to meet at a stable? Why? The man's bearded cheek twitched. They didn't say, guessing they own the place. One o'clock. She thought for a moment, then nodded. Tell them I agree. 
The burly man bobbed his head and left, accompanied by the younger woman. Dante watched for a few minutes more, then withdrew his attention to the room in the citadel. Got her, right where the source said she'd be. About time, Blaze said. What's the plan, then? You tear off the roof in a godlike surge of power while I rappel in and snatch her up? Or would you prefer something more subtle, a nethermancer on every rooftop, backed up by a full cavalry charge down the street? She's on her way to a meet in less than an hour. There's no need to complicate this. We ambush her in the street and take her back here. And if she takes her guards along with her? Dante shrugged. I won't cry if the dawn shines on a city with four fewer cutthroats in it. Going to have to hoof it if we want to catch her before the meet. They were still dressed in their common garb. They grabbed their knee-length coats and headed outside, pulling their hoods tight over their heads. Gant intercepted them at the gates, looking perturbed. Dante told him they were on their way to secure the book, and they'd be back before the four o'clock bells. Gant nodded and made for the keep. Jogging through the gates, Dante glanced back at the citadel. This was a lot simpler before I had to tell everyone who I'm off to kill. Time to implement a new rule, Blaze said. If anyone asks, you kill them. In this weather, horses would be more trouble than they were worth, leaving them to jog toward Allerdon Street. Dante knew it couldn't be so, but their choice to meet next to the damaged temple felt like a personal affront. He'd been meaning to patch the place up for years, but there had been so many other projects to attend to that it had slipped through the cracks. So, Dante said, ideas for how to take down a Shadowwalker? Don't tell me you've never thought about how you'd fight me. I'd keep twenty feet away from you at all times, force you out of the shadows whenever you try to dive into them, then blast you into a pile of pulp topped by floppy blonde hair. Unfortunately for that plan, we can't kill her. Not until we've got the book. She'll try to bolt. Blaze wiped half-melted snow from his cheeks. Don't think I've ever fought anyone in the shadows before. Think you'll be able to keep track of where she is? Not sure, Dante grinned, but I won't have to. You can follow her in the shadows. Wherever she goes, you point her out to me and I'll force her back out. We can keep that up until she runs out of strength. Assuming I can spend longer in the shadows than she can. Hopefully, I'll be able to lock her down tight and we can just carry her back to the citadel. In this snow? New plan. You do the carrying while I scout ahead. The larger avenues had pathways tunneled through the snow, but in many of the smaller streets, the drifts ranged up to their waists. Annoying. Then again, it would limit the routes Rasha could take to the meet. Movement in the tenement. Dante switched to the beetle's vision. They're leaving. Just her and the big guy. They broke into a run, slipping in the loose snow and the packed ice beneath it. Dante watched with half an eye as Rorschach and her underling went downstairs and trudged toward the distant stables. 
Once it was clear he and Blaze would beat her there, they got several blocks ahead and parked themselves at the corner of a major intersection, huddling down like a couple of drunks with nowhere to go. Rasha left the main street, opting for a smaller one that would take her right behind the stables. Her enforcer stayed on the main road. Dante stood. The big eyes peeled off. Is she trying to make this easy for us? Probably scouting their escape routes. Let's take her down. They ran across the street, nearing the intersection of her route. They slowed. There were no lanterns out, and the only light was what little spilled from shuttered windows, but most of these were dark as well. The streets looked as vacant as the snowfields of the Wodens. Dante hooked around the corner, squinting into the gloom. A lone figure stood out from the whiteness of the snow. He moved toward her, making himself sway and breathe hard, like he'd been out drinking. Beside him, Blaze belched. They neared. Rasha had both hands in her pockets. It was cold, but Dante was sure there was a knife in there, too. He bit the inside of his cheek and called to the nether. Black flakes swept between the white ones. Blaze stumbled to the right, putting space between them to create a second angle on Rasha. Dante came to a stop, twenty feet away from her. Rasha Dawes, you can try to run if you like, but the only thing that will accomplish is getting more snow in our boots. The woman had halted as soon as he'd spoken Rasha's name. He couldn't place the expression on her face, but he knew one thing. It wasn't fear. He felt something in the darkness to his right, as light as a mosquito landing on his arm, and as unmistakable as their whine. He whirled, going for his sword. Blaze! But the dark figure was already materializing in front of Blaze, her dagger plunging for his heart. Chapter 13 Rasha lunged out of the shadows and into the cold darkness of the street. The man who'd done the talking, Galand, had to be, a realization that turned her veins to ice, yelled, Blaze! Her long dagger dived toward the blonde man's heart. He was already turning, reaching for his swords, but it was too late. Yet he was smiling. As abruptly as a man clapping his hands, Blaze disappeared. Rosha's blade speared through empty air. Her mind seemed to lock up. Galan's sorcery. An illusion. Down the street, Anya had already turned and was running away as fast as the snow allowed, just like Rosha had told her to do. Nether bloomed in the priest's hand. He condensed it into a black dart and sent it streaking toward her head. Heart booming, she grabbed up a lump of shadows and whipped it toward his dart. The two forces met and dashed apart in black twinkles. Galant looked gobsmacked. She waved at him and leaped into the nether. She shouted out. Blaze was right behind her. He'd probably been right about to shift back into reality and jab both of his swords through her back. Seeing her, he grinned. Ready to find out if we can die in here? 
The words sounded dreamlike, almost like they were coming from inside her own head. He should have been driving one blade at her throat and the other at her gut, but he seemed to be waiting on something, giving her a sporting chance to speak her mind. Okay, then. She sucked nether to her hand and flung a dark blade at his throat, its edges shining silver. His eyes flew wider than Galan's had gone. He skipped back, flicking instinctively at the bolt with his right-hand sword. The bolt should have passed right through the steel and into his flesh. Instead, the two objects met with a whopping sound, not unlike slapping a wet pair of trousers against a flat rock. The nether dashed into a thousand little sparkles and puffed away. He looked as surprised as she felt. Before she could make sense of what had just happened, something rammed into her side. Felt like a bag of sand wrapped in a down blanket. She staggered hard, flickering between worlds. Not good. If she had to stay in reality for longer than a few seconds, the priest would smear her across the snow. She plunged back into the land of black and silver, and took off at a dead sprint, putting distance between herself and Galand. Blaze shouted out and gave chase. The two of them skimmed over the snow, the soles of their boots barely sinking in. Galand slogged through thigh-deep piles, quickly falling behind. As she neared the end of the block, she slowed. Blaze closed on her. Without warning, she stopped, skidding over the snow, and whirled on him, jabbing for the base of his neck. Blaze was sliding straight toward her blade, trying futilely to slow his momentum. Seeing it was hopeless, he threw his feet out from under himself, smacking down on his back. The knife passed over his head. Lying on top of the snow, he lashed at her ankle. Rosha hopped over the horizontal strike and dropped to a knee, stabbing down at his ribs. He rolled to the side, long coat flapping, and popped to his feet. He was good, faster than anyone she'd ever fought. Had the reach advantage on her, too. Rosha fell back a step, tossed her dagger to her left hand, and drew a small knife with her right. She hurled it at his chest. He spun to the side and swept at his coat, catching the knife in its folds. She felt something nudge into her side. Galanda was getting closer. She took off again. Blaze swore and followed, dropping out of the nether for a moment to yell directions at Galand. Rasha slipped another small knife into her hand. She saw another way for her to win, see if she could outlast him, and then, when Blaze was forced back into reality, got them both. Thing was, she had a deep-down feeling like he had more juice than she did. Even if she had more, every time Galan tried to bump her out of the nether, it took serious energy to stay put. The order had been around for years, enough time to assemble its own codes and law. Like Earth's commandments, none of these were written down. You had to be initiated. Ironically, it was Gates who'd taught her the four rules of surviving an encounter. First, don't get in one. Second, if you absolutely have to fight someone, hit them before they know what's happening. Third, think ahead so you can recognize when the fight isn't going your way. And fourth, 
always have a route out. As they danced over the snow, Galand was falling further behind, but Blaze was making gains. Rasha adjusted her grip on the knife. With Blaze closing on her, she spun and fainted a throw. As he sidestepped a knife that wasn't there, she threw it for real. He twisted his shoulders, but the blade punched through his sleeve and into his forearm. Rasha had never fought anyone inside the darkness before, hadn't even been sure they could hurt each other. That question was answered definitively, as blood leaked from his arm, as bright as molten fire, bright silver flecks of nether racing toward it as thickly as a swarm of locusts. The light from his arm was dazzling, hypnotic, in a way that made her want to drift to a stop and gaze deeply into the full glory of the gods. She rested her mind away from the awe of the blood, turned her back on Blaze, and broke into a sprint. She raced around a corner and pressed herself to the face of a stone building. Inside the netherworld, living bodies gleamed like moving moons. It was all the nether in them. Your average slab of stone or chunk of dirt had a little bit in it, too, but compared to something alive, they were as dull as, well, dirt. She reached inside herself, gathering up great handfuls of nether. When her body was as plain as the rock behind her, she flung the shadows into the night air, sending them whirling away. Blaze veered around the corner, boots whispering over the snow. A tight spiral of glowing shadows trailed from his wounded arm. He passed by without so much as glancing her way. After continuing for a hundred feet, he came to a stop, staring down the street. Chips of snow spun in the breeze. Galand came around the corner, scowling as hard as he was breathing. His trousers were crusted with snow past the knee. He came to a stop up the street from Rasha. Blaze, is that you up there? Blaze popped out of the shadows, going hazier, the glare around his arm dimming to the glow of a candle. Don't suppose you've seen an invisible crime lord come through here? You lost her? Wrong. We lost her. Now help me search. Blaze sharpened as he re-entered the darkness light blooming once more from his arm. He jogged down the street. Galand wandered a few steps further away from her. Pressed against the wall, Rasha could feel his mind questing through the shadows, rustling them like a dog crawling beneath a blanket. She had the feeling that if she tried to move, his attention would snap to her in an instant. His focus wiggled from one side of the street to the other. When it reached the end of the block, Galand turned around, frowning at the way he'd come in. His mind reappeared, coming toward her. Rasha clenched her teeth. He was forty feet away, too far to try charging him. He'd strike her down before she was halfway there. Think, think, or in another thirty seconds he'd find her, eject her into the real world, and cut her into a thousand pieces. As his focus moved to the other side of the street, Rasha delved into the nether in the building at the far end of the block. Her hold was shaky, threatening to collapse at any moment. 
she clamped down with everything she had, pulling the shadows out into the open and shaping them into a loose oval the height of a person. Galan spun, snow crunching beneath his heels. His attention flew down the street. Rasha sent the oval of Netha darting around a corner. Galand headed for it in a dead run. Keeping herself tight to the building, Rasha headed the opposite way down the street, hooking right at the intersection. She ran as fast as she could. She didn't let go of the shadows until they were on the brink of spitting her out like a bite of bad fish. Vess rose from the low stone wall she'd been seated on. In the darkness of the snowy courtyard, her teeth shined white, but Rasha wasn't sure it was a grin. Made it back, Vess said. That mean you got them? Fresh anger pulsed up Rasha's spine, spilling into her head. It started off exactly like I planned. They thought Anya was me. Tried to jump her. Instead, I jumped them. But they had powers I wasn't expecting. Spotted me before I hit either one. I barely made it out with my skin still attached to my body. Shit. Vess made the oath sound like a sigh. She sat back down on the stone wall. They make you. There's no doubt. Shit, again. How you know where to jump them in the first place? Rorschach kept her gaze steady. Vess knew she'd make a breakthrough with the Borg, but didn't know about Rorschach's ability to blink on and off. Unless Vess did know, and was hiding that knowledge from Rorschach, for the same reason Rorschach was hiding her ability from Vess, because you always kept a final knife hidden up your sleeve. Galan sent beetles to the safe house, Rorschach said. They were full of nether. I could feel them trying to get inside the shutters. At the time, I didn't know exactly what they were, but I had a hunch. I had Anya pretend to be me, fed them a false story about how she was headed to some meat. When they showed up to take her down, that confirmed the Beatles were spies. Quick thinking, you got. I heard Galand was looking for me in person. That's the only reason I put things together so fast. And all for nothing. Now that they know what I can do, ambushing them's going to be ten times as hard. Third shits. Vess flicked snow from the top of the wall. They're hunting you. They know who you are. And they got powers to hurt you before you can hurt them. Is this going somewhere, or are you just rubbing it in? If I look at a fight with those odds, I drop it like I picked up a turd. That's disgusting. And so is the splatter they're going to make with your pretty little face. Vess narrowed her eyes. Leave town. Soon they'll go back to their stupid little war. That's when you come back and we continue our war on them. Rosha paced across the courtyard. Snow was sifting from above, but at least they were out of the wind. Can't. I've only been in charge of the order for a few months. If I leave now, somebody who thinks they got screwed at the election will take over. You come back, you kill them too. Good chance to take out the trash. Not if they resume the war with you in the meantime. 
Citadel won't stop hunting you. They kill you, someone else takes over the order anyway. Only there's no you around to take it back and set things straight. Rasha tipped back her head, blinking at the snowflakes sticking in her lashes. Maybe she should go. Or turn herself in. They'd kill her. But if she confessed and told the others to lie low, maybe she could avert a war between the Order and the Citadel. Running away wasn't going to cut it. The Citadel wasn't going to be happy until they had a body. Then again, who said it had to be hers? You're smiling, Ves said. Why? How would you like to go back to war? With the Citadel? Right now? That's your funeral. Not with the Citadel, Rosha said. With me. Finding a body would have been a snap. Finding a body that resembled Rasha closely enough to fool somebody who'd only seen her from within the eerie glow of the shadows would have only been slightly trickier. As a commercial and religious hub, Narashtivik had drawn a non-trivial population of foreign merchants, pilgrims, and refugees, but most of the population was as pale and dark-haired as Rasha. Even so, Killing an innocent young woman to take the blame for Rasha's crimes felt like the kind of sleaze that would bring down the wrath of the gods. Not just on her head, but upon her entire house. Rather than taking the easy route of finding a lookalike and killing her, they had to wait for one to drop dead. Then again, their plan was going to need a few days to unfold anyway— Rorschach relocated to an old cabin the Order kept in the pine forest outside the city. There, she spent every waking moment focused on the nether, partly to try to learn more than the couple of minor tricks she'd put together, but mostly to watch out for any more nether-bearing bugs. While she was away, Vess reopened the war between her little knives and the Order. It would be a thin bridge to walk down. They could only trust their inner circles with the knowledge the war was a fake. But after two falsified skirmishes, the two groups ordered their people into hiding. Meanwhile, agents on both sides fed a steady stream of gossip to the pubs. Within days, the entire city knew about the resumption of the war. In the meantime, the agents they'd installed in the body wagons that picked up the dead for the carnitarium found their mark. Young woman, dark hair long enough to be tied behind her head, bit of muscle to her. Rosha was called in from the cabin to take a look. Disguised under a bundle of scarves and coats, she walked into the city with a heavy limp, coming to a rickety old house on the outskirts. Vess's two guards let her inside the front door. Vess sat at a long table drinking something steamy. The body rested on the table. Its throat was cut wide open. Rasha frowned. I thought you said she died of green cough. Vess gave her an irritated look. We have to make it look real, don't we? 
The Citadel's going to believe you happened to drop dead of green cough. She doesn't look anything like me. She not as pretty as you think you are? Vess reached out and patted the dead woman's leg. She'll fool them. You wait and you see. Using the various oils and powders that were typically used to hide facial flaws, but which outfits like the Order and the Knives used to disguise themselves, Vess made a few small adjustments to the woman's face, then dispatched a messenger to the Citadel and Rorschach back to the Pine Forest. A day and a half later, the crunch of snow woke Rorschach from her pallet. Someone knocked on the door. Good sign. A murderous high priest wouldn't knock. Rorschach opened the door. Vess strode inside, smirking. She went straight to the stove, stoking it, and placing a metal cup of spiced rum on top of it to warm up. Rasha moved behind her. Well? Well, what? Never seen a woman celebrate selling a corpse before? They believed you. Vess removed a heavy pouch from inside her coat, jingling the coins inside. Paid me for it, see? Either they believe it, or they want me to think they believe it. How did they seem? Happy? Reserved? Pale one was smug. Cute blonde one was happy. Or maybe just drunk. What about the war between us? Think they bought it? Vess gave her an exasperated look, then sighed and got out a cloth to pick a cup up from the stove. I told them all that I was supposed to tell. You broke the peace. I took out your throat. The Citadel's reward was just a happy bonus. I don't know what they bought and what they sold. Rorschach found a second cup and poured herself a slug of what Vess was having. When the drinks were properly heated, they bonked their cups together and drank to Rorschach's freedom. Could it be as simple as that? Feed them a plausible body, then keep her head down until they dropped their guard. If she was smart, even when it was safe to move against them again, she wouldn't come in flashy and violent. No, she'd poison them slowly, arrange accidents, make it look like it wasn't her that hated the Citadel, but the gods. To be on the safe side, she stayed in the cabin for another week. Before returning to the city, she cut her hair short and choppy and got girls to bring her one of the heavy hooded dresses worn by the women who pushed sledges of firewood through the winter streets, delivering their goods to houses and manors or simply selling them to passers-by. When she actually tried the dress on, with its heavy folds weighing down her arms so badly she could hardly swing her blade, let alone throw one, she immediately sent girls back to a tailor to rush order the same cut in a lighter fabric. By the time that returned and was deemed satisfactory by herself, she'd been away from Narashtovic longer than any time since her aborted apprenticeship at Pocket Cove. Returning to the city, the smell of horses and wood smoke, the trampled grey snow, the spires and walls, and all the excellent things locked inside them. Rorschach's heart lifted like the coming of a southern heart wind, after weeks of freeze. As nightfall neared, 
which she loved best of all, especially in winter, when the air was so hushed and clear, it was like the whole world was made of nether. Girls rushed through the door of the pub, veered toward her table, and grabbed her arm. Brosha drew back her hand to give him a stiff-fingered jab in the armpit, but the look on his face dashed her anger. She skittered out the back door with him. After a couple of minutes of rabbiting through a warren of alleys, girls came to a stop, glancing behind them. Blaze Buckler was right up the block, and he's asking about you. But they think I'm dead. If they don't think that, they wouldn't be dumb enough to make their disbelief so obvious. Oh, he wasn't looking for you. He was sniffing around for places you used to live. She stared blankly, steam curling from her mouth. Then it hit her. He wasn't looking for her, just the places she'd inhabited, the places she might have stashed the book and the sword. Blaze and his master would never give up the hunt until they had them back. She turned and crunched through the snow. Girls hustled up beside her. Where are you off to? Away. I'm endangering all of you by being here. So you're running back to the woods? How long do you mean to stay there? Until we're all so old, the only thing we're fit to steal are glances at pretty young girls. That had been her plan, more or less. Remove herself from the city until it was safe to come back. But there was more than scorn in girls' voice. There was anguish, too. She suspected it wasn't so much for her as for the order she was supposed to be leading. She stopped and looked up into his dark eyes. I'm not going off to hide like a sick cat. I'm going there to come up with a new plan. Until then, I need you to keep a steady hand on the order, for just a little longer. Can you do that? He nodded. Rosha smiled. She turned and ran away, disappearing into the darkness and the snow. The remains of the old wall reached up into the night like the arm of a heretic repenting to the heavens as he died and getting denied. Most of the ruins were much lower, no more than uneven piles of rubble. In two places, great stone blocks stood like dumb sentinels. Their sides were carved with what had once been runes or pictures, but time had worn their meaning away into dust. Rasha had found the place a few days into her exile during one of her walks, which she told herself were about learning the surrounding terrain, but were mostly about staving off the boredom before it grew lethal. She'd asked girls to find out what the ruins were, and after looking into it, he reported they'd once been a fort. The big upright blocks had been part of a temple inside that fort. The fort itself had been built to protect Narashtivik, or at least to get some of the fighting outside of the city itself, which, in days of yore, had been ransacked more often than the Order's liquor stocks. She'd found it a good place to think, especially on nights like this, when you could pretend that the entire world was empty ruins, every bit as barren and decrepit. A little morbid, 
but it also lent her a sense of distance she found helpful. That night, though, she was distracted. Had it been time that had ruined the fort? Or had it been destroyed during one of the many, many wars? Looking for answers, she walked through the snow, which had only been disturbed by herself and a few birds that had left trident-shaped tracks in the white. Many of the walls had fallen into shattered piles, the result of sorcery in a heated battle, or the work of an old thing falling and busting into bits. She leaned in for a closer look at a slab of black rock, wiping away the snow with a gloved hand. The edges looked broken, but worn. Its surface was patchy with pale green lichen. Too old to tell. All of it. Even if it had fallen down yesterday, she wouldn't have known what she was looking at. She stood and pulled back her hood, unmuffling her ears and expanding her field of vision. What was she doing? Distracting herself from her real problems. Then again, her problem was that she'd gotten into a war with one of the most powerful orders of sorcerers on the continent, and she wasn't anything more than a trumped-up thief dabbling with the nether. So why not spend her time contemplating what had brought down this ancient old fort? At least that was a problem she had a chance in hell of solving. Something about the place was bothering her, though. Setting aside the matter of what had destroyed the fort, if Narashtavik really had been getting attacked that much, and, supposedly, it had been sacked more times than a field of potatoes, why hadn't it ever occurred to its people to go somewhere else? Had it really been that much easier for them to build the citadel, then the walls of the inn gate, then the pride gate, then these forts out here in the middle of nowhere? Even if their mighty defenses had prevented them from utter annihilation, how many lives had they lost, clinging to this particular scrap of dirt? The thought hit her so hard, she stood up straighter. If she tried to hang around and duke it out with the citadel, she'd be committing the exact same idiocy the city once had. She hustled back to Narashtavik. The gates were closed, but the walls weren't. She shadow-walked through them. She sent a messenger to Vess, then headed for the Temple of Urt. Vess showed up an hour later. Her eyes were puffy, and her cloak was dusted with snow. Vess scowled. Even for one of us, you keep late hours. This was a mistake. We can't fight the Citadel. It was naive to ever think we could. Huh? You got the book. You got the magic. That was the plan. That makes one of us who can use the nether. How many do they have? Sixty? A hundred? Vesh shrugged one shoulder. So you get strong, then you find more like you, and you train them. And when you are enough, boom. No more citadel. That's exactly what I'm afraid of. Rosha said softly. The only way to beat them is to recruit people like them. Train those people like them. Become them. 
If we do that, we've lost the very thing we're fighting for. The other woman instantly grew thoughtful. You speak like that, and you make sense. I've been going about this the wrong way, mistaking anger for wisdom. Getting hold of the cycle was a good idea, but the power inside it. I should be using that to protect my people, not to provoke a war against them. She had a sudden vision of the six children she hadn't risked seeing since she'd rescued them from the bowels of the citadel. No one else will ever care about them. It has to be us. Lots of talk. What's the doing? If I was smart, I'd get the fuck out of here. Move the order to Yarlin, or Setevan, or all the way to Bressel. Vess wrinkled her brow. Would be smart. But you talk like you don't want to be smart. Why not? Rosha shook her head, wandering toward the middle of the snowy courtyard. Why do people kill themselves? Why not leave the city, the country, the continent? Find out if there's something better out there. I don't know. Why not do that? She turned to face Vess, frustration boiling up from her gut. That was the logical next question. She'd asked it of herself, but people didn't just leave, and their decision didn't feel wrong. Why? It wasn't a connection to the land, was it? That might be a small part of it, but it wasn't the main cause. Then what force could be so strong that it made you stay even when you were certain that staying would destroy you. Because we want there to be justice here, Russia blurted. If we run away, we admit that there isn't. And if there isn't justice here, why would we believe we can find it anywhere? Oh, that's the worry. Simple answer. No justice anywhere. Deal with it. I'm going to try. In exchange for peace, I'll ask them for C. She was in bed with Gates, literally, for all I know. She tried to get my kids killed. We can't have someone like that running their town watch. And we really can't have her escape the punishment. Naturally. Rasha began to pace. But there's more to it than revenge. If they hand her over, it will prove they respect us and fear us enough to honor the peace. If they say okay, and you go there, and they betray you, then I'll kill them. Vess rolled her eyes. Just like the last time you tried that and ran away and barely lived. I've got a new idea, based on that fight. What if this new idea is also bad? What if this idea gets you killed? Then I'm dead. Rosha made herself take a deep breath. She lowered her voice. And they have no reason to come after the rest of you. Vess pursed her lips, taking a hard look into Rosha's eyes. You think they're going to kill you, don't you? That's your plan. You sacrifice yourself, all our problems go away. I don't know what they'll do. 
All I know is that if I play my hand right, there's three outcomes, and we win each one of them. Either I die and the rest of you live, or I kill them and maybe we take this war after all. Or they give me the kidnapper and no one has to die. Except her. Except her. Vess absorbed this, then chuckled. Okay. That's it. No lecture about how stupid I'm being. If I want to waste words, I'll ask my people to quit getting drunk so often. Always, you do what you do, and then tell me why it had to be so. Roshar laughed wryly. It was the middle of the night, but she got straight to work on preparations. For one thing, she was already in the city. Beyond that, now that she'd made her decision, she couldn't stand to sit around waiting. First thing was to speak to girls. She would rather have told no one at all, but the order deserved better. She bore a flat expression as she explained that she was about to end the conflict with the Citadel, and it was going to be dangerous. If something happens, she finished, I need you to hold the order together. Don't elect a new leader until they're ready for it. He looked her over. You don't think you're coming back? I don't know. But for once in my life, I'm trying to be smart. She put her endorsement of girls down in writing, then penned a letter to Galand, laying out her terms and instructing them to meet her at the ruined fort the following night. She assumed he wouldn't be stupid enough to kidnap or torture the runner she sent to make the delivery. After that, there was only one thing left to do. She hurried to the Pride Gate, shadow walked through it, and slogged down the southern road, putting the city behind her. She stopped at the edge of the woods. She didn't think she'd been followed. She hadn't felt so much as a flicker of Nether. But maybe all that meant was that he was too powerful for her to even notice he was there. Heart racing, she cut into the shadows and ran into the forest as fast as she could. Five minutes later, with her juice running low and no sign of pursuit, she dropped back into the world. Wind sifted through the snow-coated pine needles. She walked for what felt like forever. Just as she was growing certain she'd gone in the wrong direction, the house appeared ahead. It was silent, shuttered, but the smoke trickling from its chimney attested that Herrick and the children were still there. It was a couple of hours before dawn, but it wouldn't be too outrageous to knock on the door. After the last few weeks, they'd be happy to wake up and see her. She could see their smiles, feel the warmth of the house spilling out around her, smell their hair. It would be so easy to make that happen. All she'd have to do was walk a few more feet. Yet she couldn't get her legs to move. She counted down from sixty, willing one of them to open a shutter or walk out for more firewood. But after a minute had passed, the house remained still. She lifted her hand, then turned and walked back 
through the forest. Feet crunched through the snow. Fear stabbed hard into our guts, but rather than lingering, it faded like a cramp. She knew why. Whatever happened next, in just a few more minutes, it would all be over. Hidden behind a crumbling wall of the ruined fort, she peered into the darkness, picking up their movement within the trees. Three of them. As they neared, she got a clear look at their faces. Galand, Blaze, and Sea. She drew her knife, tugged down her glove, and nicked the back of her hand. Shadows uncoiled from the rocks. Had they been left there by the blood of the long-ago dead? If there were shadows everywhere, did that mean there was nowhere in the world where a thing hadn't died? She stepped from behind the wall. That's close enough. Down the slope, they looked up in surprise, even Galand. Good. That meant he'd honored her demand that he not send spies ahead of himself. No need to draw this out, she said. Hand her over and let's get on our way. Galant gazed up at her. Did you bring the book? Rorschach reached into her coat and withdrew the cycle. She unwrapped the oiled canvas she'd used to keep it dry and set it on a flat piece of wall. Send her up. We'll walk away. Once we're gone, the book's all yours. There's one small problem. To his credit, he didn't smile. I don't give up my people. A dark spear winged toward her chest. He was fast, unnervingly so, but she'd been expecting it. She grabbed the cycle and jumped into the safety of the shadows. The spear sizzled past her, a bright but harmless shaft of silver fury. The two men drew their swords and ran up the hillside. Blaze dropped into the nether. Seeing her there, he winked. Don't suppose you'll come along quietly? She grinned back at him. Hold still, and I'll give you all the quiet you could ever ask for. She backpedaled, drawing Blaze ahead of Galand, who was high-stepping through the snows that rose past his knees. C followed a ways behind the priest. She had a bow in her hands, but against the shadows it was nothing more than a prop. Rorschach vaulted a wall, landing lightly on top of the snow on the other side. Blaze was closing fast. Galand was yelling out for directions, but unless Blaze dropped out of the nether, he wasn't going to be any help. All of which was exactly why she'd chosen the snowy, maze-like site of the fort. She hopped a patch of rubble. Blaze landed right behind her. Just as she'd been practicing since their first encounter, where Galant had tried to do the same to her, she gathered the nether close, then shoved it into Blaze as hard as she could. With an audible pop, he burst loose from the shadows, forced back into reality. Rosha grinned and followed him out into the dimness of the night, where the nether could be deadly again. Galand was nowhere in sight. She shaped the shadows into a killing blow aimed for the soft part of Blaze's throat. As she moved to unleash them, a woman stepped out of the nether right beside her. Something slammed into the side of Rosha's head. 
the night was cold enough to freeze the spit in your mouth, but all she felt was warm. Chapter 14 Dante crouched over the woman's body, wary that it was yet another ruse. Then again, if it was a trick, Rosha Dawes was doing an admirable job of not caring about all the blood pouring out of her head. He dumped shadows into her skin. To his utter lack of surprise, her skull was cracked. Her brain looked all right, but the trouble with brains was that they could appear perfectly normal, even while the organ's owner was laughing at the clouds and pissing themselves. Deep inside the nether, he smoothed the crack in the skull and knit her skin back together. She was breathing deeply, but peacefully. He turned her face to get her cheek out of the snow. She looked like a nice young woman, nothing like the terror who haunted the streets of Narastovic. He wiped a bit of blood on his trousers and swiveled his head to glare up at Min. What part of take her alive was so hard to understand. I thought, Min said in an annoyingly reasonable tone, I would worry about hitting her with the correct level of force once she was no longer about to murder my husband. Thanks for that, Blaze said. He sheathed one sword but kept the other out. I'd promised to return the favor some day, but I'd really rather you not get into any almost murders in the first place. Are you suggesting I should leave before she wakes up? No way. When she wakes up, we're going to need every sword, arrow, and scrap of nether we can get our hands on. As C climbed over a patch of rubble to join them, Dante checked Rasha's coat and found the cycle. He opened the cover and discovered it was a fake. His first instinct was to strike her, but his second was to laugh. Fitting. They'd shown up with no intention of turning over sea, and Rorschach had shown up with a fake copy of the book. He checked her again, and was unsurprised to find she didn't have the sword on her either. He sat back on his cloak with a sigh. We'll have to talk with her. I've only got one word, C said. Die. Julie noted. Now, in the interests of not having to explode her like a rotten pumpkin, would you kindly stand way over there? C gave him a dark look, then walked forty feet away. She kept her bow knocked, eyes fixed on Rosha. Dante focused on the nether around the sleeping thief. If she reached for it, he'd knock her out again, then repeat the process until she was spent and harmless. That was the idea, at least. In practice, trying to keep a sorcerer safely in captivity was about as effective as trying to imprison a rattlesnake in your mouth. Rosha's eyes opened, locking on Dante. Don't even think about it. He summoned a hundred spikes of nether from the air, hovering them inches above her body. If you so much as move, I'll impale you from head to toe. Then I'll heal you and do it again. I'll be happy to keep that up until you get the idea, or go so insane you can't get any ideas at all. Face stiff with tension, 
She glanced at Blaze, then Min. Seeing the other woman, Rosha made a face of sheer disgust. Should have known. Min looked puzzled. Then her jaw dropped. Saya? Saya? Blaze tipped back his head, as if to beseech the heavens. Don't tell me we have the wrong person again. We got the burglar who can walk through walls, Dante said. If she isn't the right shadow-walking rogue sorcerer, we're in more trouble than I thought. How do you two know each other, men? Blaze's eyebrows hopped upward. Because she was at Pocket Cove, where she learned to shadow-walk. That is correct. There was no missing the edge in Min's voice. She was young then, and seems to have used a different name. But there's no forgetting that look in her eyes. The one where the caged tiger is imagining eating you bit by bit? If I remember rightly, she always struggled with the nether. Was that why you ran away, Saya? Rasha? Because you were ashamed of your weakness? Rosha sneered. You're right. I should have stayed. Until your people got me drowned, or you tortured me until I went mad and flung myself down from the fingers. We have to toughen ourselves. If we don't, Gask will destroy us. Who are you to complain? No one has taken to Pocket Cove against their will. And no one would go there if they knew what it's like. Giving Dante a baleful glance, Rosha propped herself up on her elbows to get a better look at Min. Which makes it a problem when you are never allowed to leave, except, apparently, for you. That's different. My presence here helps keep Pocket Cove safe. Min's face darkened. I don't need to justify myself to you. Rorschach stared at her long enough to unload another ton of contempt, then shifted her gaze to Dante. You have a problem. You can't kill me. Do that, and you'll never see your book and your sword again. Don't be so sure. I have powers you can't dream of. Sure you do, priesty boy. That's why you're freezing your ass off, arguing with me out in the darkest woods. He didn't know whether to sigh or to stab her. What do you want? Told you. You give me C, and I'll give you the book. The real one. What would you do with her? Kill her. You don't have to worry about that. I'll take that as a yes. I'll even throw in your fancy sword. It's a fair trade. More than fair. Rorschach glanced across the ruins, toward C who stood alone, bow in hand. She can be replaced. A year from now, you won't even miss her. But if you've got your weapons back, think how much better you'll be able to protect the realm. That sword's already saved my life more than once. And as for the book, where do you think I learned to do this? She summoned a droplet of nether to her index finger. Dante tensed preparing to beat it back with everything he had. But she blew on her finger, dispersing the shadows back to the dark places of the world. 
Dante glanced at C. She was upwind of them, and he wasn't sure she could hear the conversation. If she could, she made no sign of it. No deal, Dante said. Come on, there's no way her life is worth as much as your artifacts. Probably not, he said, but loyalty to your people is worth more than a mountain of gold. It's the glue that holds everything together. If I give that up, I'll lose the very thing I'm trying to protect. She sighed, shoulders slumping. Kill me, then, but spare the order. We didn't start this war, you did. Dante clenched his teeth. Even if he did have the stomach for torturing it out of her, if he tried, Blaze would walk right out of Narashtivik. Threatening her children would likewise cause Blaze to disown him. Besides, if he did that, Rasha seemed like the type to throw herself at him in a mad frenzy, forcing him to kill her on the spot. If he killed her and took some of her blood, he might be able to use it to trace it to other places she'd left bits of herself, stray hairs and so forth. But it wasn't at all likely. The connection would be so faint he'd probably have to be right on top of her stash before he felt anything. He could send moths and beetles into the far corners of the city, but that could take years, and he'd have to be watching through their eyes all the while. There were no good answers, but they'd figure something out. They always did. Pursing his lips, he moved into the nether that still hovered above her, preparing to send it swooping down. Wait! Min held out her hand. This is wrong. Those of the cove don't kill each other. It's our most sacred vow. Good news, Dante said. I'm not from the cove. Does slaying her get your book back? Your sword? What does this solve? It gets the city's most dangerous criminal off our streets. Maybe things are easier in Pocket Cove, where the most trying decision you have to make is whether to eat the flounder or the perch. But in the rest of the world, you rarely get a perfect solution. Most of the time, the best you can do is go with the option that makes you vomit the least. She was one of my sisters. Even though she ran from us, that remains. She turned to Blaze making a sweeping upwards gesture. He listens to you. Convince him. Blaze snorted. He listens to me like a rock rolls uphill. Rasha glared at them. Will you hurry up and kill me before I freeze to death? There has to be something more valuable to you than murdering that woman over there. Blaze tapped the point of his sword into the snow. This was about those kids of yours, wasn't it? Bunch of orphans or whatever. Give us back our stuff, and the Citadel will take care of them. I take care of them myself. Then it's a good thing you've never done anything to endanger your life, and hence your ability to keep caring for them. Who are they, anyway? Cousins? Rasha shrugged. Just some kids off the street. The kind you see every day. Ah, well, you missed a few. What about them? Are you offering to house the others? Dante swung toward Blaze. Are we? With whose money? They're taxpayers, I suppose. I'm sure they won't mind throwing a few hundred silver at a project that'll result in the return of certain objects vital to the city's defense. 
We can't possibly house every vagabond child in the city. I know, it's an awful idea. Blaze looked down at Rosha. How many would it take? She frowned. Do you mind if I stand up? It's hard to negotiate when your ass is getting soaked. The philosopher Camrati said the same thing. Blaze took a step back. Rosha stood, knocking the snow from her trousers. An orphanage is a good start, but you're going to have to do better than that. The sword alone is worth a kingdom. Dante bit his teeth tight. And how much is your life worth? My life? I gave up on that the moment I set up this meet. Men must have hit you harder than I thought. You seem to be forgetting the vital fact you're not selling me goods that you own. You stole them from me. They're not yours until they're in your hands, are they? Her eyes widened. She reached for the nether. Dante grabbed for it, only to find that it was already surrounding him. That was why she'd drawn on it. If she decided to lash out with it, they were standing so close to each other, he wasn't sure he'd be able to stop her. Enough! Blaze glared daggers at Dante, then turned them on Rasha. You think some stupid sword is power? This man can annihilate you down to the burnt ends of your hair, steal a piece of your soul and turn it into a demon, and then send that demon to devour everyone you've ever loved. And after that, he can travel into the afterlife to hunt you down and tell you all about it. With power like that, I'm sure it must be very tempting to abuse it. God knows everyone else seems to, but we try to use it to make the world just a slightly less horrible place. You're currently delaying us from achieving that. For the good of the land, we ought to smear you and get on with our business. Blaze's face was red with cold and rage. He took a step closer to Rasha, eyes sparking like the clash of two steel blades. You've done some bad things, haven't you? Enough to know it gnaws at your soul. Maybe you've done so much harm that a part of you wishes we would kill you. I don't want to do that. I have to protect my soul wherever I can. It's already thin enough as it is. But maybe it's thin enough that I won't care about gutting you. We can find out, or we can make a deal. You give back what you stole, we build you an orphanage, and the freakishly talented sorcerer over there trains you to wield real power. Dante choked. You want me to train her? It's stupid to throw away a good tool. Besides, she's a thief and probably a murderer. We can't have her just running around the city, can we? Much better idea to teach her to use the nether. Blaze folded his arms. She's a shadow walker. Apparently, she's already on her way to becoming a nethermancer. You couldn't ask for a more perfect spy to install in Bressel. It was Rasha's turn to gawk. Spy? Bressel? I can't leave my people behind. I don't even speak Malish. Then you better start brushing up. You want to protect your merry band of criminals, your urchins? Here's your chance to learn from one of the most terrifying people this side of the Wodens. They all fell silent for a moment. Dante adjusted the clasp of his cloak. 
Did you really learn to use the nether by reading the cycle? At Pocket Cove, I was never any good, Rasha said. But once I had the book, it seemed to open up something inside me. That's how I learned, too. That and a completely crazy old man. You're talking about Calamandicus? Dante nodded. There wasn't another like him. That was the worst loss of the war. Rasha had a distant look in her eye, as if remembering something from her youth or listening to a story around a campfire. As fast as someone falling down, she regained her pointed gaze. How do I know I can trust you? That as soon as you've got your things back, you won't blast me apart and feed me to demons? That idea has occurred to me. But we need someone in Bressel. Other than Blaze, you're the only Shadow Walker I've ever met outside Pocket Cove. And you know how those people are, Blaze said. The last time we were able to talk them into helping us, it required calling in a thousand-year-old debt. Something moved across the stark field of Rasha's face. What could I become? I can't even guess, Dante said. Part depends on talent. More depends on the work you put into that talent. And some depends on fate, or luck, or the will of the gods. All you can do is try every day and see how far it takes you. I need time to decide. Three days. Three days? Do you really need that long to scheme up a way to murder us in our beds? Rosha snorted. You might be able to run off whenever you please, but I have people who depend on me. I have to make sure they're okay with me leaving them for a while. And if they're not, you'd give up your chance at this. Dead truth is that I don't know. But I know I have to ask. Three days, Dante said. I'll see you here. She nodded to each of them then took a last look at C, who remained apart, a picture of stoicism. Rasha departed so quietly, Dante would have sworn she was shadow-walking. Well, Blaze said, did we just do something incredibly stupid? Dante tugged up his hood. That depends. What exactly did we commit to? We? Tragically, I can barely touch the nether. Min's my witness to that. Teaching the wild hell tiger to do magic is all your job. Thank you for volunteering me, by the way. I was just wondering how I could add yet another responsibility to my load. Think of it as training someone to make your life easier. Blaze motioned for C to join them. Moving along, if Rasha's going to infiltrate Pressel, she is going to need a partner. Ideally, someone who can do things like speak to the locals in their own language. I've already got someone in mind for that. Dante smiled. And I think he'll like this even less than I do. Sorowan slouched into his offices with his shoulders hunched and his elbows tucked tight to his sides as if he might be able to escape notice if only he could make himself small enough. 
Aware that he was being cruel, if only in a small way, Dante watched him enter in silence, allowing him to continue to wonder what this was about. Please. Dante motioned to a chair. Sit. Sarwan followed orders, awkwardly scooting the heavy chair across the rug to pull himself closer to the table. He opened his mouth as if to ask a question, then thought better. Dante gave him a level look. I need you to do something you might have thought you'd never do again. Return to Malin. There, you'll infiltrate the Brazilian priesthood and attempt to locate a man named Gladick. Sarawan's head gave an involuntary jerk. Wait, wait, you want... What? Dante repeated himself. You'll have a partner with you. While you may need to coordinate at some points, I expect she'll be working separately. Uh... The boy swallowed, pinched his eyebrows together, and looked steadfastly at the table. Why me? Sir? Because you're the right fit for the task. But I can't do a thing like that. No, Dante said. You're not used to doing a thing like that. But you made it here from Malin, by yourself. Just a couple of weeks ago, your quick thinking and ability to act in the moment saved C's life. You have the potential to be of great value. All you need is the opportunity to grow into the role. If I sound confident, that's because I was once in the exact same position you are now. The boy scrunched his mouth to the side. You don't think I'm too young? Your youth is an acid. They are less likely to suspect you than someone older. How long will I be gone? Won't I fall behind in my studies? Unless you plan to start a secret nethermancy school inside a Malish temple, probably so. But I'll be traveling with you until you reach Malin. Along the way, I'll train you personally. Uh, Sorrowin said. That is to say, you will? It's a long journey. We'll need something to pass the time. Then I accept. Or I would, anyway, if not for the problem of other things that happened. Sir, I left the priesthood without permission. I'll never be allowed back inside. You let me worry about that, Dante said. You have a month to get ready. If I have the time, I'll try to start your lessons before we leave. Sorrowan stood, bowed, and practically ran from the chamber, as if wanting to flee the scene before Dante could change his mind. With that out of the way, Dante sent for Ollivander, Knack, and Blaze. They took seats around the table, which was large enough for a dozen. Dante proceeded to lay out his plan to send Rashaw and Sorowan to infiltrate Bressel. Dante thought the idea and its execution were rather cunning, but as he finished, Ollivander looked like Dante had suggested they dig a secret tunnel into Malin using their teeth as shovels. Do you really think this is necessary? Ollivander said. Dante leaned back in his chair. We have to find Gladick. If we hadn't intervened, he would have killed everyone in the Colin Basin. Are you trying to provoke a war with Malin? 
Just because I'm always getting into them doesn't mean I like wars. Usually I'm trying to avert them. But the universe has a bad habit of not listening to me. I see, Ollivander said. And you believe the best candidates for this job are a young boy and a woman who, until last night, was trying to kill you? If they're caught, we can plausibly disavow both of them. One's a known criminal with a vendetta against us, who thought she could go to Bressel to stir up trouble against us. The other's a malish boy who was sickened by what he was supposed to learn in Narashtovic and went running back to his homeland. Will you bring them back once Gladick's been dealt with, or will they be more permanent assets? I hadn't thought of it. I suppose if they're still finding useful information, it would be foolish to bring them home too fast. Ollivander crossed his arms over his chest. In other words, they'll be there until the end of time. Strange. You sound like you think you're saying the same thing I said, and yet every word is completely different. There was once a military philosopher named Anderal, who said that, until you sheathe your sword, you'll never stop cutting things with it. If you create an institution without defined boundaries, it will continue of its own accord, because you'll always find a new way to put it to use. Before committing people to the field, I strongly suggest we define our objectives. They're twofold. First, to locate and eliminate Gladick and second, to figure out whether Mallon has any immediate plans to do us harm. Once we've got those questions answered, we'll withdraw the spies. Very good. Nack, are you writing this down? Dante frowned. Why would we want to put this in writing? To hold ourselves accountable. You of all people should understand the power of ink. What if somebody steals the documents? Like who? Blaze put in. The unstoppable thief you just hired? Bringing her aboard was your idea, Dante said. Besides, she is the perfect example of why we wouldn't want to leave proof lying around. We don't know what our enemies are capable of. The more I travel the world, the more I learn how little we know about what's lurking in it. Knack pursed his lips, quill hovering over his parchment. Am I supposed to write this damned stuff down or not? Ollivander raised an eyebrow. Dante made a brushing gesture. Oh, go ahead. Better make it short, though, because I'm making you carry it everywhere you go until I get back. Nack's quill scratched over the page. If I'm through being interrogated, Dante said, there's the matter of getting sorrow and accepted into the Malish priesthood. The problem is, he's already left it. Without leave. They'll refuse to let him back in. Hunched over his work, Nack glanced up. Why on earth do you think that? That's what he told me. You're from Malin. Don't you know anything about the priesthood? I grew up in the middle of nowhere, knew nothing about the ether, and ran away almost half my lifetime ago. Ah, that's right. You went straight from nobody to Nethermansa. Well, fortunately for us, while the Malish priesthood does have a central governing body, 
Its twelve orders are largely independent from one another. If I'm not mistaken, young Sorowan was an acolyte of Tame. That's right, Dante said. Who do you think will be most likely to take him in? Oh, anyone, really. Tame always gets the best and the brightest. The other orders will leap at the chance to take on a young ethermancer. Then we'll go for Gashin. If Malin's planning for war, his priests will be jockeying for influence in the conflict. Excellent thinking. I'll tutor him in Gashin's ways before you depart. What is your timeline? Ollivander said. We leave in a month, Dante said. That will avoid the worst weather in the pass and have us in Alebolgia by the start of spring. And your objectives in Alebolgia? Finalize the Colin Basin's alliance with House Osedo, allowing them to shut the Malish out of the port in Cavana. That'll require us to discover House Itiego's secret talus route. Before or after that, we find Gladick and we deal with him. Then we come home. I think we can be back by fall. Ollivander nodded. And then perhaps your adventuring will be finished. With the meeting concluded, Nack toddled off to locate Sorowan and start on his lessons. Ollivander went to draw up a timeline and logistics for the journey. Citadel business consumed the remainder of Dante's day. Tedious stuff, most of it. Yet there was something pleasant about being able to make a score of decisions in a single day, knowing that dozens of capable people would immediately set to work executing those decisions. It felt like all the world was an Oladoon field, and he was the player, the only one who could see the lay of the land and maneuver his pieces against the Citadel's opponents. This was the height of power in action, the kind wielded by Modigan in Gask and Charles in Malin. And yet there was something hollow to it. It felt cloistered, like a monk in his cell reading of great heroes, awful struggles, and glorious triumphs. Dante wanted to feel the wind in his hair, the cold on his face, to see places he'd never seen before and delve into their secrets. That felt like true power. As he passed down judgment, consulted with council members, monks, and nobles, and wrote down accounts of what he'd seen, done, and learned on his travels, a part of him was already impatient to get back in the saddle, ride for hundreds of miles, and sail into unknown waters in search of House Itiego's mysterious Spice Island. As was so often true, Wishes could be real sons of bitches. The day after his talks with Sorowan, Nack, and Ollivander, with one day remaining for Rosha to make her decision about whether to join them, Dante's loon pulsed. Frowning, he opened the line. Mr. Dante? The voice was rough, barnacled with a maritime accent. This is Jonah, sir, of the Sword of the South. I know who you are. Dante said. Any news from Captain Nairn? Yes, and no. Jonah halted for three seconds. You see, sir, three days ago, the captain made port in Tanara Tain. Now he's gone missing. 
like he disappeared from the face of the earth. Chapter 15 Missing. Dante's mouth went as dry as the salted cod favored by the sword of the South's quartermaster. You're still in Colin, aren't you? And he's in Tenaretain. So what exactly defines missing? Jonah grunted. What I mean is, we were supposed to speak yesterday afternoon, but we didn't. Nor yesterday evening, nor this morning. Now his loon's not working at all. But you're sure it was working prior to that, when he wasn't responding? As sure as winter swells. There's a feel to the loons, ain't there? When I try to reach him now, his loon, it's like it's... not there. Like I'm talking to an empty room. Dante ran across his chambers to gather his writing instruments and take notes. Do you have any idea where he might have gone? Was he scheduled to meet anyone? Had he found any leads on Gladick? I'll tell you everything I know, sir, but I'll warn you, it ain't much. As I said, three days ago the sword reached Tanaratain. The captain berthed in Arisosis, the only port open to outsiders. The first day, no one's allowed off the ship— inspections and tariffs and such. The second day, they're permitted to unload their goods. Captain Nairn makes arrangements to tour a few warehouses, see what kinds of cargo he'd like to take on. The first visits were supposed to happen the next day. When he went silent. Dead on, sir. Do you know anything about who he was meeting with? Jonah chuckled dryly. This is Captain Nairn, sir, formerly Mr. Nairn, quartermaster from hell. I expect he keeps logs of what time of day he takes his shits, and how many times he has to wipe his— That's wonderful, Dante said. The names, please. The first on his list was Otto Lomota. Jonah spelled out the name. Next was Undun Whalen, and last was Eko Danasan. Did Nairn tell you anything about them? He was angling to do business with people he thought might get him closer to finding Gladick. According to him, Lomota's a bit of a black sheep who comes from a family of priests and so forth. Paper rustled over the loon. Wallen, she does business all across the interior, which the captain seemed to think is noteworthy. As for Donasson, it's rumoured he has ties with an outfit called the Monsoon— don't know who or else they are. Dante paused while jotting all of this down. Anything else? Nothing that leaps between my ears. They'd only just arrived in port, sir. What do you think this could mean? Naren might have left his loon on without knowing it, draining its nether until the connection collapsed, or it could have been stolen by a cut purse. It would resemble exotic jewelry. Is that where you'd stick your bets? I would bet that someone's taken him prisoner. Either the authorities saw something suspicious on the ship, or Gladick has people in the city. Either he was smart enough to be looking for Nairn, or he's paranoid enough to interrogate anyone coming from Malin. Dante spilled sand over his ink, blotting it dry. Hopefully the captain will be questioned and released shortly. We'll leave as soon as we can. If you hear from him— or remember anything else, let me know. Jonah vowed to do so.
Dante shut down the loon. He was about to run and find Blaze, then remembered the advantages of his position and sent a page to summon Blaze to him, along with Ollivander and Nag. They assembled in the room they'd met in the day before. Dante didn't bother to sit. I just heard from our contact in Colin. Captain Nairn made landfall in Tanaratane three days ago. Sometime between yesterday and this morning, we lost contact with him. It could be that something went wrong with his loon, but I'm operating under the assumption he's been captured or worse. I intend to leave within three days. Ollivander thrust out his jaw. To where? To Javar's bakery in Galador. I can't stop thinking about his apple crisps. To Tanar Attain, obviously. There's a real chance that the captain's already dead. Or will be, long before you get there. Blaze scoffed. Do you think that makes Dante less eager to ride in and stomp it up? There's vengeance to be had, man. Ollivander gave Blaze a dark look. Stomping it up sounds directly at odds with the idea of reducing our involvement in foreign lands. First, Neron might be jailed indefinitely, Dante said, and thus in need of rescue. Second, even if he has been killed, we owe it to his crew to make sure they remain free. You owe it to your people in Narashtavik to stay out of harm's way, to keep them out of harm's way. What purpose does this venture serve? What's the value in saving the life of one sea captain, perhaps even his entire crew, versus the cost of your own life if you fail? Nack gave Dante a supplicating bob of his head that was only partially mocking. It's a fair point, O oh, esteemed and nigh-invincible bearer of Oron's wisdom and might. Surely this friend of yours knew the dangers he was sailing into? Better than we do, Blay said. But we have to go back to Colin and the Strip either way. While we're there, we might as well visit a strange new land, and then destroy it. Oh, dear. You've fallen prey to Dante's adventurism, too? When you're safe in this keep, isolated by a thousand miles of winter, it's easy to brush aside what happened in Colin. After all, it's none of our business, is it? People are fighting wars and killing people all the time, and we don't think twice about getting involved. Blaze smiled, or grimaced, or something in between. But I haven't seen those battles. I have seen the bodies in the caverns of Colin. I can't live with myself if I let Gladick live. I will send him to the gods and let them repent what they created. Ah, oh, Nack said. Well, yes, there is the moral component. In that case, when would you like your horses ready? Rather than using the ruined fort all the way out in the forest, they met Rasha under the shadow of the spire of the Cathedral of Ivars. By daylight and in the middle of the city, she looked like just another young woman out on an errand, off to one of the winter markets, or to place an order at the chandlery. Before you give your decision, Dante said, our circumstances have changed. 
If you come with us, you won't have a month to prepare. You'll have three days. She glanced at Blaze, then back at Dante. What's up? It doesn't matter. It won't affect your involvement. If you want me to partner with you, I need to know if you're about to get yourself killed. I don't know enough to answer that question, Dante said. But the person you'll be looking for might be responsible for our new haste. If Blaze and I find him where we're going, that'll shorten the time you have to spend in Brussels. Least you're honest. It was snowing again, and Roshoff flipped a line of white from the folds of her cloak. I'll go. But I'm amending our deal. You can have one item back now. The sword or the book. Your choice. You get the other when you bring me back to Narastovic. The terms of the deal were set. There's nothing to negotiate. Okay. She turned and walked off through the snow. Blaze gave Dante a squinty look, then shook his head and trotted after Rosha. Quit being so dramatic. He's as stubborn as you are. If you walk away, he's only going to make your life miserable. She stopped, back turned, then swore. You need me more than I need you. What would you do if I walked away with the sword and the book and you never saw me again? Dante gritted his teeth. I need the book to help teach you. Guess that makes your decision easy. And I need the sword to kill the son of a bitch we're going to hunt down. She jerked her thumb at Blaze. He's the one who told me a sword is nothing compared to the almighty god-blasting power of the nether. You're asking me to put my life on the line for you and to trust you're not going to kill me as soon as you've got what you want? This is my insurance policy. What if you die in the line of duty? Then you only have to hunt for one hidden treasure, not two. Seriously contemplating an abundance of violence, he turned to Blaze. Help, before I accidentally redwash the front of the cathedral. But the monks could stand to do a little honest labor, Blaze said. Look, if you were her, would you do any different? I would trust the word and goodwill of my illustrious benefactor. Blaze cupped his right ear, tilting it to the sky. Do you hear that? That's the sound of Callie laughing his ass off. I suggest we retreat to shelter until it crashes down. Dante chuckled. At the mention of the old man, something shifted inside him. He had been young once, eager to learn. What would have happened to him if Callie hadn't taken him on and guided him down the path? Almost certainly he would have died at sixteen, slain by the soldiers at blazes hanging in Wetton. Even if he'd somehow made it through that, Samaran's agents would have gotten him soon after. Instead, he'd been granted the chance to study under the guidance of one of the most intelligent and unusual sorcerers he'd ever known, and in the process he'd advanced beyond any of his most secret hopes. Maybe it was nostalgia, or maybe it was the appeal of an unexplored form of arrogance, the role of teaching someone lesser, 
and shaping them into your vision of what they could and should be. Whatever the case, serving as mentor seemed to feel less like a burden and more like a privilege. Nor did it hurt that sealing the deal would mean restoring peace to his city. He favored Rorschach with a critical eye. Regaining the sword had immediate appeal, but he wasn't even sure they allowed people to openly carry arms in Tanaratain. From what Jonah had said, they sounded unusually wary of outsiders. Besides, if he chose the sword, and something happened to Rorschach and Bressel, the loss of the true cycle would be devastating. It was more than an object of power. It represented the legacy of Aron in the north a tradition that dated back over a thousand years. He wouldn't be the one that broke that honored chain. The cycle, he said. Three days from now, be at the Citadel Gates at dawn. She nodded. That mean the war between us is over? And if you want peace to remain in our absence, tell your people there can't be any more killings, no assaulting citizens, either. Now, if you want to rob the nobles, maybe they should hire better guards. But you might find it more interesting and profitable to look into certain Gascon trade routes and warehouses. My friend Nack probably has a lot of information on the subject. I'll have to warn him not to accidentally drop a list outside the gates. Especially not out, say, ten o'clock tonight. Rorschach smiled. It was the first time she'd looked genuinely happy since they'd met. See you in three days. As the sun struggled to clear the heights of the Wodens, Dante waited outside the gates with Blaze, Sorowan, and four of Ollivander's best rangers, who were mostly there to scout the route ahead, but would also help Dante keep an eye on Rorschach. That role was starting to look like it might be superfluous, considering there was still no sign of Rorschach at all. Cold dread squirmed in his stomach like a ball of worms. If she didn't show, and this was yet another ruse, he would delay the trip until he hunted her down. And given that the delay meant additional risk for Naren's life, this time Dante's mercy would be at an end. As the first one yellow ray poked out of the east, a lone silhouette walked lightly toward the gates. Hope you brought me a horse, Rasha said, otherwise one of you is walking. In fact, they'd brought two doughty raggies apiece, but were otherwise traveling light, intending to restock their provisions as they traveled through the Norin territories and Totonin. Grooms helped Rorschach into the saddle and redistributed her bulging pack to her two horses' saddlebags. I'll do my best in your absence, Ollivander said. Remember to know when to sheathe your sword. As they rode out, Dante felt a twinge of guilt for leaving his city again so soon. Yet it helped to know that it remained in good hands. That perhaps was the most important thing a leader could do, assemble good people and forge them into a group who could share the weight with you and carry it onward after you were gone.
They headed south, clearing the gates and passing through the busy neighborhoods that had sprung up on the city's outskirts. As they left Narashtavik, Sarawan glanced behind them, staring anxiously at the citadel and the cathedral of Ivars. Rasha didn't look back, but she did let her gaze linger on the forest ahead and to their right, a distant look upon her face. Travelers had trampled a path through the snow. That day, they made excellent time, yet by the point when the sun fell into the clouds, hanging over the western hills, the road had already gotten worse. Mighty inconsiderate of Naren to disappear in the dead of winter, Blay said. Next time he wants to get kidnapped or arrested, he better make sure it's spring. Dante checked in with Jonah, but the pirate still hadn't heard anything from Naren. As far as he could tell, the loon was dead. They walked for half an hour past sunset, the rangers testing the way ahead, then got off the road to pitch their tents in the woods. While the soldiers gathered firewood, Dante called over Sarawan and Rasha. He'd been thinking about this moment for the last few days, but finding himself in it, he had no idea where to start. If you're lucky, he said, you'll have fifty days to learn. If I'm lucky and the roads are fair, you'll have thirty. Either way, we'll barely have time to scratch the surface, so let's make each day count. Feeling mildly foolish, he nodded at Sarawan. I know the monks have drilled you on the cycle until you must have wanted to turn it into book soup. Dante turned to Rasha. But you haven't had formal training. Were there any parts of the cycle you didn't understand? Yeah, Rasha said, such as the first half. You've had the book for almost two months. I could have had it for two years. Wouldn't change the fact I can't read Malish. Somehow that had eluded him. It pitched his plan right out the window. We'll have to remedy that. Besides, learning Malish will help you do your job in Bressel. He rubbed his temples. For now, it doesn't matter. The book already unlocked your talent. We can come back to its pages later. He shifted his weight on the downed tree he was sitting on. As long as you're willing to run away before you run yourself dry, a skilled sorcerer doesn't have much to fear from the average soldier. There's no armor that can save them from the nether. That means that one of the most valuable skills you can possess is the ability to defend yourself from other sorcerers. Both of you know the basics of deflecting an incoming nether strike, but let's see if we can't refine your technique. Uh, Sorowin said, you're not going to shoot at us, are you? You have ten seconds, Dante said. Get running. The boy paled and popped to his feet, running headlong into the forest, snow spraying from his boots. He was about to disappear into the trees when the laughter of the others brought him to a stop. He trudged back to them, giving Dante a peevish look. What did that teach me? That you can't trust everything your teacher says. Dante brightened. 
He hadn't intended to say that, but it sounded just like something Callie would have said. We won't aim at each other. The target will be the lower branches of that tree. He pointed out a pine sixty feet away. I'm going to attack it. It's your job to deflect my attack before it hits home. He walked twenty feet away from the others. He rolled up his left sleeve and got out his antler-handled knife. The blade was icy cold, practically sticking to his skin as he made the cut. Checking that the two of them were ready, Dante shaped a handful of nether into an arrowhead, then sent it winging toward the designated pine tree. It was already a third of the way there before a black dart flew from Sorrowin's hands. The dart started strong, closing on the arrowhead, but then wobbled mid-flight, veering off course. The arrowhead smacked into the tree. You missed, Dante said. It was too dark to see. You don't want to try to watch it. Your eyes are too slow. Better to follow it by feel. He sent another arrowhead straight at the tree. Sorrowin's counter dashed it from the air in a burst of silver sparks. On the third attempt, however, Dante put some spiral into his bolt, and Sorrowin reacted too late. The nether crashed through the bow, sending it crunching into the snow. Dante tried nine more times. Sorrowin only struck down a single one. His counters always seemed to be a little too slow, his adjustments a little too hesitant to overtake the looping arrowhead. Dante rejoined the others. Sorrowin looked like he was expecting to be smacked. You can't afford to be that slow, Dante said. You know the attack is coming. That's an advantage you'll rarely have in real combat. Get the bolt up to speed, then worry about making adjustments to its course. But what if mine hits too hard? No such thing. The whole point is to cause a wreck. Let's try again. They got back in position. To Dante's surprise, after eight more bolts, Sorrowin apologized for being out of nether. He'd intercepted just one more strike. I don't understand, Sorrowin said. I thought I was better than this. When the nether's flying right at you, I expect you are. We're working at a distance on purpose to develop your finesse. And not to kill you, Blaze suggested. The boy looked partially reassured. Dante motioned to Rosho. Your turn. They stepped apart. She called out that she was ready. He sent a straight shot at the tree, which was gouged and cracked from his earlier strikes. A blast of darkness shot from Rosho's hands and slammed into Dante's arrowhead, obliterating it in a spray of twinkling motes. He loosed a second attack, and she knocked it down just as easily. As the third flew toward the pine, Dante sent it into an irregular spiral. A great gob of nether overshot it, reversed course, and plowed into it from the other side, less than three feet from the tree. Of the next three efforts, she nailed two and missed one. That's it, she announced. Out of juice. Dante let the nether dissolve from his fingers. Already? Was there supposed to be a lesson somewhere? He crunched back to the camp.
The rangers had brought in wood and were striking a fire. You have good instincts, Dante told Rasha. But you hit too hard. It's like you're dumping a bucket of water on a candle. Learn to conserve. Use as little as possible to achieve your goals. Often, defeating another sorcerer is a matter of wearing them down. Exhaust yourself in the first exchanges and they'll rip you apart. He ate and went to bed feeling good about having identified areas for them to work on. Yet, after another three days of practice, having exhausted their supply of nether in each session, he couldn't feel the slightest bit of difference in their technique. During their fifth practice, they actually seemed worse. Sorowan's hold was as wobbly as a toddler trying to lift his father's sword, and as for Rasha, in her insistence on doing her best to block every single one of his shots, no matter the cost, she ran herself dry after a handful of efforts. On top of that, when she rushed in too hard, her counterattacks had such unsteerable momentum that it made it easy for him to slip under her guard. You better hope we fall down a crevasse and nobody finds us for twenty years, Dante said, because that's how long it's going to take for you two to learn to do this right. Sarwan flinched. Rasha just stared. Immediately regretting himself, and hoping the shadows and wavering light cast by the campfire would disguise his blush, Dante launched into a lecture about how they needed to imagine that his nether was a pigeon in flight, while theirs was a plunging falcon with unerring aim. Late the next morning, as they emerged from the forest into a stretch of rolling hills, one of Dante's loons twinged. Oh, wise leader, Nak said. Is now a good time to receive a great deal of information that won't be useful to you for weeks? As good as any. Dante tried to disguise his disappointment that it wasn't Jonah with news about Naren. I take it you found something on Tanaratain? For various definitions of something, yes. In the case of the history I found in the archives, the most important things to come out of Tanaratain are the purity of its noble bloodlines and the cleverness of the fashions they wore. Commissioned by the same royals he wrote about, Dante said. Those books are always the worst. Makes me wish I could walk back through time and pay them to not write about the cuffs of their patrons' jackets. I couldn't agree more. Yet, once the author grew tired of chronicling the type and number of gemstones adorning that year's belts, or decided that even his patrons must have grown bored of hearing about the hems of tunics, he switched subjects to something the outsider might term interesting. The history of Tanaratain has been troubled, to say the least. It seems they've spent most of the last eight hundred years engaged in a series of dynastic successions, rebellions, and counter-rebellions, almost none of which can realistically claim to have ruled the entire area, or to have lasted for more than twenty years. In some cases, the ruling dynasty hasn't lasted twenty days. Are they that warlike? Not especially so, at least from what I can tell. 
The trouble, you see, is that Tanaratain isn't land as you or I know it. The area is so swampy and boggy that the areas of usable earth are difficult to get to, let alone assault. Thus, various regions and settlements were constantly breaking away from their conquerors. And if those conquerors attempted to reclaim the rebel territories, it usually weakened the attackers so greatly it left them vulnerable to an uprising in their home city. Dante gazed down the road, which was so buried in snow that it was a matter of faith as to whether it still existed. Sounds like finding Captain Naren might be harder than we bargained for. Perhaps, but perhaps not. You see, over a century ago, which is when this text was written, the Yoto dynasty arose, unifying the region and keeping it under their control through a series of harsh, but, the author is careful to stress this, necessary and ultimately beneficial measures. Who are the Yoto? Little is said on that matter, except that they are a branch of an earlier dynasty that was cast down by rebellion many years earlier. I get the impression the author covered the Yoto's earlier history in a separate volume, which we don't have. Nack tutted. Regrettably, I failed to prioritize the archive's collection of Tanarian lore. I can glean this much. They're proponents of rules, and they take them extremely seriously. Assuming the Yoto remain in power, my advice is to hew strictly to all of their laws, customs, statutes, rights, and precedents. But Nack, we would never dream of breaking someone else's laws. Forgive me, master. You can't see me doing so. But rest assured, I have fallen to my knees and begun the first of dozens of appeals to Aron's mercy for slandering you. Have you found anything about the city of Aris Osis? I'm hoping that's all the further we have to go. It was only mentioned in passing. Sounds like a thriving place, and slightly less strict due to the nature of ports. The author seemed to look down on it for this reason. Nack paused. Across the loon, Dante heard the flipping of pages. The book concludes on a curious anecdote relayed third-hand from a wandering soothsayer. The soothsayer, in turn, claims to have heard the story from something called a noto, which, from context, appears to be some sort of traveling merchant. This noto, by name of Eko Abu, had a dangerous business delivering various herbs, roots, and barks between the coastal regions and the wilder reaches of the interior. One of these was a swamp known as Gokaza. Since all of the other Noto refused to visit it, Eko Abu was making a small fortune bringing back the swamp's medicinal herbs. On one such venture to Gokaza, Eko Abu was on his way to a raft carpet. Don't ask me what that is. When he heard a scream from a small, densely wooded island. Against his better instincts, he tied up his boat and scrambled onto the island to offer assistance. Moving as quietly as he could, he stumbled upon a scene born from a nightmare. A pale man, 
gaunt yet powerful, feeding on the neck of a limp young woman. Eku Abu gasped in horror. The pale figure detached from its victim, face dripping with blood, and leaped at Eku Abu across forty feet in a single bound. The vampire fell upon him, knocking him to the ground. Eku Abu attacked it with his long knife, stabbing it in the chest, but as he withdrew the blade, the wound sealed behind it. The beast knocked aside the knife and plunged its fangs into Eku Abu's throat. Coldness swept through him. The world seemed to fall away, as though he were viewing it through a pane of dirty glass. He reached for his pouch, trying to find his jackknife, but in his haze he opened his satchel of herbs instead, spilling his bundle of freshly collected rotoari leaves over the monster. The vampire recoiled with a scream, the flesh of its face sizzling wherever the leaves had touched it. Eku Abu threw another handful of leaves at the beast. With a shriek, it bounded away. Eku Abu ran to his barge, pulling through the fetid water as fast as he could. As soon as he was away from the swamps of Gokaza, Eku Abu isolated himself in another bog, convinced he'd soon turn vampire as well. There he stayed in a makeshift shelter, eating the roto-ari leaves in an attempt to purge his system of the disease. After ninety days and ninety nights, with no change in his body or his soul, he returned home to his wife and children. And whenever he went back to the swamps of Gokaza, Nack finished with the satisfaction of all people telling the end of a good story, he went wrapped in the leaves of the roto-ari. He never saw another vampire again. I have so many questions, Dante said. Like, why the hell did you tell me this? Because it's written in a book of history, Nack said, and it's at the end of the book. The author must have included it for some reason. His voice shrank, sounding hurt. Besides, this book is all that I've been able to find. But vampires aren't real. And neither are cappers, I suppose, or the zombies you're so fond of raising when you feel like terrorizing your enemies. Those are nothing but myths, too, are they? Excuse me for thinking if you're traveling to a land where there might be vampires, you might want to know that you can protect yourself by carrying Roto-Ari with you. I'm sorry, Dante said, not quite believing that he was apologizing for Nack having told him a fairy tale. I do want to know all I can learn about Tanara Tain, even if it's nothing but myth. Oftentimes the legends people tell can teach you a lot about them. Exactly as I thought, Nack said. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to return to the archives. One of the rangers returned to warn them that there was a group of armed and hungry-looking men in a grove of trees over the next hill. Dante was inclined to detour from the road. Every delay was an annoyance, and besides, there was something troubling about the idea of riding into a group of people with the intention of baiting them into violence and then slaughtering them. 
Blaze, however, pointed out that if they were murderous bandits, by riding around them, they'd leave the bandits free to attack the next people who came through, people who would be much less likely to be able to defend themselves. Angered by the idea that a gang of thugs was preying on his citizens and travellers, Dante led the party onward over the next hill. The bandits' attack was as predictable as its outcome. All the highwaymen died or fled into the wilds. Dante would have been happy to leave the corpses for the wolves, but Blaze insisted on burning them. They left a roaring bonfire behind them. A piece of him was happy to have made his land a little safer. Yet it reminded him, for all you did, your work would never be done. Things were always breaking down, falling apart, dissolving into chaos. That was the lesson of the cracking of Aron's mill. Even the gods couldn't make perfection that would last down through the years. In that case, why did mortals even try? Behind them, smoke climbed to meet the clouds, the fluttering ashes of the dead mingling with the rising wisps of nether. Chapter 16 They made camp at sunset. Dante didn't really expect the bandits who'd fled the battle to try to take revenge. That was about as likely as a surprise attack by the offspring of the pigs in the sausage they ate for dinner. But he slew a pair of field mice regardless, assigning them to patrol a wide circle around the camp. Watching them begin their mindless circuit, he was struck with an idea. Tonight, we're going to try something different, he told Rorschach and Sorowin. The fine art of infiltrating a place without having to be anywhere near it. Given what you'll be doing in Bressel, this is more likely to save your skin than learning to defend against a direct attack from the Nether. He paused to let this sink in, hoping it would provide them with an extra dose of inspiration. Nether rests in all things, he said, including the dead. If you draw on the nether in a body, you can connect yourself to it, allowing you to move the creature in question around and perceive through its senses. He smiled at Rosha. Like those beetles I sent to track you down. She snorted. You mean the ones I used to lure you into an ambush? You mean the ambush where we almost killed you? We can compare scores later. Right now, it's time to conduct some pest control. Normally, he would have taught them with bugs of some kind. They were typically more numerous, and he felt no guilt killing them. But the winter had already massacred them all. Besides which, insects were harder to control, requiring more precision. Fortunately, the field mice were plentiful, foraging for anything they could find. And though a mouse was cute when it was sitting in the open eating a seed, anyone who'd seen the horrors they could inflict on a larder, to say nothing of a granary, would carry their hate with them forever. Dante nodded to one of them, pawing through the snow at the edge of the firelight. Strike it down, 
Then I'll show you how to connect yourself to it. Rasha poked herself with a knife, grabbed hold of the nether, and slung a bolt at the mouse. Rather than scaling it down to the size of her target, she used a bolt of the same size they'd been using to practice with. It slammed into the target so hard that the animal's head spun away, a burst of fur whirling over the bloody snow. That seems excessive, Blay said. What? Was it a convicted war criminal? Dante kept his face neutral, nodding at Sorowan. Why don't you give it a try? The acolyte stood straight, lifting his right hand before him. Nether webbed his fingers. He thrust his hand forward, shooting a dark needle at an oblivious rodent. The mouse squealed so loud that two of the rangers leaped to their feet in surprise. As it went on squealing, Dante put a quick but gentle end to its suffering. He gave Sorowan a dirty look. Were you going to let it bleed to death? He walked over to the fallen mouse and crouched above it, holding out his hand. Watch close. Moving slowly, exaggerating his actions the best that he could, Dante reached inside the nether contained within the tiny body. The shadows had settled to resting positions, requiring him to send them flowing through the mouse's organs and limbs. Holding these in place, he poured a dollop of his own nether into the body. The shadows merged. The mouse stood. Most times, his two students couldn't have carried themselves more differently, but as they watched the little undead vermin lift its snout to test the night air, the fascination on their faces was an exact mirror of each other. Dante withdrew his nether from the mouse, letting it collapse. Simple as that. Rorschach went first. With the nether settling inside the body again, she yanked it this way and that, trying to force it into shape. Dante gave her a steady stream of directions, but it took her twenty minutes to get the nether apportioned and circulating as it should be. Now connect it to yourself, Dante said. Go easy. Rasha flooded it with nether, overwhelming the careful balance she'd made of its shadows. God damn it! She booted the corpse as hard as she could, sending it arcing into the trees, then stomped off into the dark. Dante raised his eyebrows at Sorowan. I suppose that means it's your turn. Sorowan went to work. He had the nether in position faster than Rasha had. He had more patience for fine tasks and experience in general. But as he tried to meld it with his own nether, the shadows inside the creature seemed to slip away, as if he didn't have a tight enough grasp on them. Doggedly, he kept trying until his hold got so shaky he could no longer keep the nether in place. Good effort, Dante said. We'll try again tomorrow. He forced a smile and went to warm himself on the other side of the campfire. Blaze plunked down beside him. Want some unsolicited advice? The question answers itself. Right. Blaze stood back up. Continue to enjoy your failure, then. I know it's your favorite thing.
Dante exhaled raggedly. Let's get this over with. You know why you can't teach them? Because you're too good at this. Of course. Just like how I can't run because I'm too fast, or breathe because I'm too... breathy. You definitely don't have to worry about being too thinky. How long did it take you to learn to throw the shadows around? Dante shrugged. A few weeks. And that was before you met Callie. You were self-taught. You weren't even using blood yet. And you were still better than these two, who are using blood and who've both had formal instruction in the past. You know how I had to learn? By practicing on a beach for months on end, and acquiring the help of a magic sea snail. Even then, I'm still terrible at everything but shadow walking. Learning the nether was so easy for you that you don't understand how hard it is for everyone else. So what should I be doing? Going back to the basics? Beats me. You're the all-powerful sorcerer. I'm merely the guy who can throw just enough nether over your eyes for you to think a sunny day is overcast. Dante spent the morning ride ruminating on this. By sundown, he'd come to the conclusion that he couldn't possibly do any worse by his students than he currently was, so what did it matter if he wasted a day or three exploring the fundamentals? Following dinner, he took Sorowan and Rosha around to the other side of the fire, allowing them a small measure of privacy from the rangers. Tonight, Dante said, I want to see how you summon the nether. Rorschach gave him a blank look. You've seen us do that dozens of times. So tonight we'll make that dozens and one. The sooner you do as I say, the sooner we can move on to something more interesting. Doing nothing to disguise her annoyance, she jabbed her shoulder, then brought the nether to her. Dante had her repeat this process three times, then made sorrow and do the same. Dante folded his arms. If someone were to chop you two up and sew the best pieces into one person, you might make a decent nethermancer. Rasha, you rip the nether to you like you're tearing up weeds. When it hits you, it's raging like a flood. It's no wonder you have such a hard time controlling it, and that you use so much of it. As for you, Sorowan, you're standing about like a helpless father waiting for his nine children to calm themselves down. You barely touch the shadows before putting them to use. Sorowan blinked. But Brother Borowan told us to let it flow like water. Then Brother Borowan needs a dunce cap and a long sit in the corner. The nether may flow like water, but as a nethermancer, you're supposed to channel it, like a funnel or a canal. Following his criticism, they were both staring at him like he'd passed out with his pants down. This is good, Dante said, because it means there's something to fix. He cut his arm. On a whim, this time he chose his right one, and called to the nether, focusing it like water through a sluice or light through a lens. Not too fast, he said, but not too slow. It might help to think of it as something alive. A dog of war, maybe. It has to be ready to obey you, but it also has to be hungry.
He released the nether, then brought it back, repeating the cycle until his students looked eager to try it for themselves. Dante smiled. Show me what you've got. Sarawan stepped forward before Rasha could move, face hardened with concentration. He held his hand aloft, fingers bent like winter-stripped branches. Shadows dripped from the nearby trees. At first they came slowly, as was his style, but then he bared his teeth, the cords in his neck flexing as he wrenched the nether to his hand. The shadows lurched forward, flinging themselves to his curled fingers. A little rough, Dante said. Blaze nodded, adopting a sage expression. Then again, in a long relationship with the nether, it's good to keep things interesting. Sorrowen repeated the drill, time and again. The shadows started out reluctant to flow quickly, shuddering in resistance, but got a little smoother with each attempt. The practice was as basic as it got, yet Sorrowen was heartened by his obvious progress. When his strength gave out and the shadows refused to budge, he swore, kicking at the snow. Dante jerked his chin at Rasha. You're up. She shook her hands as if to flick mud from them, then bent her knees, lifted her chin, and called to the darkness. The nether poured into her like an avalanche. Eyebrows flickering in irritation, she dismissed it, then tried again. Again, the shadows threatened to overwhelm her. Blaze scratched his jaw. When we duked it out in the shadows, you came at me with a knife. Is that what you normally use? You carry a sword when you want people to know you've got a sword, she said. But a knife cuts just as deep, and no one knows you've got one until it's too late. Oh, I love all blades, but knives aren't about power, are they? They're about exerting the right pressure at the right moment. She stared at him a moment, and then held up both hands, palms out. A hazy cylinder of shadows swirled around her. This time she seemed to be holding them back, damming the nether up through strength of her will. Arms trembling, she continued to hold it at bay, huffing steam as she sought some unseen sign. At last, finding what she was looking for, she nodded to the fringes of the light. A stream of blackness flowed toward her, forming a ball between her hands. When she released it, Dante clapped his hands in triumph. Do that every time, and you'll be a sorcerer before the year's out. She tried again, a little shaky this time, but her third effort was better. Each time she repeated the summoning, she got a little faster and a little smoother. When, at last, the nether failed her, she grinned and stalked around the snow, walking it off like a tournament contestant who's just performed a great feat of strength. Now we're getting somewhere, Dante said. Too bad we don't have anything to celebrate with. Yes, Blay said. Too bad. Yes, Blay said. Too bad. Don't tell me you brought rum. Okay, I won't tell you. The substance I'll be drinking with Rasha and Sorrowan is just... 
brown water. That makes us laugh too much and talk too loud. Must have come from a magical spring, this stuff. He went to his saddlebags and fetched a leather skin that proved to be almost, but not quite full, of one of the Citadel's better batches. They sat by the fire and passed it around, sharing it with the rangers, who couldn't have been happier if Blaze had discovered a pot of gold. An hour later, Sorowan poked at some embers with a stick, the brightening fire making his face look as stark as the canyons of the Collin Basin. Is it true what they say? Knowing they, Blaze said, whatever it is, it's a bloody lie. Then you didn't see the afterworld? Oh, that? Yeah, we visited. Nice place. Rasha had been staring into the fire. Hearing this, she swung her head about with drunken commitment. You mean it's real? The hills and the stars and all that shit? Blaze waved a hand about. Oh, there's something beyond this. But as usual, the priests were completely wrong about everything. Dante lifted his eyebrows at Rasha. You don't believe in the afterworld? Rasha snorted. Why would I? Everything the priests and kings have ever told us is a lie. Do you believe in the gods? Have you seen any of them for yourself? I might have. She put her hand on her knee, pushing herself straighter. You serious? Blaze, pass that bag over here. I can't deal with this. Blaze complied. She swigged. Dante had always assumed there were non-believers out there somewhere. People were too different and too many for them all to believe the same thing. If you searched long enough, you could probably find someone who insisted the sun rose in the west. Even so, he couldn't recall ever having met a denier in person. Then again, at that moment, he'd had enough rum that he couldn't recall much of anything. Sorowan licked his lips. So, what's it like? At first, you don't even know you're there, Dante said. Then you get to live as you please, for as long as you like. And after that, well, nobody knows. Blaze pointed at the boy. Except all those dead people. Sorowan frowned giving Dante a sidelong glance. If that's what it's really like, then why does the priesthood tell us it's something completely different? We didn't know, Dante said. We've just been teaching what we were taught, what the cycle tells us. Now that you know the truth, are you going to tell people about it? Blaze laughed. Can the high priest of Aron be a heretic to his own church? Others have done it, Dante said. It didn't go so well for Lyle. He reached for the skin full of rum. Someday, I'll tell the people what we saw in the beyond, but they have to be made ready for it first. Their belief is who these people are. Challenge their identity with a new truth, and they'll hang you for it.
The following morning, Dante declared that it was time for Asha to learn as much Malish as she could. As they travelled, he, Blaze, and Sorowan spent hours pointing things out and naming them. Rosha didn't look thrilled, but she repeated the words dutifully. Seeing her dedication, Dante was almost, but not quite, convinced that she intended to hold up her end of the bargain, and that it wasn't just a ruse to find the right opportunity to murder him and Blaze and skip back to Narashtovic. When they broke to eat lunch and swap horses, he started to teach her to read Malish, too. As night came, and they finished making camp, Sorowan and Rasha resumed their training with an eagerness they hadn't shown since the first night. Dante spent a few minutes having them summon, dismiss, and re-summon the nether. They still needed plenty of refinement, but each night of instruction was as precious as a gem. If they practiced their channeling as they practiced putting the nether to use, they could build two skills at once. He got them started on intercepting bolts of nether again, but they were as clumsy as before. Even with their improved channeling, they were going to run out of strength before they'd had much chance to make any progress. He needed to teach them control, and then come back to interception. New plan, he said. It's time for you two to learn to raise the undead, and to do it right this time. He fished a few dead mice from his outer pocket. Sorowan gawked. You carry them with you. It's easier than killing new ones every time I need them. Besides, in cold like this, they don't even smell. He stamped down a patch of snow and laid out the bodies. Rather than having them squander their limited shadows, trying and failing to raise the mice, Dante brought them to their feet with a wave of his hand. The rodents stared up at him, eyes as dark as the mouths of fish. Sorowan, bring the nether close. Be ready to use it. Feeling the boy summon the shadows, Dante reached into the nearest mouse, locating the nether within it. To this he attached a cord, or perhaps a pipe, of fresh nether, extending it outside the mouse. Connect yourself to it, Dante said. You'll be taking it from me. Slow and easy. No need to rush. Sorowan nodded once. Extending a thread-thin tendril of nether, he attached it to the hanging cord, tested the link, then thickened it. As its diameter matched that of the cord, it winked out. I got it! Sorowan beamed, thrusting up a fist. I... He staggered, collapsing on his side in the snow. Dante ran to him, dropping into a slide. Sorowan, are you all right? Oh... Sorowan rocked on his back, pressing a palm to his forehead. Dante drove the nether into his body, but at a glance there didn't seem to be anything wrong. Sorowan sat up, laughing, and pointed at the mouse. I can see through its eyes. Does it always make you this dizzy? Dante grinned. Before you push yourself too far, try to— The acolyte jumped to his feet, eyes flying wide. He spun and vomited into the snow. Blaze shook his head at Dante. Why is there always so much 
barfing when you're around. While Sorowan was recovering, Dante prepared a second mouse. Transferring it to Rasha took a few tries, but learning from Sorowan's experience, she'd seated herself and only needed a short rest to acclimate herself to seeing through the dead creature's eyes. Sorowan, still a little green-looking, lowered his chin, bent his brows, and ordered his mouse forward. The creature dragged itself ahead, veering badly to the left, a single paw gripping into the snow while the others spasmed and kicked at nothing. A second paw found its way, followed by the remaining pair. Dante offered snippets of advice as Rorschach manipulated her mouse, whispering to herself as she learned the basics of its command. Within an hour, the two of them were able to make the mice run in whatever direction they liked. At a moment when the both of them had taken a step back to regard their little charges, Dante called them over to him. When people think of sorcery, they imagine raging fireballs, hammers of force smashing down castle walls. A sorcerer striding into an enemy army and striking down soldiers by the thousands until their blood flows around his ankles. The nether can make you look like an avatar of the gods come to deal out wrath and ruin. But don't let yourself get so drunk on the vision of crushing and smiting that you forget the range of your power. Skilled nethermancers are more than a sledgehammer. They're also a scalpel. The nether can be used to solve any trouble you fall into, as long as you have the wit and imagination to put it to use. He crouched down and held out his palm. Sorowan's mouse scurried into it. Dante lifted the undead rodent up to eye level. When you're alone in Bressel, and the enemy's closing in on you, remember that it doesn't always take lightning and hellfire to save your life. Sometimes all it takes is a mouse. The two students nodded. Dante set them back to their practice. They wandered into the edge of the firelight, following their mice. Smart advice, Blay said. Who'd you steal it from? Dante laughed, but a flicker of doubt stirred in his chest. It was a thin line between wisdom and idiocy. Had Callie always been as confident as he sounded? Or had he been exploring as he went along, unsure of the truth of his statements, until he'd seen his apprentices prove him right. The next day, as they crossed a ridge, a band of Norrin hunters watched them pass, but made no effort to approach. After Rochelle's lunchtime reading lesson, which was progressing slowly, Dante took a look at his collection of mice and decided that they were starting to look a little haggard and gruesome. He used the nether as a fine blade, flensing the creatures down to their bones. That night, Dante instructed Sorowan to use his mouse to build a block of snow, and for Rorschach to have hers try to climb a shrub. Too easy, Sorowan declared, as his skeletal mouse packed a final paw load onto the foot-wide cube of snow it had been raising and brushed the surface smooth. That's barely any harder than making them walk. Easy as the boy thought it was, Dante asked him to repeat the task 
until he ran out of strength. Smiling smugly, Sorowan complied. Rorsha had some initial difficulty getting the mouse's tiny claws to wrap around twigs, but by the night's end, she had it ascending and descending the shrub with the grace of, well, certainly not a squirrel, but possibly a confused cat or a young child. They entered a snowy plain, broken up by boulders of dark rock. The steady wind kept the snow shallow, allowing them to increase their pace. Night came, bringing a sudden snowstorm. They huddled in the lee of a boulder. Last night you proved you could build a block, Dante told Sorowan. Tonight, I want you to build a model of the sealed citadel, including the outer wall. Sorowan's eyes darted from side to side. Are you kidding, sir? What could possibly be funny about using a mouse skeleton to build a mouse-sized snow fort? Besides, you said your last task was too easy. I'd hate for you to get bored. Grumbling, Sorowan motioned his mouse to start gathering snow. Rorschach got a good chuckle at this. Can't forget you, Dante said to her. As for your task, you get to write out the first page of the cycle in Malish, using your mouse. Her mirth died on her face. He provided her with a quill, an inkpot, and a palimpsest, then spread open the cycle. The mouse hoisted the quill over its shoulder and began to write in shaky, uneven letters. Dante watched until he got bored, then went to check on Sorowan. The boy was having the mouse use a spoon to shovel snow faster. The citadel's keep was already in place, though Sorowan was neglecting its finer details. Dante watched the mouse pile up the foundation for the outer walls. He returned to Rorsha and leaned over the mouse, scratching at the parchment with a quill big enough to be its pike. How's it going? I spilled the ink twice, she said flatly. Then I thought, maybe I should pack the ink pot down into the snow. So I did that. I haven't spilled it since. Excellent. Sounds like you're making real progress. And what about your alphabet? Rasha gestured to her pages. She'd written it down several times, in increasingly smaller and neater script. It still looked like children's writing, but considering she was copying a foreign language through the medium of a deceased mouse, her effort was deceptively skilled. He kneeled next to her. Are you enjoying yourself? Rasha squinted at him. Would you be? I get why we're doing this, but that doesn't make it any less tedious. In that case, you should probably go rob Sorowan for the sake of your morale. Is that an order? He nodded. To war. For a moment, she looked ready to call him stupid. Then her eyes lit up with mischief. She swiveled her head toward the mouse, concentration crinkling her face. The skeleton laid down its quill, bunged the ink pot, 
then slunk across the snow toward Sorowan, whose nose was buried in the process of directing his own mouse around his half-built walls. Rosha's mouse slipped forward. Any sound it made was erased by the pop of the fire and the rush of snow in the wind. Like all of them, Sorowan wore a thick cloak that hung past the backs of his knees. The mouse paused beneath him, gathered itself, then leaped high, snagging the hem of his cloak with its front paws. It kicked its back legs until they found purchase in the fabric. Rosha collected herself, then guided the creature up Sorowan's back. It reached a large pocket near his right hip and climbed inside, emerging, a moment later, with a packet of dried apples. Arg! Sorowan spun, slapping at his cloak. The mouse spun through the air and landed inside the model citadel's walls. Dante cupped his hands to his mouth. You're being invaded. Protect your keep. Sorowan glanced from him to the thieving mouse. With an affronted scowl, he pointed at Rasha's mouse, which was currently trying to jump up the foot-high snow walls. On the other side of the enclosure, his mouse raced along the battlements, flinging itself down at the intruder. They met with a brittle clack. Rosha ran forward two steps, gesturing to her mouse. The two constructs ripped at each other, sending ribs and claws flying into the snow. Rosha ordered her mouse to spit out the packet of apple slices just as the enemy's oversized front teeth sank into its outstretched neck. Rosha's creature collapsed in a pile. Sorowan blinked in surprise, then stared down at his mouse until it looked like the sweat was about to pop from his brows. At last, the rodent rose on its back legs and did a victory jig. Sorowan picked up the packet of apples and returned it to his pocket. Any further attempts to steal will be put down just as harshly. Next time you'll never see me coming. For a moment, Rasha looked angry with her defeat. Then she burst into laughter, gazing down at the remains of her mouse. Is that the end of Captain Grabs? Dante leaned over the wall for a better look. Afraid so. When they get too beat up, their nether leaks away, joining the residual shadows around them. He produced a small leather pouch and dumped out another pile of bones. That's why it pays to carry replacements. The evening's practice had been far more childish than anything the monks at the Citadel would have allowed. But Dante had never thought much of the traditional scholastic model. In fact, it was one of the many things about the Citadel he intended to alter or reform at some point in the future when he had free time, which likely meant when he was too old and frail to leave his room on voyages like this one. For some reason, people believed that it was only real learning if it was boring, difficult, and unpleasant. For Dante, the best learning had always come when he was having fun. Sometimes the subject itself was so compelling that it needed no other seasoning. But often, his interest in or ability to remember the details of that subject was due to the fact that he'd had a blast while learning it. With this in mind, he made certain Sorowan and Rosha had more to do than listen to him lecture, and then recite back what he'd just told them. He assigned them both a rotation of thiefly pursuits, getting Rosha's mouse to pickpocket the others in their group 
without being noticed, to scurry up trees, climb out on branches, and leap to others, to carry a small vial, the kind that might be used to contain poison, unstopper it, and pour it into a hole in the snow no bigger than a mouth or an ear. Their favorite game was something they dubbed the Little Gauntlet, in which their mice were given a token to carry and protect across the landscape, while Dante used his own mice to hunt them. Sometimes Rosha and Sorowan were on the same side. Others, they were in opposition. Sorowan clearly preferred to work together, but Rosha didn't seem to care. The only thing she cared about was getting her mouse through the gauntlet and dropping her token in the victory circle. After two weeks of travel, the Dundon Mountains condensed on the horizon. With their time together nearly half over, Dante switched their lessons from the control of the mice to the creation of them. He soon ran into a challenge to his philosophy of making all learning and practice into a game, puzzle, or contest. They were bad at reanimating the dead, and there was no real way to turn their acquisition of these skills into a game or, at any rate, to make a game more complicated than whoever does it first gets to mock the one who failed. Fortunately for their collective sanity, he'd already learned that it was counterproductive to lecture them as if they both had the same problems and solutions. Instead, he taught them individually. By the time they reached the mountains, Sorowan was able to raise and command not just one, but two mice at once— if for limited periods of time. Yet Rorschach still hadn't gotten it. As they hiked into a blizzard, Dante had to divert most of his time and power toward clearing and reshaping the ground ahead of them. Three days into the Dundons, they stopped in the middle of the afternoon and made camp below the pass, meaning to try to cross it once they had a full day to work with. Dante hollowed them a shelter in the rock, complete with a small flue. As the rangers struggled to get a fire going, Dante went over bits of the cycle with Rosha, particularly the sections involving Jack Hand, the adventurous sorcerer who'd used an army of dead rats to free himself from captivity. The original copy of the cycle was far more than a book, and he was hoping exposure to these stories would jog something inside her or teach her something he couldn't. There was no guarantee she'd learn to use the little spies before they reached Bressel. If she couldn't, her chances of ferreting out Malin's plans would drop sharply. Jack Hand again, Blaze got to his feet, brushing snow from his trousers. Tell me when you get to the stories about his cousin Jack Ass. Until then, I'm going to make use of the daylight to scout the path ahead. He exited into the falling snow. Dante finished up one of the passages about Jack Hand, then had Rosha try her hand on a mouse skeleton. After a few more failures, he switched back to reading the book. As he debated with Rosha about whether a single sorcerer could really command the number of rats the cycle claimed Jack Hand had put to use, Blaze materialized from nowhere. Shit! Dante scrambled backward. Don't do that! If I didn't, I'd sink into the snow like an arrow fired straight down. Blaze motioned in the direction of the pass. I got nearly two miles ahead before I had to turn back. 
I could have sent a mouse to do that. Yes, but if you were off doing that, I couldn't teach your students, so from each their own and all that. In any event, the past looks okay. Well, relatively okay. It won't definitely kill us. Blaze waved a hand at the still air of the cave. What were you guys doing in here anyway? This place is swimming with nether. That's probably what I was going to clobber you with for appearing out of the blue. We were reading. There wasn't any nether involved. There was a second ago. It was flying around like a flock of crows the gods had forgotten to finish detailing. Dante glanced at Rorschach. Were you drawing on the nether? She shrugged. I'm saving it all for your god's damned mice. Blaze frowned. Either you're mistaken, or my brain is in the process of freezing solid. As we always do, let's pray you're wrong. He blinked out of existence. Now that Dante was expecting him, he could feel Blaze's presence in the shadows. Blaze took a couple of steps toward Dante, stopped, then moved to the open copy of the cycle, which he seemed to stand over for a long time. Uh, Blaze said, returning to reality. Turns out we're both right. Or wrong, if you're feeling cynical. The Nether's still here. It's tumbling around like dust in a sunbeam in a barn, or like a stream flowing between you two and the cycle. Thing is, it seems to be confined to the Netherworld. Dante examined the air in front of him, and around the cycle, but there were no more than a few particles of shadows drifting about, and nothing that came close to resembling a stream. I don't see anything. Blaze rolled his eyes. Considering how poorly you use your ears, I'm not surprised your eyes don't work either. You can't see it because you can't see into the shadows. What's the Nether doing, besides being there? Blaze disappeared for another ten seconds before coming back. Well, a lot of it's sinking into you, although a bit is also going from you into the book. Dante's skin tingled. You're absolutely 100% sure of this? That's what the book does, Rosha said. You didn't know that? You've seen this too. A glimmer of self-recrimination crossed her face, as if she'd regretted saying anything. She eyed Dante, then glanced out at the storm outside the cave, seeming to relax. Yep. Rosha made a circular motion between herself and the book. But only when I was inside the shadows. It doesn't react the same way to everyone, either. When one of my friends was reading it, she hardly stirred up any shadows at all. Dante gazed down at the book. He was annoyed that they could see this phenomenon, and he couldn't. But the darkness of his jealousy was already being replaced by the lightness of curiosity. It's still doing this right now. He motioned to Blaze. What about you? Are you caught up in these streams, or is it just me and Rasha? Blaze held up a finger and blinked away again. When he returned, he was shaking his head. It's sprinkling a bit of shadows on me, but it's dumping plenty on Rasha, and you look like you're in the middle of a filthy blizzard. 
Dante was overtaken by that particular breed of thought where he wouldn't have been able to explain it to himself, let alone out loud to another person. Letting his inspiration propel him forward, he pointed at Rasha. Put your hand on the book. As she complied, he followed suit. He tried again to sense the flow of Nether, but it remained hidden from him. Watch what I do. When you feel ready, you try. He got a bag of mouse bones from his pocket and dumped them on the cold stone floor of the cave. He drew the nether to his hand, matching his breathing to the slow expansion and contraction of the shadows. Thus synced, he waited for the nether to expand fully, then animated the skeleton. When the shadows shrank to their smallest, he withdrew the others from the mouse, collapsing it with a delicate rattle. With each cycle of the nether, he animated and deanimated the mouse again. At first, Rasha watched him. Then she watched the mouse. At last, she seemed to be looking at nothing at all, or gazing through their world and into another. She lifted her hand. Shadows swam from her fingers to the skeleton of the mouse. A bony tail twitched. Tiny claws flexed. The mouse rocked to its feet, turned around, and tilted its skull at Rasha. They took the pass early the next morning. The snows were worse than Dante had expected, forcing him to tunnel through a short stretch of rock. They emerged into a blizzard so thick that he would have been lost if not for the dim shapes of the mountains around him. There was nothing to do but press on. After two miles forward and a few hundred feet of vertical descent, the winds eased back. The snow changed from a stinging curtain to slow, cottony blobs that landed with little whispers. After a quick shadow walk ahead, Blaze returned to the group, mounted up, and maneuvered next to Dante. Were you ever going to explain what you figured out yesterday? Why would the wise master reveal all his secrets? If I ever meet one, I'll have to ask him. Besides, the only thing you like more than being seen as wise is being seen as clever. Dante smiled. Typically, Nether is visible in both the physical world and the Nether world, right? As far as I know. But you can write everything I know about the Nether on a husk of corn. Can you think of any forms of Nether that aren't visible in our world? No? Funny, considering one such form repeatedly try to eat you. Blaze tipped back his head. Traces. What Gladic used to make the Andrak. The little bits of you left behind when you die. That's the only type of Nether I know of that would explain this. That would mean the original cycle is full of dead souls. It's like the Nether inside it is circulating through those who read it, especially those who are talented with the shadows. I wonder if it's taken pieces from everyone who's ever read it. Then it mingles those bits with you and takes a few from you to it, and this opens a channel. Sort of like the loons. Sort of, Dante agreed. 
This would explain why, when I read it, it seemed like I just learned to wield the nether out of nowhere. The cycle was altering me. I just couldn't see it happening. You know what would be amazing? If the ink was made from traces. Now that would be style. Blaze glanced over his shoulder. This channel opening, you think that's what showed Rasha how to make her pile of bones sit up and squeak? Putting her in contact with my skills, and those of everyone in the traces, might have shown her how to do it. It could even have enhanced her own skills. Now that's interesting. If you and I tapped into the book, think it'd finally teach you how to land a wife? Hilarious. The book's ability is exciting on its own, but there's something more going on here. I can't see it manipulating the nether at all. Only shadow walkers can, and as far as I know, the only people who can shadow walk are the people of the pocket and their refugees. If I can figure out how to replicate the cycle's source of nether, I could hide my attacks from other sorcerers. Replicated? You mean by taking people's souls and putting them into a staff or something? Traces aren't souls per se. We don't know that. I'm just saying that we could do this, Dante said. Apparently, whoever made the original cycle did it. Blaze gave him a crooked look. Yes, and some others in your vaunted institution once raised a mountain range that nearly killed an entire civilization. Last time I checked, everyone still considered that a regrettable move. They dropped out of the mountains and into the patchwork of plains and forests that made up the sparsely inhabited reaches of northern Malon. Sorowan was already versed in basic healing, but Rosha was unfamiliar with the techniques. Keeping the cycle spread next to them, Dante had her healing small cuts by the end of the night. Using the last of her energy, she sealed a nick on her palm, turning her hand back and forth. How much can you do with this? If I cut Sorowan's throat, could you stop him from bleeding out? Sorowan scowled at her. Dante grinned. I've saved people from worse wounds than that. Ether's better at this. It wants to restore things to the way they were, but the Nether likes to grow things, like veins and flesh and bones. Can you cure disease? Everything I've run into? Well, almost everything. It's trickier than sealing up a wound, but a skilled priest can cure a lot of common ailments. She sucked on her upper front teeth. What about death? We're still working on a cure for that one. As far as I know, once you pass into Aron's hands, you're his for good. Next to him, Blaze coughed. Dante kept a straight face. Although people always like to tell crazy stories about people coming back from the dead. A few days later, they spotted uncovered grass for the first time since leaving Narashtavik. Now that Sorowan and Rasha were capable of raising mice by themselves, Dante had them use their undead minions to scout ahead for patrols, highwaymen, or other sources of potential unpleasantness. 
he had the two of them describe what they saw along the way. Rorschach had a natural eye for detail. Sorowin didn't. Though he could sustain his mice for upwards of three hours, while Rorschach struggled to keep hers going for an hour. As they neared Wetton, a column of black smoke climbed from the horizon. Dante took them close enough for a glimpse of the city. It now bore wooden walls, the gates closed tight. Something inside them was burning, but the fire appeared to be under control. Wary of patrols, they traveled a good mile off the road before making camp. Dante used a spark of ether to light the firewood the rangers gathered. He sat close to the fire, steam rising from his wet boots. Have you figured out what you're going to do in Brussels, Rosha? She pulled her hair loose from the string she'd used to bind it back. Thinking of hiring on as a messenger, they get sent to all kinds of important people. Nobody pays them much attention either. She grinned. Or maybe I'll find an outfit like the one I just left. Thieves know more about the comings and goings of the nobility than everyone but the courtesans. Blaze picked something from his teeth and spat it into the fire. Try the red ghosts. Red ghosts? They're Bressel's version of the order. Flush a few of your skills at them, and I'm sure they'll be happy to take you aboard. Only show your mundane skills, mind you. Show them you can shudder walk, and they're apt to drink your blood and try to absorb your power. Dante raised an eyebrow. How do you know about the operations of Malish brigands? Robert Hobble used to work with them, that's how. Any organization smart enough to work with the esteemed Mr. Hobble is going to be a great fit for our friend here. As Blaze and Rorschach fell into a detailed conversation regarding the customs of outlaws in Malish society, Dante took the opportunity to pull Sorowan aside. Dante removed a piece of mouse skull from his pocket. Give me a dab of your blood. Without missing a beat, Sorowan got out his knife, scratched the back of his arm, and held it out for Dante. Dante smeared the piece of skull with a drop of blood, then sealed a layer of nether into the bone. He extended it to Sorowan. Do you know what this is? The boy glanced at Dante, then down at the bone then back at Dante. Uh, I didn't know you made jewellery, sir. I'll wear it with pride. It's not just jewellery, you fool. It's a loon. It's linked to this one. Dante dangled his half. Put it in your ear and activate it like so. He paused to illustrate. And we can speak to each other from hundreds of miles apart. Sarwan gave it a try. When Dante's voice sounded in his ear, his jaw dropped, completely awestruck. Dante couldn't help laughing. There were few things funnier than a sorcerer who acted like he'd never seen magic before. Keep it secret, he said. Don't even tell Rorschach. And when you enter the priesthood, don't wear it around them. They might be able to sense it. You'll have to hide it somewhere. Only use it when you or Rorschach have something to pass along. Sorowan bounced the loon in his hand. He licked his lips. Are you sure this is going to work? You just heard it for yourself. I don't... Sorowan pocketed the loon. Never mind. It's stupid. 
You're worried about your mission. You should be. You're about to be dropped into the lion's den. But if you have a problem with that, you need to let me know now. But, I mean, what would it matter now? We're hardly two days from Bressel. Which gives you two days to decide you'd rather go back to Narashtovic. You'd let me do that? I would, Dante said. But first I'd tell you that this will be dangerous. You could be hurt. You could even be killed. But I think you can do this. You're quick on your feet. That's one of the only two skills you need to survive anything. What's the other thing? Resilience. The ability to take a punch, get back on your feet and throw one back. Sorrowin frowned. You think I can do that? You can find out in Bressel. Or you can return to Narashtovic, rejoin the monks, and never have to find out. Which life do you want? The boy was quiet for a few seconds. He glanced through the trees at Rasha and Blaze, who were still laughing next to the fire, as if they'd burned all their worries along with the kindling. Sorrowin drew a wisp of shadows to his fingers. For a moment, he looked older. I'll go, he said. It's what Narashtovic needs from me, isn't it? Actually, I'm hoping you turn out to be worthless because Malin doesn't intend to do anything more threatening than wear those ridiculous pants of theirs. Sorowin laughed. They returned to the fire. Dante felt pleased with himself, until it occurred to him that he'd never really believed that Sorowin would have given up the mission to return to Narashtovic, and that if he had feared that outcome, he might never have asked at all. Two days later, with the sun fading from the overcast sky, they gazed on the spires of Bressel. From here, you're on your own, Dante said. I wish I had some final trick or lesson to teach you. Blaze shifted in his saddle. I've got one. Never get in a fight with someone who can turn you inside out. Try not to get in any fights at all, especially not with their priests. Even if you think you're stronger, next to the nether and the ether, we're nothing but watery, helpless flesh. If you make a single mistake, you won't get the chance to make a second one. Roshaw sniffed. Are you always this inspiring before you send your troops into battle? This is why I encourage him to shut up and make things explode, Blaze said. Much better for morale. Roshaw grinned, gave the manse that had carried her all this way one last pat, and walked onward toward the city. Sorowan followed. When he was twenty feet from them, he turned and gave a hesitant wave. We're not sending them to their deaths, are we? Blaze said. Don't worry, this one's all on me, Dante said. Although if they do wind up caught and executed, you really should have done something to stop me here. He called the rangers over to him. He'd wrapped the cycle in an oiled leather bag to keep it dry. He handed it over to Etchels, who would lead the four escorts home to Narashtovic. If the pass isn't clear, wait for it to thaw, 
Dante said. In fact, if there's ever a choice between getting the book home sooner and getting it there safer, choose the safer option. If you run into any trouble north of the Dundons, the Norrin will help you. Otherwise, don't stop for anyone, not even to help them. This book can't be replaced. Unless you're faced to decide between saving the book and saving the world, always go with the book. All right, Mother Dante, Blaze cut in. If you're ready to part with your precious child, perhaps we can get on with our job. Etchell smiled, eyes crinkling. We'll take perfect care of it, sir. We are aware that if we didn't, you'd use our skin for your bedsheets. Etchell secured the book in a pouch in his saddle next to his sword. With a clipped, bird-like call, he ordered his men to turn about and ride north. Dante tried not to think about how the cycle would be on the open road for at least the next month. Anyway, safer with the riders than where he was headed. They backtracked to a ferry they'd seen a few miles up the Chancet and crossed to the eastern bank. Once they were oriented southeast, meaning to hit the shore and ride straight along the coast and into Alebolgia, Dante sent a pulse to Jonah's loon. Hello! It wasn't yet sundown, but Jonah sounded well on his way into a good night. That you, Dante? In the voice, Dante said. We're a few days outside of Colin, but we'd like to get to Tanaratane as fast as possible. That means heading straight to Gavana. Can you ask the coloners to meet us there? Jonah chuckled roughly. Wish all my jobs were so easy. The Basin's already got a delegation in Kavana. Really? What are they doing there? Diplomacy or some shit. You think they tell me anything? To them I'm just a sailor who forgot which way the ocean is. Right, Dante said. I'll let you get back to your rum, then. Many miles east of Bressel, they came to the coast. The wind off the ocean wasn't as cold as it had been inland, leaving the way free of snow. They trotted along the pathway all the way to the inland sea Dante had created to block off the manage. The coloners had already established a small fort on the other side. They sent over a flat-bottomed sloop to transport Dante, Blaze, and the horses to the other side. The coloners were in high spirits, offering them food and drink, congratulating them on having secured the basin's freedom at last. Never one to pass up a feast, Blaze talked Dante into staying overnight. In the morning, they made all haste for the strip of Alebolgia. After a stretch of desert, the starkness was textured with grape trellises and fields of low green winter wheat. They passed through the hills of Poloa and came to Gavana. Securing lodging at an inn, they sent a messenger to the colony's delegation, who were apparently being quartered at House Itiego. Within an hour of their arrival, a fist hammered on their door. Dante glanced at Blaze, who shrugged and loosened his swords in their sheaths. Dante bit his lip until he tasted blood, gathering nether in his hands. He opened the door. Lady Vita Osedo barged inside, her face clenched in wrath. She jabbed a thin, curved sword against Dante's chest. There's the liar from the north, she said. 
Time to answer for your betrayal.